Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy. That's Chase. I'm Josh, and we are here to give you episode five of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And I just want to set out some amazing disclaimers before we get started in this today. So as you guys know, this is the biggest book in the Harry Potter series. And we're getting into the sections where we normally do six chapters at a time to kind of get us through the books. So this is the last six chapter episode we're going to do just because for the next two weeks it's going to be almost like story time with Chase and Josh that we talked about reading directly from the book because of all the huge moments that happen. Well, in this episode here, it's going to be a mix of like the kind of bullet points we've been doing and also reading directly from the book because there's a lot of huge moments that we can't miss. So I'm going to let everyone know now this is going to be one of the longer episodes that you will hear here at Factor Fantasy. I know you guys have already kind of gotten used to our length of episode. Uh, This one might even be a little bit longer than that. And so with that, we want to jump in kind of early with you today. Before we do that, I want to give Chase the opportunity to uh, say hey and talk a little bit about his interesting facts that uh, he's putting out this week as well. What is up, my crew? Uh, I guess what I would say about this episode we're about to do is what I usually say on our big episodes. It's going down for real. (laughs) Yeah, so thanks for hanging with us today because... This one's going to be a ride or die, (laughs) that's for sure. Um, Yeah, guys, uh, you know, it always means a lot, all y'all following us, and especially, uh, you know, picking up and following uh, me on Wednesdays. That's pretty cool. We miss Jay Nelly over there, so I still mention him on Wednesdays, you know. It's always a ridiculous production, man. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, we got a lot of really cool stuff uh, coming up this Wednesday. Um, Actually, it's been really interesting because... I did a lot of background research, uh, which we might mention this Wednesday. It probably will be in the episode afterwards on who created Dementors uh, themselves as actual uh, monsters and that sort of thing. And, you know, last week uh, we talked about on the episodes as far as uh, we talked about not just the American Ministry of Magic, but we really talked about on this episode uh, Delphini that just premiered Wednesday, who was uh, supposed to be a descendant of Voldemort. And we've talked a lot about about the Salazar um, heirs uh, and that whole tree line, uh, tree timeline, um, family tree, sorry, the family tree, not the tree line. That would be really strange. But the family tree in the timeline there. (laughs) Um, And we talked a lot about the episode before that on Sirius Black's uh, family tree tapestry. So that was pretty interesting. Uh, in the next two weeks, you know, because we got so much uh, we got to get into, um, you're going to hear a lot of really cool stuff about, you know, really ancient artifacts that they wind up discovering in the ministry and, and that sort of thing. So we won't give it all away, but definitely tune in Wednesday because we got a lot of really cool material. And what's nice is it, it gives you all kind of that uh, buffer episode where you don't feel like you have to just like wait. Uh, seven full days <laughs> for the next episode and and these at the same time uh, those are going to be a lot shorter than for instance the one we're about to dive into today and uh, with that I'll turn it back over to our our coach on the field right here our own Jay Nelly man I'm I'm the running the vert route on this one going all the way to the end zone trying to catch that Hail Mary pass because uh, we definitely have uh, a jam-packed episode today for you couldn't say it any better, my man. And 
And to your point, talking about, you know, waiting the full week to hear us, you know, this is one of those ones episodes where you might need to take a couple days to get through it on your ride <laughs> to work uh, in the gym when you're trying to pass the time and <laughs> lifting them weights. So you might have a couple days to get through the one we're about to pa- unpack here in a second. And so with that, guys, what we're going to do is we're going to get our uh, patented cheers that we always do. We're going to jump on into the books. So with me saying that, Chase, get that cup up in the air. Let's get this malice in the chalice going, and let's dive on into this bad boy. Malice in the chalice, baby. This one deserves a malice in the chalice. <laughs> That's absolutely. Sure, so we're going to open up our books to chapter 25, The Beetle at Bay. We're going to be tackling this chapter through chapter 30, which is Grop today. Uh, starting right out on chapter 25, if you're looking at the book, there's an illustration of Harry and Cho Chang. Remember what we talked about last week, they have a date set for Valentine's Day. Well, we're actually going to see how that date goes today. Um, now, <laughs> the, the craziest thing, too, because the last thing that we had mentioned from last week is, you know, Harry had another one of those weird vision sensation things. And he was thinking to himself, like the last words that we said on our last episode before we got into the, sec- the separate sections outside of Impact Moments, was he wondered what made Voldemort the happiest he had been in 14 years. Well, we're about to find out right here, starting this chapter. Because when they open up the Daily Prophet, there's 10 Death Eaters that escape from Azkaban. And I was hoping they were going to list all of them. They didn't end up listing all of them. They listed three... And because Harry's like eyes and intention went to Bellatrix Lestrange, she's one of the three. But uh, so Anton, Antonin Dolohov, uh, he he escaped. He was convicted for the murders of Gideon and Fabian Pruitt. Augustus Rookwood, he was convicted for leaking Ministry of Magic secrets to Voldemort. And obviously Bellatrix Lestrange, she was convicted of the torture and permanent incapacitation of Frank and Alice Longbottom. And, you know, her and her of herself, of where she comes into play later on, she's kind of a foreshadow. Won't touch too much into that. But these guys are people who have been dangerous in the community the first time around that Voldemort was there. Now they're back out on the streets, so to speak, with Voldemort this time around just as dangerous as before. So what I'll do is I'll go ahead and read the Daily Prophet column. And then uh, on this one, and as well as uh, someone that we had met in St. Mungo's uh, a couple episodes ago. So, I'll go ahead and read this here. Mass breakout from Azkaban. Ministry fears Black is rallying point for old Death Eaters. It says, Black, Harry said loudly. Not, shh, whispered Hermione desperately. Not so loud, just read it. The Ministry of Magic announced late last night that there has been a mass breakout from Azkaban. Speaking to reporters in his private office... Cornelius Fudge, Minister of Magic, confirmed that 10 high-security prisoners escaped in the early hours of yesterday evening and that he has already informed the Muggle Prime Minister of the dangerous nature of these individuals. We find ourselves most unfortunately in the same position we were two and a half years ago when the murderer Sirius Black escaped, said Fudge late last night. Nor do we think the two breakouts are unrelated. An escape of this magnitude suggests outside help. And we must remember that Black, as the first person to ever break out of Azkaban, would be ideally placed to help others follow in his footsteps. We think it is likely that these individuals, who include Black's cousin, Bellatrix Lestrange, have rallied around Black as their leader. We are, however, doing all we can to round up the criminals and beg the magical community remain alert and cautious, and on no account should any of these individuals be approached. So right there, there's a couple things. We get the... the news that they broke out of Azkaban, right? 
But what this is, is kind of like a full circle moment of what Dumbledore predicted in Goblet of Fire. He said that the Dementors are going to turn against you, Cornelius. Like, you're, like Voldemort can offer them much more than you can. So now we're kind of seeing Dumbledore's words come full circle as, in fact, 10 high security prisoners did escape from Azkaban. That's number one thing here. Number two, they're going to be blaming it on Sirius Black. They don't really have much other choice, right? Because they, they're trying to uh, ignore the fact that people are saying Voldemort's back. And in doing so, that only leaves Sirius Black as the only viable option who to blame it on, which is, you know, being who we are as audience members, we know it's ludicrous because Sirius is one of the good guys and he's been not, nothing but an asset for the Order, you know, giving them a place to have their headquarters and, you know, kind of laying low, making sure that he's not screwing things up for anybody else. But, you know, helping Harry throughout last year through the tasks of getting through the Triwizard Tournament, being there for him this year. So for them, them to blame it on Sirius, it's going it, it's going to have a lasting impact because now people who kind of forgot about him are going to be thinking about him again in a more, even more negative light because now it's like, Shoot, is Sirius Black like the new Voldemort? Is he the new guy who's trying to kind of take over as a dark wizard? Which, of course, is ridiculous. And then we go a little bit in depth, just a touch more in the Ministry of Magic, because we get to hear a, a, a column about what happens to our guy, uh, Broderick Bode. So I'm going to read this little excerpt here as well, and I'll turn it over to Chase to take it from there. But the tragic demise of Ministry of Magic worker... St. Mungo's Hospital promised a full inquiry last night after Ministry of Magic worker Broderick Bode, age 49, was discovered dead in his bed, strangled by a potted plant. Healers called to the scene were unable to revive Mr. Bode, who had been injured in a workplace accident some weeks prior to his death. Healer Miriam Strout, who was in charge of Mr. Bode's ward at the time of the incident, has been suspended on full pay and was unavailable for comment yesterday, but a spokeswizard for the hospital said in a statement... St. Mungo's deeply regrets the death of Mr. Bode, whose health was improving steadily prior to this tragic accident. We have strict guidelines on the decorations permitted in our wards, but it appears that Healer Strout, busy over the Christmas period, overlooked the dangers of the plant on Mr. Bode's bedside table. As his speech and mobility improved, Healer Strout encouraged Mr. Bode to look after the plant himself, unaware that it was not an innocent flitter bloom, but a cutting of devil's snare, which, when touched the convalescent Mr. Bode throttled him instantly. St. Mungo's is yet unable to account for the presence of the plant on the ward and asks any witcher wizard with information to come forward. So this is pretty heavy here because we talked about Mr. Bode being an unspeakable in the Department of Mysteries. Well, the Department of Mysteries, as we've been finding out, is something that's really integral to the storyline here. So we talked a little bit about when we saw him in St. Mungo's, how... You know, there's he, he looked like he wasn't all there mentally, and there are some curses that can make it so someone is not acting on their own accord and not remembering certain things. And so they actually kind of start getting into a little bit, like Harry, Ron, and Hermione start kind of dissecting what could have possibly happened. And, you know, the only logical explanation is someone sent that plant there to finish off the job because Mr. Bode was improving, his health was improving, said his speech and mobility, he was starting to get better. And what happens then, if he's allowed to get better, maybe he talks, maybe he saw something, maybe he can inform people, and so they needed to shut him up. And, you know, they kind of start feeling guilty because they have experience with Devil Snare, as in the Sorcerer's Stone, and they feel like they should have uh, recognized it for what it was. 
But, you know, number one, they're kids. Number two, they were there not to see Mr. Bode. It's not something like, you know, that wasn't their main priority. So they, they, they like to take a lot of guilt onto themselves. But the big thing is here is another Ministry of Magic worker from the Department of Mysteries. He's now dead, and he can no longer give any sort of testimony as to what happened for him to get in that position for the accident in the first place or identify anyone who may have been involved. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Chase, and he's going to take us from there. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point. And this was really kind of a, a big impact moment, because remember, Hermione was like, this wasn't, like, by accident. Like, this was a murder. Um, and, uh, you know, that moment really hit me, because first, uh, like how we talked about last episode, when they went to St. Mungo's, you know, the big focus you really had in St. Mungo's is when you were finding out about Neville, right? And his grandmother like that's the big sinking moment that makes you remember so much and now it's kind of like almost one of almost like a classic uh mystery film of you're like wow i can't believe i missed that uh that happened in there so that 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 was a pretty awesome impact moment um and harry the next thing i had was he even remembered uh he recalled seeing bodrick bode um, right before his hearing, like they had, um, uh, basically, uh, he was on the way to his hearing is when he wound up running into him. Um, and it was, uh, at the, he, when he had to get on the atrium level, um, and it was with Arthur, I'm pretty sure. Uh, well, no, it was Ron that yes. said, um, he met him before and Ron even said, I met Bode. He said slowly, I saw him at the ministry with your dad. Uh, so, well, no, Harry said that, and then Ron's mouth fell open. So he was, yeah, Harry was even recalling, like, seeing this guy. Um, and from that point, uh, you know, this is kind of a big moment. I'm not going to read too much here. Just on page 548, Ron says a really a big impact moment here. And uh, so uh, Ron's mouth fell open, and he said, um, so they looked at one another for a moment, then Hermione pulled the newspaper back toward her, closed it, glared for a moment at the pictures of the ten escaped Death Eaters on the front, then leapt to her feet. Where are you going, said Ron, startled. To send a letter, said Hermione, swinging her bag onto her shoulder. It, well, I don't know whether, but it's worth trying, and I'm the only one who can. But um, basically, they keep talking here, and uh, like you said, like you mentioned, Ron mentions that you know, he was an unspeakable in the Department of Mysteries. Um, so now you have this huge question of what do unspeakables do? And it raises a lot of questions of what really goes on at the Department of Mysteries that we don't know about, uh, which is a, a big thing there. Because you feel like at this point, at least you have some connection to where you know really what the ministry does now that we've been through all the floors. You know, they've been into St. Mungo's, like they've come in contact with the people that work there based on, you know, Harry following Arthur to his hearing. And now, like based on this talk of like unspeakables that uh, Ron says on page 48, uh, 548, sorry, uh, on page 548, it's like now you have all these questions raised where you feel like you almost don't even know anything about the ministry because of the Department of Mysteries there. Um, and then that's when you know, Hermione uh, swings like her bag over her shoulder, like I was just reading, and she says uh, she was going to send a letter. Um, 
and she uh, typical Hermione moment, right? Like she's gonna come try to save the day, um, and and Ron's just like I hate it when she does that. But um, and then from this point, you kind of get back to where remember we were talking about last episode where Hagrid's back now, so that's kind of cool. And and when we come back to Hagrid, um, you remember where the first time we saw him, and he already had all those cuts across his faces. And you're assuming it's from the altercation where he had with the Giants before. Well, a big foreshadowing moment, and we won't tell you what it is yet, but Hagrid has a new cut across the bridge of his nose when Ron and Harry see him in the Great Hall, and that's still on page 548. Um, Hagrid winds up mentioning that he's on probation because a couple of salamanders got scale rot. So that's a... a foreshadowing interesting fact <laughs> for one of the episodes coming up but um so you know uh and uh hagrid winds up telling ron and harry um that the inspection that you know umbridge we were talking about all the inspections uh didn't really go <laughs> in his favor and ron says you're on probation said ron very loudly so that means students passing looked around curiously sorry i mean you're on probation he whispered yeah, said Hagrid. Uh, so no more than I expected, to tell you the truth. Uh, you might have noted, uh, picked up on it, but the inspection didn't go too well, you know. Anyway, he sighed deeply. Best go on a rub. I bet uh, it's a bit chilly powder on them salamanders on the tails be hanging on him next. See ya, Harry, Ron. Which, when saying that, basically, you know... Um, Basically, he was just moving on with his day because Hagrid doesn't talk in exactly... Um, he talks in more of Ebonics than anything, so not to sound like a cowboy, that's just exactly what it said straight out of the book. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and then uh, from here, and then I'll turn it right back over to our own Jay Nelly here. Um, so it just mentions that, you know... Uh, those that came from the wizarding families of the escaped Death Eaters um, actually spoke that during the uh, almost like spoke that during Voldemort's like reign of terror, the ones that escaped, like their crimes were legendary, is basically what they were saying. And you know, um, it says like they were like reflecting on the fame. Of like how uh, close they were to Voldemort, and it really just had an impact moment for him. And um, uh, Susan Bones actually, who had an uncle and an aunt and a cousin, who had all died at the hands of the Ten, uh, said um, during that uh, she now during herbology that she had a good idea of what it felt like to be Harry. Uh, so it's really starting to just to summarize that part there really starting to affect these students and it's it's really interesting because i would say at this moment here you know all year they've all been kind of on top of harry like not believing his story uh thinking it's a lie and even if the ones that don't believe harry it's like they've kind of eased off at the moment because this is such such a big moment with these 10 escape wizards which are by no means mediocre like these are advanced uh wizards in the dark arts that are very close to voldemort which even if you think about it just on a basic level we know how 
difficult it is to escape Azkaban, and you're telling me all 10 of them did? Like, that's a, a big issue here that that's being spread uh, throughout the school. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you, man. Awesome. And just to clean things up, to make it easier to understand for everyone on the, on the audience here, just to go back to that page 548, when Her- Hermione leaps up and says she needs to send a letter... That's a big foreshadow for somebody who made an appearance in Goblet of Fire. They're about to come back around. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when Hagrid tells Harry and Ronnie he was put on probation, it wasn't because the salamanders got dry rot or scale rot. That just happened <laughs> to be something that happened. That was something he was saying yeah. in passing. Like he was trying to like brush past the point. He's like, "Yeah, they got scar and I'm on probation." Like trying yeah. to like kind of make it casually sounding. So the, them getting scale rot wasn't the reason he was put on probation. He was put on probation because Umbridge hates half breeds and was wanting a reason right. to anyways. And inspection didn't go well, but. Um, yeah, I will say, like, the Susan Bones, who had, you mentioned she had an uncle and cousin, they didn't get killed by all ten. Each of them were killed by at least one of the ten. Mm-hmm. But, yes, yeah, so everything else that you said on there was very, very accurate about how she said she kind of knew how it felt to be Harry a little bit. But, yeah, so now people uh, in, you know, page 550, they're regarding Harry with more... I wouldn't say... Res- I don't know if it's respect, but like you said, they're not actually giving him a hard time anymore. The whispers are more curiosity than they are you know accusing harry of being a liar and like seeking attention and and those kind of things and i think it's because with this breakout it made people realize that you know the daily prophets version of events doesn't really line up with the facts that everything that doesn't make sense for the most part and you know with the 10 death eaters that escaped it's not like they just you know broke out because they were very very skilled the death the dementors are no longer on the Ministry of Magic side. So that's how they broke out. The Dementors are like, they don't really run the prison anymore. So Voldemort got his people back. And these are the people that, if you guys remember from Goblet of Fire, uh, in that ring of Death Eaters that he had when he first returned to power, he was talking about how certain people should be standing there, but they chose to go to Azkaban for him instead of like, like revoke his name. And he's like, these people will be rewarded beyond their wildest dreams. And so now these these death eaters are rejoining his ranks, which is it's gonna make it's gonna make things difficult uh, for the order. I'll say I'll say that. Uh, now we get into this new educational decree number twenty six because with all this going on, all the students are talking about are the ten the, the ten escaped death eaters. The the staff are mentioning that as well. Now Umbridge wants to kind of keep it like, hey, everything we do is going to be education related. So. Education Decree Number 26 says, By the order of the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts, teachers are hereby banned from giving students any information that is not strictly related to the subjects they are paid to teach. The above is in accordance with Education Decree Number 26, signed Dolores Jane Umbridge, the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts. So, she's trying, she, she's got some bad control issues, man. Like, she, she wants to, like, keep everything under, like, lock and key at all times, and that's the biggest thing, like, you know, Especially in a high school type setting, the biggest way to make sure everyone does a thing that you don't want them to do is to ban them from doing it, right? So we're going to find that out a little bit later on when a certain magazine drops. But (laughs) as of right now, it's still something that's, uh, you know, and it's kind of funny too because we always talk about Fred and George, but they have a, a friend named Lee Jordan. And he's kind of like the sidekick who's also a jokester here. And he does something kind of funny and tries to use Umbridge's, like, thing against her. So I'm actually going to go ahead and, and read this here. 
Uh, the, the latest decree that had been the subject of a great number of jokes among the students. Lee Jordan had pointed out to Umbridge that by the terms of the new rule, she was not allowed to tell Fred and George uh, off for playing Exploding Snap in the back of the class. Exploding Snap's got nothing to do with defense against the dark arts, Professor. That's not information relating to your subject. <laughs> and so when Harry saw Lee next, the back of Lee's hand was bleeding rather badly, and Harry recommended Essence of Mertlap. So what happened there is, like, Lee obviously got detention, and he, he got the quill. He got the, the famous quill that, you know, you write stuff into, and it gets, uh, it cuts into your, the back of your hand. So, uh... One more thing here before I turn it over to Chase on page 551 through 555. This is a little bit of a, uh, a big break here that we need to discuss. We're going to start here with the following chapter. Harriet thought the breakout from Azkaban might have humbled Umbridge a little bit. That she might have been abashed at the catastrophe that occurred right under her beloved Fudge's nose. It seemed, however, to have only intensified her furious desire to bring every aspect of life at Hogwarts under her personal control. She seemed determined at the very least to achieve a sacking before long, and the only question was whether it would be Professor Trelawney or Hagrid who went first. Every single divination and care of magical creatures lesson was now conducted in the presence of Umbridge and her clipboard. She lurked by the fire in the heavily perfumed tower, interrupting Professor Trelawney's increasingly hysterical talks with difficult questions about uh, ornithomancy, heptomology, insisting that she predict students' answers before they gave them, and demanding that she demonstrate her skill at the crystal ball, the tea leaves, and the rune stones in turn. And Harry thought that Professor Trelawney might soon crack under the strain. Several times he passed her in the corridors, which in and of itself is a very unusual occurrence, as she generally remained in her tower room. Muttering wildly to herself, wringing her hands and shooting terrified glances over her shoulder, all the time giving off a powerful smell of cooked sherry. If he had not been so worried about Hagrid, he would have felt sorry for her, but if one of them was to be ousted out of the job, there could only be one choice for Harry as to whom should remain. Unfortunately, Harry could not see that Hagrid was putting up a much better show than Trelawney. Though he seemed to be following Hermione's advice and had shown them nothing more frightening than a Krupp, which is a creature indistinguishable from a Jack Russell Terrier except for its forked tail, since Christmas, he also seemed to have lost his nerve. He was oddly distracted and jumpy in lessons, losing the thread of what he was saying while talking to the class, answering questions wrongly, and glancing anxiously at Umbridge all the time. He was also more distant with Harry, Ron, and Hermione than he had ever been before, expressly forbidding them to visit him after dark. If she catches you, it'll be all of our necks on the line, he told them flatly, and with no desire to do anything that jeopardized his job further, they abstained from walking down to his hut in the evenings. It seemed to Harry that Umbridge was steadily depriving him of everything that made his life at Hogwarts worth living. Visits to Hagrid's house, letters from Sirius, his firebolt, and Quidditch. And he took his revenge the only way he had, redoubling his efforts for the DA. And Harry was pleased to see that all of them, even Zachariah Smith, seemed to have been spurred to work harder than ever by the news that ten more Death Eaters were now on the loose. But in nobody was this improvement more pronounced than in Neville. The news of his parents' attacker's escape had wrought a strange and even slightly alarming change in him. He had not once mentioned his meeting with Harry, Ron, and Hermione on the closed ward in St. Mungo's, and taking their lead from him, they had kept quiet about it too. Nor had he said anything on the subject of Bellatrix and her fellow torturer's escape. In fact, he barely spoke during the DA meetings anymore. But he worked relentlessly on every new jinx and counter curse Harry taught him. 
his plump face scrubbing concentration, apparently indifferent to injuries or accidents, working harder than anyone else in the room. He was improving so fast, it was quite unnerving, and when Harry taught him the shield charm, a means of deflecting minor jinxes so that they responded upon the attacker, only Hermione mastered that charm faster than Neville. In fact, Harry would have given a great deal to be making as much progress as acclumously as Neville was making during the DA meetings. Harry's session with Snape, which had started badly enough, were not improving. On the contrary, Harry felt that he was getting worse with every lesson. And before he had started sewing acclumency, a scar prickled occasionally, usually during the night, or else following one of those strange flashes of Voldemort's thoughts or moods that he experienced every now and then. But nowadays, however, his scar ev hardly ever stopped prickling, and he often felt lurches of annoyance or cheerfulness that were unrelated to what was happening at the time, which were always accompanied by a particular painful twinge from his scar. He had the horrible impression that he was slowly turning into a kind of aerial that was tuned into a tiny fluctuations in Voldemort's mood, and he was sure that he could date this increased sensitivity firmly from his first acclimacy lesson with Snape. What was more, he was now dreaming about walking down the corridor towards the entrance to the Department of Mysteries almost every night, dreams that always culminated in him standing longingly in front of the plain black door. Maybe it's a bit like an illness, said Hermione, looking concerned when Harry confided in her and Ron. A fever or something. It has to get worse before it gets better. It's the lessons with Snape that are making it worse, said Harry flatly. I'm sick of getting my scar hurting. I'm sick of getting bored walking down the corridor every night, he rubbed his forehead angrily. I just wish the door would open. I'm sick of standing, staring at it. That's not funny, said Hermione sharply. Dumbledore doesn't want to have dreams about that corridor at all, or he wouldn't have asked Snape to teach you acclumency. You're just going to have to work a bit harder in your lessons. I am working, said Harry Nettled. You try it sometime. Snape, trying to get inside your head. It's not a bundle of laughs, you know. Maybe, said Ron slowly. Maybe what, said Hermione rather snappishly. Maybe it's not Harry's fault he can't close his mind, said Ron darkly. What do you mean, said Hermione. Well, maybe Snape isn't really trying to help Harry. And Harry and Hermione stared at him. Ron looked darkly and meaningful from one to the other. Maybe, he said again in a lower voice, he's actually trying to open Harry's mind a bit wider. Make it easier for you-know-who. Shut up, Ron, said Hermione angrily. How many times have you suspected Snape, and where have you ever been right? Dumbledore trusts him, he works for the Order, and that ought to be enough. He used to be a Death Eater, said Ron stubbornly, and we've never seen proof that he really swapped sides. Dumbledore trusts him, Hermione repeated, and if we can't trust Dumbledore, we can't trust anyone. And that's where I'll leave before I turn it over to Chase. But let's talk a little bit about that section there. So, a couple huge things, right? Like, now we talk about Professor Trelawney and Hagrid both kind of jockeying for position who's going to be fired first from their teaching job. On top of that, you know, because Umbridge is taking all these amazing things away from Harry that he enjoys doing, he decides to work even harder at the DA, the Dumbledore's Army, like Defense Against the Dark Arts group that they formed. And what's awesome about this is we see Neville, someone who's been very overlooked as a character, someone who's not that talented, just working harder than everyone, and now he's one of the top people in that group. He said no one learned the shield charm faster than Neville other than Hermione, who just happens to be very good at everything. So the fact that Neville is now like neck and neck with Hermione in terms of who's improving the best at the DA, that's really impressive. And on top of that, we kind of got not really a foreshadow, but like thought-provoking stuff for the future when they are potentially accusing Snape of making it easier for Lord Voldemort to infiltrate Harry's mind and with Hermione saying, listen, Dumbledore trusts him and if we can't trust Dumbledore, we can't trust anybody. So just some really big moments just in those sections alone that I read. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Chase and he's going to take it from there. 
Yeah, uh, the first thing I have uh, plays a big role later on in this chapter. So Hermione uh, winds up getting this letter. And just to read these couple paragraphs here, she goes, In about time, if it hadn't come in today, she said eagerly, tearing open the envelope and pulling out a small piece of parchment. Her eyes sped from left to right as she read through the message in a grimly pleased expression spread across her face. Listen, Harry, she said, looking up at him. This is really important. Do you think you can meet me in the three broomsticks around midday? <clears throat> well, I don't know, said Harry, dubiously. Cho might be expecting me to spend the whole day with her. We never said that we were going to do... Well, bring her along if you must, said Hermione urgently. But will you come? Well, all right, but why? I haven't got time to tell you. I've got to answer this quickly. And she hurried out of the great hall, the letter clutched in one hand and a piece of uneaten toast in the, in the other. Um, so typical my girl, Hermione Granger, like, I don't care what you have planned, like, I need you to do this. <laughs> so, uh, and that's going to play a huge uh, moment later on in this chapter that you will find out today. I um, just have a question about that, too. Like, yeah. like when, once we find out what it is, like, in a, in a couple pages or whatever, <laughs> like... Would it really have hurt Hermione to take five extra seconds to be like, hey, this is what we're doing? And so that way it kind of like, like it's not like she could have wasted the <laughs> like extra minute that it would have taken to explain, hey, this is what we're doing here. This is what we expect from you. So can you please be here? That took me, what, five seconds to say? You couldn't take that extra five little bit seconds. of time. And it probably wouldn't have had a, such a negative impact on what's going to happen here shortly if she just took the extra five seconds to... <laughs> say what she needed to say like do you kind of agree with that like what the heck was that about a hundred percent i think i think in hermione's mind i think i think this is what she was getting at i think she expected when we she meets up with harry later and not to give anything away but i feel like she was expecting like harry to be all excited and surprised so it was like supposed to be a surprise for harry but it wasn't really thought through like you said like she could have saved a number of situations by just being like hey this is what this is um if you wouldn't mind like i i really hard to do this for you because this is going to change a lot of things <laughs> but that would have taken literally two seconds um but i think in hermione's mind she was just so excited because i think it was one of those things she probably worked so hard to get this person's attention to do this that I guess she was so stoked about it she thought it was going to be like some big surprise for harry so that's the only thing i can come up with there yeah i don't know i just it's one of those things it's like what why would she want that to be a surprise like you know what i mean like especially given what he has to do like right. you know in terms of what he talks about that's something you should give your friend a head up, heads up on because you know you know what he went through like if he has to talk about that like, that's not cool to just spring on somebody. So if that was her mindset, that was kind of shitty in its own way. But <laughs> anyways, let's, we can move on from that. I just was like, man, it could have took two extra seconds to save a lot of situations, like you said. Right. And I think it could have been the fact of maybe, like, Hermione didn't necessarily want to commit yet because she didn't know if what she was planning was actually going to come through despite someone, you know, taking their word on it. So that could be the case, but I think it was just she was just so stoked she had to get out of there. That's <laughs> what it was. Okay, you're coming, right? See you later. Peace. <laughs> Peace. <Got it. laughs> Talk to you later. Uh, next thing I had is, of course, 
you know, Harry, right, he's asking Ron if he can come, and Ron says he can't come because Angelina wants a full day of training practice um, with the Quidditch team. Uh, and he goes, I can't come into Hogsmeade at all. Angelina wants a full day of training like it's going to help. We're the worst team I've ever seen. You should see Lopper and Kirk. Is it Looper and Kirk? L-O-P-E-R-K-I-R-K-E. How do I say yeah. their names? Yeah, I think it's Jack Sloper. It's a S- I think it's uh, Sloper and Kirk. Gotcha. My apologies, guys. <laughs> you know, I'm not the best with names. I would be the coach on the field and be like, Lopper, <laughs> Kirk guy. <laughs> Get over here, Kirk guy. <laughs> we got some practicing to do. Anyway, so Loper and Kirk. Is that how I pronounce that? I, I'm pretty sure there's an S in front of it. Like, I think it's Sloper. I think it's Jack Sloper. Sloper, Sloper. You. Okay, sorry. Sloper and Kirk. Uh, oh, I'd be the terrible coach. Um, <laughs> he goes, they're pathetic, even worse than I am. He heaved a great sigh. I don't know why Angelino uh, won't just let me resign. And then that's when, you know, Harry kind of stu- shoots back at him. It's because you're good when you're on... You're on um, when you're on form said harry irritably and that's on page 556 but it just goes to show like we saw we got a little glimpse uh <laughs> last episode about ron's not the best <laughs> he is not the best and now that you have ron talking trash about two people that's not a good sign like if ron is able to talk about you yeah, like you're pretty much just uh, that's like the record um, for most scores that's ever been scored in football uh, back in the uh, John Heisman days. Quick fact here is Georgia Tech had John Heisman as a coach, and the team they played against was already like a, a nobody team for like their first game. You know, they play someone that's nobodies, and like the whole team got mono, so they were pulling people off the bench to play for the other squad beat them 222 to nothing so basically that's what the quidditch team is for gryffindor right now they're just pulling people off the stands to play so uh and it's funny too because what you you, you said there too is like uh with when you were on talking terrible about sloper and kirk he even says like they're pathetic even worse than i am and like we all know how bad ron is so he's saying they're worse than him they, like you said, man, they, they're not exactly putting the A team out there. <laughs> it's, it's bad, man. It's bad. It is not. Uh, that's like one of those years where like it's over before you get started. Like after uh, Harry, Fred, and George were gone, like you have three superstars. Like you just lost your quarterback and your stud wide receivers. Like you're done, man. You're done. It's over. But are they, though? But are they? That's the real question. Yeah, are because they? Because right? we. <laughs> yes. Who would have thought? So I thought there's. <laughs> yeah. Um, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and then from here, if it's cool with you, what I'll do, I'll just take it up to the point. Um, you know, Harry and Cho are kind of on their little date ski, and then I'll let you take it from there. Where, uh, where works for you that you want me to stop? I don't want to take it too far. That works, man. That That's cool? perfect. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'll just start right here on 556 because it reminded me honestly of like remember like high school dates right I guess if you would like take a girl out to the theater or you go out to eat or something 
I feel like everyone and their mom and dad was like, oh, this person's taking out this person. Like, everyone has to run their mouth, like, about everything. So it's, like, huge news the next day, right? So taking it from here, so she was waiting for him a little to the side of the oak front doors, looking very pretty with her hair tied back in a long ponytail. Harry's feet seemed to be too big for his body as he walked toward her. And he was suddenly horribly aware of his arms and how stupid they looked swinging at his sides. Hi, said Cho slightly breathlessly. Hi, said Harry. They stared at each other for a moment. Then Harry said, well, er, uh, shall we go then? Oh, yes. They joined the queue of people being signed out by Filch, occasionally catching each other's eye and grinning shiftily, but not talking to each other. Harry was relieved when they reached the fresh air, finding it easier to walk along in silence than just stand there looking awkward. It was a freeze. It was a fresh, breezy sort of day as they passed the Quidditch Stadium. Harry glimpsed Ron and Ginny skimming over their stands and felt as horrible a pang that he was not up there with them. You really miss it, don't you? said Cho. He looked around and saw her watching him. Yeah, sighed Harry, I do. Remember the first time we played against each other in the third year, she asked him? Yeah, said Harry, grinning. You kept blocking me. And Wood told you not to be a gentleman and knock me off the broom if you had to, said Cho, smiling reminiscently. I heard he got taken on by pride of portry. portry. Is that right? Nah, it was Puddlemore United. I saw him at the World Cup last year. Oh, I saw you there too, remember? We were on the same campsite. It was really good, wasn't it? The subject of Quidditch World Cup carried them all the way down the drive out through the gates. Harry could hardly believe how easy it was to talk to her, no more difficult, in fact, than talking to Ron or Hermione. And he was just starting to feel confident and cheerful when a large gang of Slytherin girls passed them, including Pansy Parkinson. Potter and Chang! screeched Pansy to a chorus of snide giggles. Er, Chang, I don't think you're of much taste. At least Diggory was good-looking. They sped up, talking and shrieking in a pointed fashion, with many exaggerated glances back at Harry and Cho, leaving an embarrassed silence in their wake. Harry, could you think of nothing else to say about Quidditch and Cho, slightly flushed, uh, was watching her feet. So, where'd you want to go? Harry asked as they entered Hogsmeade. The high street was full of students ambling up and down, peering into the shop windows and messing about together on the pavement. Oh, I, I don't mind, said Cho, shrugging. Um, shall we just have a look in the shops or something? They wandered to a dur Dervis and Bangs. A large poster had been stuck up in the window and a few hogs meters were looking at it. They moved aside when Harry and Cho approached Harry, found himself staring once more at the ten pictures of the escaped Death Eaters. The posters, by order of the Ministry of Magic, offered a thousand galleons reward to any witch or wizard, which information relating to the recapture of any of the convicts pictured. It's funny, isn't it? Said Cho in a low voice, also gazing up at the pictures of the Death Eaters. Remember when the that serious black escaped and there were Dementors all over Hogsmeade looking for him, and now ten Death Eaters are on the loose and there aren't Dementors anywhere? Yeah, said Harry, tearing his eyes away from Bellatrix Lestrange's face to glance up and down the high street. Yeah, it is weird. 
He was not sorry that there were no Dementors nearby, but now he came to think of it, their absence was highly significant. They had not only let the Death Eaters escape, they were not bothering to look for them. It looked as though they were really outside Ministry of Control now. The ten Death Eaters were staring out of every shop window he and Cho passed. It stared to rain as they passed Screevenshaft's cold, heavy drops of water that kept hitting Harry's face in the back of his neck. Um, do you want to get coffee? said Cho tentatively, as the rain began to fall more heavily. Yeah, all right, said Harry, looking around. Where? Oh, there's a really nice place just up here. Haven't you heard of Madame Puttyfoot's? She said brightly. She led him up a side road and into a small tea shop that Harry had never noticed before. It was cramped, steamy little place, where everything seemed to have been decorated with frills or bows. Harry was reminded unpleasantly of Umbridge's office. Cute, isn't it? said Cho happily. Uh, yeah, said Harry untruthfully. Look, she decorated it for Valentine's Day, said Cho, indicating a number of golden cherubs and were hovering over each of the small circular tables, occasionally throwing pink confetti, confetti over the occupants. Ah, they sat down at the last remaining table, which were situated in the steaming window, steamy window. Roger Davis and the Ravenclaw Quidditch captain was sitting about a foot and a half away with a pretty blonde girl. They were holding hands. The sight made Harry feel uncomfortable, particularly when looking around the tea shop. He saw that it was full of nothing but couples, all of them holding hands. Perhaps Cho would expect him to hold her hand. What can I get you, my dears? said Madame Puttyfoot, a very stout woman with a shiny black bun squeezing between their table and Roger Davies with great difficulty. Two coffees, please, said Cho. In time, it took for their coffees to arrive. Roger Davies and his girlfriend started kissing over the sugar bowl. Harry wished they wouldn't. He felt that Davies was setting a standard uh, with which Cho would soon expect him to compete. He felt his face growing hot and tired staring out of the window, but it so steamed up that he could barely see the street outside. To postpone the moment, moment when he had to look at Cho, he stared up at the ceiling through examining the paintwork and received a handful of confetti in the face from their hovering cherub. After a few more pale, painful minutes, Cho mentioned umbrage. Harry seized on the subject with relief, and they passed a few happy moments abusing her. But the subject had already been so thoroughly canvassed during DA meetings, it did not last very long. Silence fell again. Harry was very conscious of the slurping no noises coming from the table next door and cast widely around for any for something else to say. Uh, listen, do you want to come with me to the three broomsticks at lunchtime? I'm meeting Hermione Granger there. Cho raised her eyebrows. You're meeting Hermione Granger today? Yeah, well, she asked me to, so I thought I would. Do you want to come with me? She said it wouldn't matter if you did. Oh, well, that was nice of her. But Cho did not sound as though she thought it was nice at all. On the contrary, her tone was cold, and all of a sudden she looked rather forbidding. A few more mo minutes passed in total silence, Harry drifting his coffee so fast that he would soon need a fresh cup. Next door, Roger Davies and his girlfriend seemed glued together by the lips. Cho's hand was lying on the table beside her coffee, and Harry was feeling a mounting pressure to take hold of it. Just do it, he, he told himself, as a fount of mingled panic and excitement surged up inside his chest. Just reach out and grab it. 
Amazing how much more difficult it was to extend his arm 12 inches and touch her hand than to snatch a speeding stitch from a snitch from midair. But just as he moved his hand forward, Cho took her, hers off the table. She was now watching Roger Davies kissing his girlfriend with a mildly interesting expression. He asked me out, you know, she said in a quiet voice, a couple of weeks ago, Roger. I turned him down, though. Harry, who had grabbed the sugar bowl to excuse his sudden lunging move it, movement across the table, could not think of why she was telling him this. If she wished she were sitting at a table next door, being heart, heartily kissed by Roger Davies, why had she agreed to come out with him? He said nothing. Their cherub threw another handful of confetti over them. Some of it landed in the last cold dregs of coffee Harry had been about to drink. I came here with Cedric last year, said Cho, and the second or so it took for him to take in what she had said. Harry's insides had become glacial. He could not believe she wanted to talk about Cedric now, while kissing couples surrounded them and a chair floated over their heads. Cho's voice was rather higher when they spoke again. I've been meaning to ask you for ages. Did Cedric, did he m mention me at all before he died? This was the very last subject on earth Harry wanted to discuss, and least of all would show. Well, no, he said quietly. There there wasn't time for him to say anything. Um, so do you, do you see a lot of Quidditch in the holidays? You support the tornadoes, right? His voice sounded falsely bright and cheery. To his horror, he saw that her eyes were swimming with tears again, just as they had been after the last DA meeting before Christmas. Look, he said desperately, leaning in so that nobody else could overhear. Let's not talk about Cedric right now. Let's talk about something else. But this apparently was quite the wrong thing to say. I thought, she said, tears spattering down onto the table. I thought you'd understand. I need to talk about it. Surely you need to talk about it, too. I mean, you saw it happen, didn't you? Everything was going nightmarishly wrong. Roger Davies' girlfriend had even unglued herself to look around at Cho crying. Well, I haven't talked about it, Harry said in a whisper to Ron and Hermione, but... Oh, you talked to Hermione Granger? She said shrilly, her face now shining with tears and several more kissing couples broke apart to stare. But you won't talk to me? Perhaps it would be best if we just... We just paid. You, you went up and met up with Hermione Granger, like you obviously want to. Harry stared at her, utterly bewildered, as she seized a frilly napkin and dabbed as her shining face with it. Cho, he said weakly, wishing Roger would seize his girlfriend and start kissing her again to stop her goggling at him and Cho. Go on and leave, she said, now crying into the napkin. I don't know why you asked me out in the first place if you're going to make arrangements to meet other girls right in front of me. How many are you meeting after Hermione? It's not like that said Harry, and he was so relieved at finally understanding what she was annoyed about that he laughed. But she realized a split second too late was a mistake. Cho sprang to her feet. The whole tea room was quiet, and everybody was watching them now. I'll see you around, Harry, she said dramatically and hiccuping slightly. She dashed to the door, wrenched it open, and hurried off into the pouring rain. Cho! Harry called after her, but the door had already swung shut behind her with a tuneful tinkle. There was a total silence within the tea shop. Every eye was on upon Harry. He threw a galleon down on the table, shook pink confetti out of his eyes, and followed Cho out the door. 
It was raining hard now, and she was nowhere to be seen. He simply did not understand what had happened. Half an hour ago, they were they had been getting along fine. Women, he muttered angrily, sloshing down the rain-washed street with his hand in his pockets. What did she want to talk about Cedric for anyways? Why does she always want to drag up a subject that makes her act like a, uh, like a human hosepipe? He turned right and broke into a splashy run, and within minutes he was turning into the doorway of the three broomsticks. He knew he was too early to meet Hermione, but he thought it likely there would be someone in there with whom he could spend the intervening time. He shook his wet hair out of his eyes and looked around. Hagrid was sitting alone in the corner, looking morose. Didn't go well, man. <laughs> Bad news bears. Well, it did not. <laughs> it's like, you know, and I, I even wrote in my own notes here, like, after all that buildup of since year three, like, it was kind of like a big letdown of their very first date. And like I said, because of Hermione not explaining what she was there to do, if she just explained that, Harry could have explained that to Cho, then they both would have been happy because Cho would have got the explanation, not to give anything away that what we're just about to get into, Cho would have got the story that she wanted, and Harry would have met up with Hermione. He would have been able to do it perfectly if Hermione just like, just took the extra five seconds to explain why she needed to meet Harry at the Three Broomsticks at that time. It just so, went so wrong so fast. Sorry not terrible. to interrupt you. But. I did. I mean, it really did. But here's the thing too is like Harry he, he's got no self-esteem. Like his self-esteem is trash. It was like bad. He, he walks bad. in and gets nervous because he sees like a bunch of couples sitting down and like some are kissing him. He's like, "Oh no, I don't know what I should do. What should he expect?" Like, dude, just like have a good time, man. Like it, like don't get it. He's up inside his own head. He's got no self-esteem. I get it. It's his first date, but like man, it didn't need to go that bad. Both of them didn't handle the situation well at all. And that's kind of like almost the beginning of the end for them in a way. So, guys, way. <laughs> I'll say this for all the guys out there. So, I mean, even if you're not attractive, like if you have self esteem, you're fine. Like, that's the thing. I feel like if you put all this pressure on yourself, that's when all that stuff, everything goes wrong. Like, if you just relax and have a good time and enjoy the other person's company, that's what it's about. But I feel like they had so much thoughts in their head. It's like he didn't know what it, he was afraid to grab her hand. He's like, take it. Do I just take it? Dude, stop like talking in your head. Like one, it's almost like he was trying to make the move to grab it because he wanted to so badly just to compete with Roger Davies. So it it was like, I can't even like it shouldn't even be like, oh, should I grab her hand? Should I not? Like, it should have just been like, well, if that moment comes, like, you just don't think about it, and that's what you do. Like, he was thinking about every little detail the whole time. And the Roger Davies thing, it reminded me of when I was a kid. Uh, I, You know, you, we all do, like, stupid stuff when we were a kid. Don't worry. I was actually on the spectating end on this, but I saw this, like, I think I was with my buddy Chris Shedpelsky when... We were, like, in third grade, and we get dropped off at the movie theaters. And this couple, they must have been, like, probably in high school in front of us on, like, the third row. Just kept, like, smooching in front of us. I can't even remember what we were watching because I was in elementary school. And then Chris tried to throw Twizzlers at him. 
<laughs> I was like, dude. And he's like, come on. And this was back, you know, you're like 12, 11 years old. Still remember this to this day. And his mom just dropped us off. Two little asshole kids at the moment. You know, I used to try to cause the trouble, right, when I was that age. He was like, come on, man. It'll be fun. Just throw it. Just throw it. And it was just like the hand thing. He was like, just do it. So, of course, like... Chris throws one, so then you got us pelting Twizzlers at these high schoolers. But hey, you know, we were probably the karma in acting on them because they were probably doing something they shouldn't have been doing if mom and dad found out. But that's exactly what it made me think of was like, one Roger Davies, he shouldn't have been in that awkward situation. Like, why are you in public in a coffee shop? Go to a club or something, man. If you're going to do that, you take yourself on down to the to the Hogwarts hoedown. <laughs> Sorry, the Hogwarts throwdown, I guess is what I would say. <laughs> no derogatory comments here, but, you know, uh, loosen up those buttons in the club if you want to do that, but you're not going to be doing that in a coffee shop. Like, that's just... Imagine if I went into the Starbucks uh, with some girl uh, and was just like... Or, like, the girlfriend or whoever it is, and you just start going at it in front of all the employees and the workers. That is not cool. <laughs> not cool. But at the same time, I agree with you 100%. Harry's got to step up his game because he... I hate to use this word, but Harry, you're really sounding like a little bitch. <laughs> Excuse my like, language. Here's why I didn't have a problem with Roger Davies and his girlfriend. It's like, because everybody else in the coffee shop was doing the same thing. It's like yeah. Harry and Cho that weren't doing it. They're the, they're the weird ones, because Harry doesn't... He has no... I don't want to say game and sound dumb, but like he's got... It's like, this is his very first date, whatever. We'll give, we'll give him a pass, but... Man, uh, it couldn't have gone much worse than it went. Yeah, <laughs> so man. it's all you, brother. It's all yeah. Good, let's go man. ahead and and take it on to the next spot here. With we just said meeting up with Hagrid and the three broomsticks. Like, uh, he's got fresh cuts and bruises on his face again. Like he's kind of like like you said, he was looking morose and like he was almost like introspective. He's like, I've always told people, Harry, it's <laughs> just you, me, and you, man. <laughs> like he just, <laughs> you know, he's he's uh, obviously having a rough rough go of it because think about it he's on probation he's worried he's going to lose his job he's got a secret that he's been keeping from everybody you know for the foreshadow of the cuts and bruises on his face so it's like man poor Hager can't catch a break and so he's drinking his sorrows away but drown anyways get, can I say something real quick sorry <laughs> yeah, I don't want to yeah. interrupt you just a quick comment on that it's like uh, this reminds me of when I was in college and I was 20 years old and I used to play on this sports team actually in college you're going to laugh I played uh, on the ultimate frisbee team because you know that's back when i wasn't big enough to play football in college you know like unfortunately you got to be a lot bigger than i was so i was like you know skinny and sleek i guess that's what i'm gonna do right so i wound up going for the ultimate uh, frisbee team so i played that but it was cool we got to travel but we went and played actually over mardi gras uh we played uh, lsu which and then drove to New Orleans and Mardi Gras, and I wasn't 21 yet, and I still remember this kid on the team, this guy, Sean, I was like, well, man, like, how am I going to go? Like, I'm not 21, and he was like, yeah, man, if I was just you, I would just get a six-pack and drown my sorrow. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and I feel like this is Hagrid right now, like, Hagrid, on Valentine's Day, like, uh, you know, 
Olympia's not there. He couldn't close the deal with Madame Maxine. He's getting beat up by these things, which we'll find out later, right? You know, he's about to lose his job. Like, he just buys, you know, hit me again, Hike. <laughs> Over at the bartender. Give me another pint. Put some stank on it. <laughs> so you're just drowning his sorrows. Yeah, Harry, me and you, man. You're just going to be just like me one day, Harry. And meanwhile, Harry's like, oh, shit. Like, I really got to rethink my priorities here. Back to you, man. <laughs> so to get past the Haggard part, going into, like, from page 565 to 569, I'll just bullet point this because what really happens here is Hermione set up the meeting so that Harry could give his account of the events that happened when Voldemort returned. And Rita Skeeter would write it, and Luna's father would publish it in his paper, The Quibbler. That's like the main gist of everything that happened. So the person that Hermione wrote that letter to when she swung her bag on her shoulder when Chase kind of started us off today, that's who she was writing to. Remember, she knows that Rita Skeeter is an unregistered animagus, meaning she can kind of ruin Rita's life by exposing her. So Rita kind of is blackmailed into doing this. And... We know the Daily Prophet is not going to publish this story because they think Harry's a liar. They spent all summer and all year trying to convince them, like, you know, Dumbledore's a crackpot and Harry's, you know, losing his marbles, right? So they, they, that, the next best thing is to have someone who's on Harry's side in Luna and her father, he's the editor of The Quibbler. So now, you know, the, the, the biggest hurdle they have to overcome here is that everyone kind of thinks of the Quibbler as a joke. Like, they post, a, they, they publish a bunch of, like, nonsense about things that don't really exist. And and so that's going to be their next hurdle. But long story short, that's what the whole meeting was about. And this is what, you know, going back to if Hermione just took those extra five seconds, if she tells Harry, hey, I think I got Rita Skeeter uh, uh, to do a, a piece on you for you to give your side of the story. I'm going to try to see if Luna's dad will publish it. That's what I'm trying to, like, put it all together. Can you meet me? It took me, what, five seconds to say all that, right? Now Harry has an idea of what it is. So if Cho, like, brings it up, she's like, hey, Cho, you know what? I'm actually going to go meet Hermione and Rita Skeeter, and I'm, I'm going to give this story that you want to hear. You want to hear about what happened to Cedric in the graveyard. I'm actually going to tell that story. So come with me. You know, you'll be able to hear that. We can still spend the day together, and I can get my obligation to Hermione out of the way, right? Like, that's all that needed to happen if Hermione took five extra seconds out of her day. But she didn't, <laughs> so now she ruined a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> Anyways. Almost, sorry, real um, quick. Uh, I just want yeah. to say real quick. It's almost like it wasn't meant to be. Like, it went down so fast. Yeah. It's like, you know, when people just aren't meant to be. Like, they had this whole buildup, and within literally an hour, like, it all just goes to shit. <laughs> like, all the work Gary's done for all these months, really years, right? Because he's been thinking about her even last year. Uh, when he was in the Triwizard Tournament, and within an hour, it just goes to shit. And, like, <laughs> they do have a point in here, like, you know, it's kind of, like, like, they tried to reconcile a couple times after the big date here, but, like, yeah, it never, it never really <laughs> takes off, you know, it never really takes flight, their little, you know, relationships, so. <laughs> but uh, after they have this meeting with Rita and Luna, and, and Harry gives his account, on page 570, it, this is a, one of a really cool foreshadow that Dean Thomas, he says, he's like, man, can't wait to see what Umbridge thinks for, of you going public. Well, we're about to figure out what Umbridge thinks about it real quick. So uh, one more thing I'll do before I turn it over to Chase and, and, and have him take it from there is on page 571 
I'm going to read from the paragraph here that starts with, oh, I forgot to ask you. Uh, and I'm going to read through about one-third of the page down on 573. So, it says, where we are here, 571. Oh, I forgot to ask you, said Hermione, brightly glancing over at the Ravenclaw table. What happened on your date with Cho? How come you were back so early? Uh, well, it was, said Harry, pulling a dish of rhubarb crumpled towards him and helping himself to seconds. A complete fiasco, now that you mention it. And he told her what happened in Madame Puttyfoot's tea shop. So then, he finished several minutes later, as a final bit of crumble disappeared, she jumps upright and says, I'll see you around, Harry, and runs out of the place. He put his spoon down and looked at Hermione. I mean, what was all that about? What was going on? Hermione glanced over at the back of Cho's head and sighed. Oh, Harry, she said sadly. Well, I'm sorry, but you were a bit tactless. Me? Tactless? <laughs> said Harry, outraged. One minute we were getting on fine. Next minute she was telling me that Roger Davies asked her out and how she used to go and snog Cedric in that stupid tea shop. How was I supposed to feel about that? Well, you see, said Hermione, with a patient air of one explaining that one plus one equals two to an over-emotional toddler, you shouldn't have told her that you wanted to meet me halfway through your date. But, but, sputtered Harry, but you told me to meet you at twelve and bring her along. How was I supposed to do that without telling her? Well, you should have told her differently, said Hermione, still with that maddeningly patient air. You should have said that it was really annoying, that I made you promise to come along to the Three Broomsticks, and you didn't really want to go. You'd much rather spend the whole day with her, but unfortunately you thought you really ought to meet me, and would she please, please come along with you, and hopefully you'd be able to get away more quickly. And it might have been a good idea to mention how ugly you think I am too, Hermione added as an afterthought. But I don't think you're ugly, said Harry bemused. Hermione laughed. Harry, you're worse than Ron. Well, no you're not. <laughs> she sighed as Ron himself came stumping into the hall, splattered with mud, looking grumpy. Look, you upset Cho when you said you're going to meet me, so she tried to make you jealous. It was her way of trying to find out how much you liked her. Is that what she was doing? Said Harry as Ron dropped onto the bench beside them and pulled every dish within reach towards himself. Well, wouldn't it have been easier if she just asked me whether I liked her better than you? Girls often don't ask questions like that, said Hermione. Well, they should, said Harry forcefully. Then I could have just told her I fancy her, and she wouldn't have to get herself all worked up about Cedric dying. I'm not saying what she did was sensible, said Hermione, as Ginny joined them, just as muddy as Ron, and looking equally disgruntled. I'm just trying to make you see how she was feeling at the time. You should write a book, Ron told Hermione as he cut up his potatoes, translating mad things girls do so boys can understand them. So that's why I wanted to kind of put that there. So they're kind of trying to convince Hermione into writing a book to translate girls' emotions. You know, I, I get it at that point. Like, I think we all kind of see Harry's mistake in the situation. But the fact is, is that girls do kind of low-key test guys in certain ways that it's like, what, what good do you think is going to come out with this? Like she said, like Cho tried to make Harry jealous to see how much he liked her. Like, how could one think that that's going to be beneficial? Like, if someone's trying to make me jealous <laughs> to see if I like them, like, if you're trying to tell me all these things, like, I'm not going to be more into you. I'm going to be less into you. I'm going to be like, oh, well, then go ahead and have your fun. Like, I'm not going to stay in your way. Like, why would you sit there and, and try to do that? Like, you know, it's just so funny how girls and guys, you know, they come together in, in life, but, like, they think so differently. The way a guy's brain works and the way a girl's brain works is just wildly different and it's just funny how so such opposites 
end up, you know, attracting and combining like lifelong relationships. Hopefully, if you get lucky and you, you meet the right person, but it's just one of those things. Like it just makes me laugh. But um, quick comment. One on more that thing. I, I, sorry. Yeah. I, go ahead. Yeah. Talk about it. You. I was yeah. just gonna say, like, one. I feel like so many guys would buy that just to get in like a women's heads. But uh, do you remember that movie, uh, What Women Want, with like Mel Gibson? But he could like uh, basically he was he became like a womanizer because he got gifted this power of he could read their minds as they were like thinking it and he would be in this girl's house and she was like thinking to herself oh i bet he's such a piece of shit blah 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 blah. and then he responded and he was like i bet i know i'm sorry i know i come off as a piece of shit but blah 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 blah. (laughs) it was all like to get with these girls so i feel like so many people would buy that (laughs) um and you said into you it made me think of that ariana grande song Baby, come grab me up, and I'll let you on it. <laughs> Crushing it, yeah? Yeah, man, I'll let you get back to it, though. But, yeah, I think that book would sell out. I Yeah, I'd probably be the first one to buy that book. Be first one buy it up pre-order there. it. Pre-order it at the Barnes & Noble. That's why I'm a member. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got that uh, Hermione Granger bestseller book there. Mm-hmm. All right. But, uh, yeah, yeah the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I'm going to go into it. a little bit about my friends Fred and George here. Because uh, they have a little foreshadow of what they're about to do later on, which is one of my favorite moments in this book. But uh, anyways, we're going to go ahead and read this last sentence and, and go on here. So, come on, Jenny. Well, no, come on. Jenny's not bad, said George fairly, sitting down next to Fred. Actually, I don't know how she got so good, seeing as we never let her play with us. Well, she's been breaking into your broom shed in the garden since the age of six and taking each of your brooms out in turn when you weren't looking, said Hermione from behind her tottering pile of ancient rune books. Oh, said George, looking mildly impressed. Well, that'd explain it. So <laughs> that was funny, like, that Jenny kind of has, like, the Fred and George mindset. Like, she's kind of like a rule breaker, you know? You never knew, like, what you were going to get because, you know, you've got Bill, who was kind of the cool guy, Charlie, great at Quidditch, Percy, kind of the snuck-up snob, Fred and George is the troublemakers, Ron is kind of like the misfit, doesn't really, like, you know, do much of anything. So we didn't know what we were going to get with Jenny, but it's kind of like she's around the Fred and George type of uh, characteristics and personality type. So thought that was pretty cool. And then, uh, so this is, now we're about to go ahead and, and talk about what Fred and George are about to do. He said, you know, Quidditch was about the only thing in this place worth staying for. And Hermione, Hermione cast a stern look. You've got exams coming. Told you already. We're not fussed about newts, said Fred. The snack boxes are ready to roll. We found out how to get rid of those boils. Just a couple of drops of Myrtle's essence sorts them. Lee actually put us onto it. And George yawned widely and looked out disconsolately at the cloudy sky. I don't even know if I want to watch this match. If Zachariah Smith beats us, I might have to kill it myself. <laughs> so, anyways, though, talking about where he mentions that they're not fussed about taking the exams. He's really foreshadowing, you know, they've already mentioned that they didn't think they were going to come back for this year as it was when we talked about this last episode. Now they're kind of building up to, you know, are Fred and George really going to finish their final year at Hogwarts? Well, we're going to find out, right? And then, so, in page 575, talking a little bit about the Quidditch and kind of just putting in bolts to get the main points out of there. Gryffindor got embarrassed by Hufflepuff in the Quidditch match. Ron failed to save 14 goals. Jack Sloper swung his bat, missed the bludger, hit Angelina in the face with his own bat, and Kirk almost fell backwards off his broom, afraid of Zachariah Smith. But Ginny caught the snitch, 
so the score didn't look too bad. It was 240 to 230, but in reality, they got their ass kicked. It was almost like the Quidditch World Cup, where Ireland was beating the hell out of Bulgaria, but like Crumb's like, you know what, I'm just going to get the snitch to make it look like it was a close game. That's yeah. like almost exactly what happened. That's exactly what Ginny did. She she made it, so the final score, 240 to 230, looks pretty good, but in reality, they got their ass kicked. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's, that's the next part of it, too, is that you know we learned Angelina and Alicia... The two of their superb chasers, they're in their final year at Hogwarts. And, you know, Ginny tells Harry that she's going to try out for Chaser next year when Angelina and Alicia graduate. So that's a little bit of a foreshadow about what next year's Quidditch team may look like. And uh, with that, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Chase and he'll take us from there. Yeah, man. Um, and you, uh, just a, a little bit adding on to that at that point, you know, Ginny basically tells. Harry, uh, that Angelina won't let Ron resign. And this just, uh, this little quote here just says how bad it was for Ron. Uh, it says, uh, Angelina still won't let him resign, Jenny said. As though reading Harry's mind, she says she knows he's got it in him. Harry liked Angelina for faith, she was showing Ron, but at the same time, he thought it would really be kinder to let him leave the team. <laughs> like, that's bad. That is bad. Yeah. That's when you know it's bad. So, um, uh, you know, and, and at this point on page 576, um, Ron had uh, left the pitch, like, you know, their practice. And after he had uh, left, <laughs> the chorus was booming of, Weasley is our king, your favorite song. <laughs> uh, and it was being, sl- uh, you know, sung by a gusto of Slytherins, as described as, who were new favorites to win the cup. So, like, you just had, you have the, usually the defending champions, right? Like, the defending champions are always the favorites, and within like four weeks into the season like now like they're just like they've gone from first to last like just garbage like so bad um and then i do have here your boy fred is like kind of an ass making fun of ron and he says i haven't gotten the heart to take the mickey out of him even said fred looking over at ron's crumpled figure mind you when he missed the 14th he made wild motions with his arms as though doing an upright doggy paddle. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> just imagine like a dog trying to tread water to stay above and all these guaffles going past Ron. <laughs> he just doesn't know what to do. He can't stay on either side, <laughs> much less barely stay on the broom, man. And uh, they just go, well, I'll save it for practices, eh? <laughs> It's just so bad. I feel so bad for him right now. Like, it's just, it's embarrassing. It's awful. Like, when Ron's now, like, your second best player, (laughs) besides Jenny, you got to... You got a problem. Well, I guess Katie Bell's still on the team. All of them are, like, no, they're all good. Like, Ron and Jack Sloper and Kirk are the worst. Like, they're all good. They're a good team. Like, uh, Angelina's a great chaser. Katie Bell's a good chaser. Alicia Spinnett's a good chaser. Ginny seems to be okay at being a seeker. It's just Ron that sucks, and the two beaters suck. Yeah. So, (laughs) it's just, uh, yeah. 
Oh, sorry. No, no, no. After you, I was just saying uh, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was oh, just... dude, I'm just going to say it's tough to win when literally if there's seven players on the team and three of them are terrible, it's not you're not going to do much winning. That's all I was going to say. Oh, yeah. No, and I was just feeding off that because I thought you made a really good point. Uh, I was just going to say even worse is they're probably like, like, so, you know, a keeper isn't the most important position. But it's pretty important. Like, it's kind of like a goalie in hockey or like a free safety in football. Like, yeah, you have your linebackers that are in the quarterback that are probably like top of the top, right? But at the same time, like, you're a very important part. Like, if you don't do your job, like, it's like your chances of winning, like, have gone from like 75% down to like 25. Like, it's going to be rare. And it, it's just bad. <laughs> it was bad, man. Um, from here. Uh, I uh, and then I'll turn it back over to you after this one. But I just put like in in a bullet point, and I'll read you this little synopsis here of how bad it said. Harry was frustrated watching the sidelines because he he felt he could have won the game, and he was like thinking about Jenny because she's just it's really like she's really good. She's just like she's learning, so she's learning, and that's part of it. And it it said. Uh, Harry got into bed thinking about the match. It had been immensely frustrating watching from the sidelines. He was quite impressed by Jenny's performance, but he felt that if he had been playing, he could have caught the snitch sooner. There had been a moment when it had been fluttering near Kirk's ankle. If she hadn't hesitated, she might have been able to scrape a win for Gryffindor. <laughs> so, like, it's like... And I can't even imagine, like, how frustrating... That must be, he's like, what are you doing? Like, it's right there. Just grab it. And then it says, uh, Umbridge was rose below Harry and Hermione. Once or twice, she had turned squatly on her seat to look at him. Her wide toad's mouth stretched in what he thought had been a gloating smile. The memory of it made him feel hot with anger as he lay there in the dark. After a few minutes, however, he remembered that he was supposed to be emptying his mind of all the emotion before he slept, as Snape kept instructing him at the end of every occlumency lesson. <laughs> so it's like, uh, and it's kind of like, if you're Harry, it's like you have such a passion for the team. It's, it's, it's literally like if someone, it's not as bad as like miss the snap, but it was literally right there next to his ankle and she could have grabbed it and she just didn't see it. So he's like, what are you doing? Like, do this. Uh, and at the same time, like Harry has so much garbage on his mind right now. First, he like blows it with show. Now, like he's still got to go get talk shit about by Snape as he's got to deal with this like his most hated professor and at the same time like the team he's been most passionate about this whole time that he has all the ties to that he's put his literally everything on the line for like it's just like falling apart in front of him like this is not his year man this is not his year uh, and back over to you Jay Nelly Honestly, that's a great way to kind of sum up this whole book is that it was not Harry's year in like really any way, shape, or form. But uh, yeah, to kind of take that from there, because you were talking about how he had to empty his mind at night. So I'm actually going to read the dream paragraph here on 577. He dreamed that Neville and Professor Sprout were waltzing around the room of requirement while Professor McGonagall played the bagpipes. He watched them happily for a while, then decided to go and find the other members of the DA. But when he left the room, he found himself facing... Not the tapestry of Barnabas the Barmy, but a torch burning in its bracket on a stone wall. 
He turned his head slowly to the left, and there at the far end of the windowless passage was a plain black door. He walked toward it with a, sen- with a sense of mounting excitement. He had the strangest feeling that this time he was going to get lucky at last and find the way to open it. He was feet from it and saw with a leap of excitement that there was a glowing strip of faint blue light down the right-hand side. The door is ajar. He stretched out his hand to push it wide, and Ron gave a loud, rasping, genuine snore, and Harry awoke abruptly with his right hand stretched out in front of him in the darkness to open a door that was 100 miles away. So, he did, like, this is a big foreshadow again. Like, this, this dream has been a reoccurring foreshadow, right? But this is the first time that the door has been open. It's been closed this whole... This, now, we're starting to progress a little bit further. Now, he, he knows where he's at. He knows it's the Department of Mysteries. Now, the door he's been dreaming of is now cracked open slightly. And so, it's almost a gradual getting further and further into what happens later on. So, uh... On page 578, we uh, we find out that just because you know it's not there's no sense in me reading all of this to give the bullet points on it. Uh, Harry's story was published in the March edition of the Quibbler, and it arrives at breakfast followed by letters from readers, which were like a mix of good and bad responses, right? Like some people, you know, still condemning Harry, telling him he's a nasty little liar, attention-seeking, you know. <laughs> you know, brat and all that. And then someone was like, hey, you know what? You've kind of made me think about this a little bit differently. Hey, I think I might believe you. Like, So good news is, is now Harry's story's out there. And for the people who were kind of on the fence, it seems like he's kind of swayed them to his side a little bit. Obviously, the people who were staunch and like not believing him from the start, they're not changing their mind yet. But, you know, it's still, he's getting more, he's getting more and more traction for his version of the events that happened versus you know the daily prophets where people are starting to realize what they've been saying doesn't make sense especially with like the 10 escaped death eaters now so that was really cool uh they got he's got in the march edition the reason why i like it being in the march edition my birthday is in march shout out me birthday coming up here shortly but anyways (laughs) uh yeah in page 580 professor umbridge she actually approaches the gryffindor table and asks Harry, like, you know, who, who are all these letters from, you know? So I'm actually going to read on page 580 uh, through a little bit through 583 to talk about Umbridge and uh, the consequences of this. So, what's going on here? Said a falsely sweet girlish voice. Harry looked up with his hands full of envelopes. Professor Umbridge was standing behind Fred and Luna, her bulging toad eyes scanning the mess of owls and letters on the table in front of Harry. Behind her, he saw many of the students watching them avidly. "'Why have you got all these letters, Mr. Potter?' she asked slowly. "'Is that a crime now?' said Fred loudly. "'Getting mail?' "'Be careful, Mr. Weasley, or I shall have to put you in detention,' said Professor Umbridge. "'Well, Mr. Potter?' Harry hesitated, but he did not see how he could keep what he had done quietly. It was surely only a matter of time before a copy of the Quibbler came to Umbridge's attention. "'People have written to me because I gave an interview,' said Harry." about what happened to me last June. And for some reason, he glanced up at the staff table as he said this. He had the strangest feeling that Dumbledore had been watching him a second before. But when he looked, Dumbledore seemed to be absorbed in conversation with Professor Flitwick. An interview, repeated Umbridge, her voice thinner and higher than ever. What do you mean? I mean, a reporter asked me questions and I answered them, Harry, said Harry. Here. And he threw the copy of the quibbler at her. She caught it and stared down at the cover. Her pale, doughy face turned an ugly, patchy violet. When did you do this? She asked, her voice trembling slightly. Last Hogsmeade weekend, said Harry. 
She looked up in incandescent with rage, the magazine sh shaking in her stubby fingers. There will be no more Hogsmeade trips for you, Mr. Potter, she whispered. How dare you? How could you? She took a deep breath. I've tried again and again to teach you not to tell lies. The message apparently has still not sunk in. 50 points from Gryffindor in another weeks of detention. She stalked away, clutching the quibbler to her chest, the eyes of many students following her. By mid-morning, the enormous sign had been posted up all over the school, not just on house notice boards, but in the corridors and classrooms too. By order of the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts, any student found in possession of the magazine The Quibbler will be expelled. The above is in accordance with Educational Decree Number 27, signed Dolores Jane Umbridge, High Inquisitor of Hogwarts. And for some reason, every time Harry, uh, Hermione caught sight of one of these signs, she beamed with pleasure. What exactly are you happy about, Harry asked her. Oh, Harry, don't you see? Hermione breathed. If she could have done one thing to make absolutely sure that every single person in the school read her interview, it was banning it. And it seemed that Hermione was quite right. By the end of that day, though Harry had not seen so much as a corner of the quibbler anywhere in the school, the whole place seemed to be quoting the interview at each other. Harry heard them whispering about it as they queued up classes, discussing it over lunch in the back of lessons while Hermione even reported that every occupant of the cubicles in the girls' toilets had been talking about it when she nipped in there before ancient runes. And then they spotted me. And obviously they know I know you, so they were bombarding me with questions, Hermione told Harry, her eyes shining. And Harry, I think they believe you. I really do. I think you finally got them convinced. Meanwhile, Professor Umbridge was stalking the school, stopping students at random and demanding that they turn out their books and pockets. Harry knew that she was looking for copies of the Quibbler, but the students were several steps ahead of her. The pages carrying Harry's interview had been bewitched to resemble extracts from textbooks if anyone but themselves read it, or else magically wiped blank until they wanted to peruse it again. Soon, it seemed that every single person in the school had read it. The teachers were, of course, forbidden from mentioning the interview by Educational Decree 26, but they found ways to express their feelings about it all the same. Professor Sprout awarded Gryffindor 20 points when Harry passed her a watering can. A beaming Professor Flitwick pressed a box of squeaking sugar mice on him at the end of Charms and said, Shh! and hurried away. Professor Trelawney broke into a hysterical sob during divination and announced to the Starro class that, and to a very disappointing umbrage, that Harry was not going to suffer an early death after all, but live to a ripe old age, become Minister of Magic, and have 12 children. But what made Harry the happiest was Cho catching up with him as he was hurrying along to Transfiguration the next day. Before he knew what had happened, her hand was in his, and she was breathing in his ear, I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry. That interview was so brave, it made me cry. He was sorry to hear that she had shed even more tears over it, but very glad they were on speaking terms again, and even more pleased when she gave him a swift kiss on the cheek, and then hurried off again. And unbelievably, no sooner than he had arrived outside of Transfigurations, than something good, just as good happened. Seamus stepped out of the queue to face him. I just wanted to say, he mumbled, squinting at Harry's left knee, that I believe you. I've sent a copy of that magazine to me, ma'am. If anything more was needed to complete Harry's happiness, it was Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle's reactions. He saw them with their heads together later that afternoon in the library. Together, with a weedy-looking boy Hermione whispered that was called Theodore Knott. 
They looked around at Harry as he browsed the shelves for the books needed on partial vanishment, and Goyle cracked his knuckles threateningly, and Malfoy whispered something undoubtedly malevolent to Crabbe. Harry knew perfectly well why they were acting like this. He had named all of their fathers as Death Eaters. And the best bit is, whispered Hermione gleefully as they uh, left the library, they can't contradict you because they can't admit they read the article. To cap it all, Luna told them over dinner that no, cap, no copy of the Quibbler ever sold out faster. Dad's reprinting, she told Harry, her eyes popping excitedly. He can't believe it. He says people seem even more interested in this than the crumpled horn Snorkax. And so, with that, I'll turn it back over to Chase, but big stuff here. So now, it's out and about. Umbridge tried to ban the magazine. Everyone's now reading it. They all get in Harry's version of events. Like I said, Cho tries to reconcile in a little bit, right? She put her hand in Harry's, kissed him on the cheek, said she's sorry. So, like, they're not quite dead yet, right? Their relationship. <laughs> then Seamus kind of apologizes. Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle are mad. No copy of the magazine ever sold out faster. Things are good in this moment. And with that, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, man. Uh, things are good for now, but the the moment will always be in the back of his mind. <laughs> oh, terrible. But yeah, things are good for now. Uh, so from here, on page 584, the first paragraph, basically Fred and George, uh, what they did was they put an enlargement charm on the quibbler that came out, which is really awesome, and they hung it on the wall. Um, and they <laughs> mentioned the minute they call... You know, the ministry ministry are morons and they eat dung umbrage. So just to read that quick paragraph here, it says, Harry was a hero in the Gryffindor common room that night. Daring Freddie and George had put an enlargement charm on the front cover of the quibbler and hung it on the wall so that Harry's giant head gazed down upon the proceedings, occasionally saying things like the ministry are morons and eat dung umbrage in a booming voice. Hermione did not find this very amusing. She said it interfered with her concentration and ended up going to bed early out of irritation. Harry had to admit that the poster was not quite as funny after an hour or two, especially when the talking spell had started to wear off, so that it merely shouted disconnected words like dung and umbrage at more and more frequent intervals in a progressively higher voice. In fact, it started to make his headache and his scar began prickling uncomfortably again to disappointed moans from the many people who were sitting around him, asking him to relive his interview for the upteenth time. He announced that he too needed an early night. And I thought that was so Fred and George. Like, I think Fred and George are smart enough to where they probably knew that shit was going to break. <laughs> it would just annoy everybody. <laughs> but, uh... I thought it was great, man. And and then the next big part I do have here is... Uh, God, your boys Fred and George are awesome. Um, next big part I have is Harry has this dream. And I'm just going to read that dream real quick, and then I'll turn it right back over to you. Uh, so this is on page 584, starting on the second paragraph here. Uh, and it says, So the dormitory was empty when he reached it. He rested his forehead for a moment against the cool glass of the window beside his bed. It felt soothing against his scar. Then he undressed and got into bed, wishing his headache would go away. He also felt slightly sick. He rolled over onto his side, closed his eyes, and fell asleep almost at once. He was standing in a dark, curtained room, lit by a single branch of candles. His hands were clenched on the back of a chair in front of him. 
They were long-fingered and white, as though they had not seen sunlight for years and looked like large, pale spiders against the dark velvet of the chair. Beyond the chair, in a pool of light cast upon the floor by the candles, knelt a man in black robes. "'I have been badly advised, it seems,' said Harry in a high, cold voice and that pulsed with anger. "'Master, I crave your pardon,' croaked the man kneeling on the floor." The back of his head glimmered in the candlelight. He seemed to be trembling. "'I do not blame you, Rockwood,' said Harry in that cold, cruel voice. He relinquished his grip upon the chair and walked around it, closer to the man cowering upon the floor until he stood directly over him in the darkness, looking down from a far greater height than usual. "'You are sure of your facts, Rockwood?' asked Harry. "'Yes, my lord. Yes. I used to work in the department after—' After all, Avery told me Bode would be able to remove it. Bode can never have taken it, Master. Bode would have known he could not. Undoubtedly, that is why he fought so hard against Malfoy's imperious curse. Stand up, Rockwood, whispered Harry. The kneeling man almost fell over in his haste to obey. His face was pockmarked. The scar, scars were thrown into relief by the candlelight. He remained a little stooped when standing, as though halfway through a, a bow, and he darted terrified looks up at Harry's face. "'You have done well to tell me this,' said Harry. "'Very well. I have wasted months on fruitless schemes, it seems. But no matter. We begin again from now. You have Lord Voldemort's gratitude, Rockwood.' "'My lord.' "'Yes, my lord.' gasped Rockwood, his voice hoarse with relief. I shall need your help. I shall need all the information you can give me. Of course, my lord. Of course. Anything. Very well. You may go. Send Avery to me. Rockwood scurried backward, bowing and disappearing through a door. Left alone in the dark room, Harry turned towards the wall. A cracked, age-spotted mirror hung on the wall in the shadows. Harry moved toward it. His reflection grew larger and clearer in the darkness, a face whiter than a skull, red eyes with slits for pupils. No! What? yelled a voice nearby. Harry flailed around madly, became entangled in the hangings, and fell out of his bed. For a few seconds, he did not know where he was. He was convinced that he was about to see, see the white, skull-like face looming to him out of the dark again. Then Ron's voice spoke, very near to him. Will you stop acting like a maniac and I can't get you out of here? Ron wrenched the hangings apart. Harry stared up at him in the moonlight as he lay flat on his back, his scar searing with pain. Ron looked as though he had just been getting ready for bed. One arm was out of his robes. And uh, with that, I'll turn it right back over to you, man. Awesome. I mean, this is I'm, I'm picking it up basically the next word right from there just because... <laughs> yeah. We get a little bit of a, an explanation from Harry about what he's seen and, and kind of the significance of it, right? So mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll go ahead and say, Has someone been attacked again? Asked Ron, pulling Harry roughly to his feet. Is it Dad? Is it that snake? No. Everyone's fine, gasped Harry, whose forehead felt as though it was on fire again. Well, Avery isn't. He's in trouble. He gave him the wrong information. He's really angry. Harry groaned and, sh and sank, shaking onto his bed, rubbing a scar. But Rookwood's going to help him now, and he's on the right track again. What are you talking about, said Ron, sounding scared. Do you mean, 
Did you just see you-know-who? I was you-know-who, said Harry. And he stretched out on his hands in the darkness and held them up to his face to check that they were no longer deathly white and long-fingered. He was with Rookwood. He's one of the Death Eaters who escaped from Azkaban. Remember? Rookwood just told him that Bode couldn't have done it. Done what? Remove something. He said that Bode would have known he couldn't have done it. Bode was under the Imperious Curse. I think he said Malfoy's dad put it on him. Bode was uh, bewitched to remove something, Ron said. But Harry, that's got to be the weapon. Harry finished the sentence for him. I know. The dormitory uh, door opened again. And Seamus and Dean came in. Harry swung his legs back into bed. He didn't want to look as though anything odd had just happened. Seeing as Seamus had just only stopped thinking Harry was a nutter. Did you say, murmured Ron, putting his head close to Harry's on the pretense of helping himself to water from the jug beside the table, that you were, you know who? Yeah, said Harry quietly. And Ron took an unnecessary large cup of water. Harry saw it spill over his chin onto his chest. Harry, he said as Dean and Seamus clattered around noisily, pulling out the robes. You've got to tell... I haven't got to tell anyone, said Harry shortly. I wouldn't have seen it all if I could do a clemency. I'm supposed to have learned how to shut this stuff out. That's what they want. By they, he meant Dumbledore. He got back into bed and rolled over onto his side with his back to Ron, and after a while he heard Ron mattress creak as he lay back down too. His scar began to burn. He bit down hard on his pillow to stop himself from making a noise, and somewhere he knew Avery was being punished. So Harry and Ron raided until break next morning to tell Hermione exactly what happened. They wanted to be absolutely sure that they could not be overheard. So standing in their usual corner of the cool and breezy courtyard, Harry told her every detail of the dream he could remember. When he had finished, she had said nothing at all for a few minutes, but stared with a kind of painful intensity at Fred and George, who were both headless and selling their magical hats from under the cloaks on the side of the yard. So that's why they killed him, she said quietly, withdrawing her gaze from Fred and George at last. When Bode tried to steal the weapon, something funny happened to him. I think there must be defensive spells on it, or around it, to stop people from touching it. That's why he was in St. Mungo's. His brain had gone all funny and he couldn't talk. But remember what the healer told us. He was recovering. And they couldn't risk him getting better, could they? I mean, the shock of whatever happened when he touched the weapon probably made the Imperious Curse lift. Once he'd got his voice back, he'd explain what he'd been doing, wouldn't he? And they would have known he'd been sent to steal the weapon. Of course it would have been easy for Lucius Malfoy to put the curse on him. Never out of the ministry, is he? He was even hanging around that day I had my hearing, said Harry. In the... Hang on, he said slowly. He was in the Department of Mysteries corridor that day. Your dad said he was probably trying to sneak down and find out what happened in my hearing. But what if... Sturgis, gasped Hermione, looking thunderstruck. Sorry, said Ron, looking bewildered. Sturgis Podmore, said Hermione breathlessly, arrested for trying to get through a door. Lucius Malfoy got him too. I bet he did it the day you saw him there, Harry. Sturgis said Mad High Moody... Uh, Sturgis had Mad Eye Moody's invisibility cloak, right? So what if he had a standing guard by the door, invisible, and Malfoy heard him move, or guessed he was there, or just did the Imperial Curse on the off chance that a guard was there? So when Sturgis had the next opportunity, probably when it was his turn on guard duty again, he tried to get into the department to steal a weapon for Voldemort. Ron, be quiet. But he got caught and sent to Azkaban. She gazed at Harry, and now Rookwood's told Voldemort how to get the weapon. I didn't hear all the conversation, but that's what it sounded like. Rookwood used to work there. Maybe Voldemort will send Rookwood to do it.
Hermione nodded and apparently still lost in thought. Then quite abruptly, she said, But you shouldn't have seen this at all, Harry. What? He said, taken aback. You're supposed to be learning how to close your mind to this sort of thing, said Hermione, suddenly stern. I know I am, but, well, I think we should just try to figure out, and just try and forget what you saw, said Hermione firmly, and you ought to put a bit more effort on your accumulancy from now on. So that's where I wanted to stop that part there. Big things that we need to talk about. We now know about Sturgis Podmore. Well, it's a good guess, right, that Malfoy was down in the corridor that day when Harry had his hearing, and he could have very, put, very well put Sturgis Podmore under the Imperius Curse, and Sturgis Podmore, member of the Order of the Phoenix, that's why he didn't show up for those, you know, duties that Moody was getting upset with him about. But he got sent to Azkaban because he was trying to get through a door he had no authorization for. Well, now we, we kind of figure out what happened to Bode. Malfoy, he, they, like Voldemort admitted in that dream that Malfoy put the Imperious Curse on him. So now we know exactly what happened to Bode. He was under the Imperious Curse. He tried to touch whatever it was and his brain got addled and that's why they had to kill him. So... We're starting to learn a lot more about what's going on. We're, they're trying to put the pieces together, and they're not even in the Order of the Phoenix. Like These are three teenagers, you know, kind of playing detective here, but they're kind of on a very closer track than maybe even the Order might be. We don't know what they've got going on because we don't kind of see from their perspective. But three 15-year-olds, you know, they kind of just uncovered Voldemort's plans a little bit. You know, a lot of it has to do with Harry's visions and Voldemort's dreams, but, you know, Hermione kind of deducing the pieces with Sturgis Podmore and then talking about how, you know, what happened with Bode and why they had to kill him off. Like, they're, they're, they're doing some big work, and they, they definitely have some good careers ahead of them if they choose to. Don't want to get into what they choose to do outside of Hogwarts afterwards, but there's a, there's a place for people who think very, very strategically. And this is something that shouldn't be understated. Just think about, you know, the ministry themselves. Their, their main job, you know, is to keep the magical community safe. And they are already letting everyone down by just denying the fact that Voldemort has even returned. Not only has Harry gone on record with the Quibbler and told his version of events and got that in front of people's faces, he's also, like, seeing a day-to-day, -day, like, inside plan of what Voldemort is kind of doing, too, so... <laughs> Just some kind of cool stuff I wanted to bring up there. But with that, man, I'll, t I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah, man. No, that's, I mean, this is where it gets really detailed. And, uh, you know, like, this is where we're kind of getting into the story time with Chase and Josh. But, like, you can't avoid these details because they're so important to the storyline. Um, we have to cover them. Uh, and now, actually, it's funny. I'm picking up not too far after where you left off. Because of what it's going to do is it leads into a clemency, and Harry has this vision again uh, after he uses the shield charm. So just to read a little bit here, and then I'm going to send it right on back to you, my man. Um, so actually, and this is going to kick off by just reiterating how, like I said, this has not been Harry's year. <laughs> like, it has not been Harry's year. Like, what a... Like, I would probably start to label this a bad day. Like, for all this to be happening, like, in a week's time or whatever. Like, just just not good. Um, so it says, So Harry was so angry with her that he did not talk to her for the rest of the day, referring to Hermione. 
which proved to be another bad one. When people were not discussing the escaped Death Eaters in the corridors today, they were laughing at Gryffindor's abysmal performance in their match against Hufflepuff. The Slytherins were saying, Weasling is our king! <laughs> Weasley is our king! So loudly and frequently that by sundown, Filch had banned it from the corridors out of sheer irritation. The week did not improve as it progressed. Harry received two more Ds in potions, was still on tenterhooks that Hagrid might get the sack, and could not stop himself from dwelling on the dream in which he had seen Voldemort, though he did not bring it up with Ron and Hermione again, because he didn't want another didn't want another telling off from Hermione. He wished very much that he could have talked to Sirius about it, but that was out of the question, uh, so he tried to push the matter to the back of his mind. Unfortunately, the back of his mind was no longer the secure place it had once been. Get up, Potter. A couple weeks after his dream of Rockwood, Harry was to be found yet again kneeling on the floor of Snape's office, trying to clear his head. He had just been forced yet again to relive a stream of a very early memories, and he had not realized he had still had, most of them concerning humiliations. Dudley and his gang had inflicted upon him in primary school. That last memory, said Snape, what was it? I don't know, said Harry, getting wearily to his feet. He was finding it increasingly difficult to disentangle separate memories from the rush of images and sound that Snape kept calling forth. You mean the one where my cousin tried to make me stand in the toilet? No, said Snape softly. I mean the one concerning a man kneeling in the middle of the darkened room. It's nothing, said Harry. Snape's dark eyes bored into Harry's. Remembering what Snape had said about eye contact being crucial to legilimency, Harry blinked and looked away. How did that man in that room come to be inside your head, Potter? said Snape. It, said Harry, looking everywhere but at Snape. It was just a dream I had. A dream, repeated Snape. There was a pause during which Harry stared fixedly at the large dread, large dead frog suspended in a purple liquid in its jar. "'You do know why we are here, don't you, Potter?' said Snape in a low, dangerous voice. "'You do know why I am giving up my evenings to do this tedious job.' "'Yes,' said Harry stiffly. "'Remind me why we are here, Potter.' "'So I can learn occlumency,' said Harry, now glaring at the dead eel. "'Correct, Potter.' "'And dim though you may be,' Harry looked back at Snape, hating him. I would have thought that after two months' worth of lessons, you might have made some progress. How many other dreams have you had about the dark? How many other dreams about the Dark Lord have you had? Just that one, lied Harry. Perhaps, said Snape, his dark, cold eyes narrowingly slightly. Perhaps you actually enjoy having these visions and dreams, Potter. Maybe they make you feel special. Important. No, they don't, said Harry, his jaw set and his fingers clenched tightly around the handle of his wand. That is just as well, Potter, said Snape coldly, because you are neither special nor important, and it is not up to you to find out what the Dark Lord is saying to his Death Eaters. No, that's your job, isn't it? Harry shot at him. He had not meant to say it had burst out of him in temper. For a long moment they stared at each other, Harry convinced he had gone too far. But there was a curious, almost satisfied expression on Snape's face when he answered. Yes, Potter, he said, his eyes glinting. That is my job. 
Now, if you are ready, we will start again. He raised his wand. One, two, three. Legilimens! A hundred Dementors were swooping towards Harry across the lake in the grounds. He screwed up his face in concentration. They were coming closer. He could see the dark holes beneath the hoods, yet he could also see Snape standing in front of him. His eyes fixed upon Harry's face muttering under his breath, and somehow Snape was growing closer and the Dementors were growing fainter. Harry raised his wand. Protego! Snape staggered. His wand flew upward away from Harry. And suddenly, Harry's mind was teeming with memories that were not his. A hook-nosed man was shouting at a cowering woman while a small, dark-haired boy cried in a corner. A greasy-haired teenager sat alone in a dark bedroom, pointing his wand at the ceiling, shooting down flies. A girl was laughing as a scrawny boy tried to mount a bucking broomstick. Enough! Harry felt as though he had been pushed hard in his chest. He took several staggering steps backward, hit some of the shelves covering Snape's walls and heard something crack. Snape was shaking slightly, very white in the face. The back of Harry's robes went damp. One of the jars behind him had broken when he fell against it. The pickled, slimy thing within was swirling in its draining, draining potion. Reparo, his Snape, and the jar sealed itself once more. Well, Potter, that was certainly an improvement, panting slightly. Snape straightened the pensieve in which he again stored some of his thoughts before starting the lesson, almost as though checking that they were still there. I don't remember telling you to use a shield charm, but there is no doubt that it was effective. Harry did not speak. He felt that to say anything might be dangerous. He was sure he had just broken into Snape's memories, that he had just seen scenes from Snape's childhood, and it was unnerving to think that the crying little boy who had watched his parents shouting was actually standing in front of him with such loathing in his eyes. Let's try again, shall we? said Snape. Harry felt a thrill of dread. He was about to pay for what he had just happened. He was sure of it. They moved back into position with the desk between them, Harry feeling he was going to find it much harder to empty his mind this time. On the count of three, then, said Snape, raising his wand once more. One. Two. Harry did not have time to gather himself together and attempt to clear his mind, for Snape had already cried, Legilimens! He was hurtling along the corridor toward the Department of Mysteries, past the blank stone walls, past the torches. The plain black door was growing even larger. He was moving so fast that he was going to collide with it. He was feet from it, and he could see that chink of faint blue light again. The door had flown open. He was, though it at last, inside a black-walled, black-floored circular room lit with blue flame candles, and there were more doors all around him. He needed to go on. But which door ought he to take? Potter! Harry opened his eyes. He was flat on his back again with no memory of having gotten there. He was also panting as though he really had run the length of the Department of Mysteries corridor, really had sprinted through the black door and found the circular room. "'Explain yourself,' said Snape, who was standing over him, looking furious. "'I, I don't know what happened,' said Harry, truthfully, standing up. There was a lump of the back of his head from where he had hit the ground, and he felt feverish. I have never seen, seen that before. I mean, I told you I've dreamed about the door, but it's never opened before.' You are not working hard enough. For some reason, Snape seemed even angrier 
than he had done two minutes before when Harry had seen into his own memories. You are lazy and sloppy, Potter. It is small wonder that the Dark Lord... Can you tell me something, sir? said Harry, firing up again. Why do you call Voldemort the Dark Lord? I've only ever heard Death Eaters call him that. Snape opened his mouth in a snarl, and a woman screamed from somewhere outside the room. Snape's head jerked upward. He was gazing at the ceiling. What the... he muttered. Harry could hear a muffled commotion coming from what he thought might be the entrance hall. Snape looked around at him, frowning. Did you see anything unusual on your way down here, Potter? Harry shook his head, somewhere above them. The woman screamed again. Snape strode to his office door, his wand still held at the ready, and swept out of sight. Harry hesitated for a moment, and then followed. The screams were indeed coming from the entrance hall. They grew louder as Harry ran toward the stone steps, leading up the dungeons. When he reached the top, he found the entrance hall packed. Students had come flooding of the great hall where the dinner was still in progress to see what was going on. Others had crammed themselves onto the marble staircase. Harry pushed forward through the knot of tall Slytherins and saw the onlookers had formed a great ring, some of them looking shocked, others even frightened. Professor McGonagall was directly opposite of Harry on the other side of the hall. She looked as though what she was watching made her feel faintly sick. And with that all... Yeah, so what I got to say about that is it's, one, it's a little bit of eye-opening, I guess I would say, right before I turn it back over to you, is you're starting to kind of get a little glimpse of Snape's past here. Like, one thing we've talked about before is it's easy to see as someone is just a bad guy or they have bad intentions, but just from a little glimpse Harry had, you really start to see, you know, Snape's really been through a lot in his life. And uh, things we do find out later, you really do see. Um, and, you know, and then this is the first time he's had the, divi the vision of the Department of Mysteries, but actually, and opened the door. So he's had the vision before, but he's never actually opened the door. So with that, I'll go ahead and turn it back over to you, man. Yeah, and to, to kind of bounce off what you're saying there before I continue on, it's like, <laughs> like I said before, it was kind of like a slow roll of to where it's at. He saw the door cracked in that dream he had. You know, it was cracked open. Mm -hmm. He went to push it and Ron snored and he woke up. Well, now that door is fully open. Right. On top of that, not only do we get a quick sneak peek into Snape's childhood memories, they're only like three and they're a quick flash. Like, mm -hmm. they weren't very important, but they do kind of tell like a story of um, a kid who didn't grow up the best, right? And just right. a quick flash that we see. And we'll see more of it later on. But uh, the biggest thing I took away from here. And it was like one of the bigger foreshadows of this book, of this whole franchise, really, is when you like you were talking about on page five hundred and ninety-one. When uh, this this is what Snape says. I'm going to reread it just because it's one of the bigger foreshadows in yeah. the in the series. That is just as well, Potter said Snape coldly, because you are neither special nor important, and it is not up to you to find out what the Dark Lord is saying to his Death Eaters. No, that's your job, isn't it? Harry shot at him, and he had not meant to say it. It burst out of him in temper, and for a long moment they stared at each other, but Harry, convinced he had gone too far, there was a curious, almost satisfied expression on Snape's face when he answered. Yes, Potter, he said, his eyes glinting. That is my job. Mm -hmm. So, like, that, that's a big <laughs> that little yeah. section there, man. Keep, keep your eyes peeled and paying attention to that, folks, because... You know, it's funny we're going back through that. How many things lead up to the events that transpire in the series? But that's that's a bigger one. 
quick so, uh, sorry yeah. quick comment right before you get started just it's one thing that always sticks out to me it's almost like like so i wouldn't say the books ever start out slow because they really like don't start out slow i would say but if you look at like sorcerer's stone and chamber of secrets right like it's like you have these events and when they happen it's like they escalate but it's more like they're there for to be action-packed versus like really moments that mean more later on as far as foreshadowing and that sort of thing like you know tom riddle's diary and that sort of thing like before you have the flying car and all this kind of stuff leading up to it and they're getting into the polyjuice potion like things that are really cool to see but like these moments like this and how we're really getting into harry's visions and stuff it's like now that we've gotten into the bigger books like i really think goblet of fire is the one that really kicked it off things just escalate so quickly within a matter matter of a few chapters now like it's like there's details you can't put bullet points in because it's like so important to what happens later on and you drove a really good point there um when you read that line about foreshadowing quick question to you and we won't give anything away to the audiences do you think by this point do you think Snape knows the full plan, if that makes sense. I don't know about the full plan because of what happens at the end of this book, and mm-hmm. like, you know, I think again, we're not gonna give anything away yet. Right. I think he kind of has a passing knowledge of what's going on currently. I don't think, I don't even think Voldemort divulges his plans to anybody period you know what i mean i think he kind of keeps everything close to the vest right so i don't think that anyone really knows everything i think it's possible they might have an idea of you know what's happening it's so tough to say without giving things away (laughs) yeah like i don't want to give anything away sorry not to interrupt you i just wanted you, uh, your take on this real quick I just uh, don't know if he that. knows the like the, the answer in a short way I don't know if he knows the full plan I think he knows certain things I think that it frustrates Snape when Harry is still having these these things because it can kind of mess with what certain plans are on the order side of stuff Got I'll it. say so I, that's my thought process. I, that's why I'll leave it at. I don't. Yeah, I don't really know how else to say it without giving anything away. Yeah. But yeah. No, that 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 was my thoughts too. Just that was a. Uh, you brought up a really interesting point for like where. You know, because kind of looking outside of time, because you know we know the full story. Our audience sure. members, uh, a lot of them don't. A lot of them don't. Um, but it's interesting looking outside of time, like at what exact point this is that maybe we don't get the full side of things so yeah which leaving all that out because that's much later on but back to you my man i'll let you take it away and close us out of this chapter yeah that's exactly what i'm gonna do i'm actually gonna take it from here and read through the end of the chapter because this (laughs) is one of the really big moments that you know umbridge flexes her muscles uh to another degree that we haven't yet seen Mm -hmm. so here we go Professor Trelawney was standing in the middle of the entrance hall with her wand in one hand and an empty sherry bottle in the other, looking utterly mad. Her hair was sticking up on end. Her glasses were so lopsided that one eye was magnified more than the other. Her innumerable shawls and scarves were trailing haphazardly from her shoulders, 
giving the impression that she was falling apart at the seams. Two large trunks lay on the floor beside her, one of them upside down, and it looked very much as though it had been thrown down the stairs after her. Professor Trelawney was staring, apparently terrified at something Harry could not see, but seemed to be standing at the foot of the stairs. No, she shrieked. No, this cannot be happening. It cannot. I refuse to accept it. You didn't realize this was coming? said a high girlish voice sounding callously amused, and Harry, moving slightly to his right, saw that Trelawney's terrifying vision was none other than Professor Umbridge. Incapable though you are of predicting even tomorrow's weather, you surely must have realized that your pitiful performance during my inspections and lack of any improvement would make it inevitable that you would be sacked, yes? You can't, howled Professor Trelawney, tears streaming down her face behind her enormous lens. You can't sack me. I've been here 16 years. Hogwarts is my home. It was your home, said Professor Umbridge, and Harry was revolted to see the enjoyment stretching her toad-like face as she watched Professor Trelawney sink, sobbing uncontrollably onto one of her trunks, until an hour ago when the Minister of Magic countersigned the order for your dismissal. Now, kindly remove yourself from this hall. You are embarrassing us. But she stood and watched with an expression of gloating enjoyment as Professor Trelawney shuddered and moaned, rocking backwards and forwards on her trunk in paroxysms of grief. Harry heard a sob to his left and looked around. Lavender and Parvati were both crying silently in their arms around each other. Then he heard footsteps. Professor McGonagall had broken away from the spectators, marched straight up to Professor Trelawney, and was patting her firmly on the back while withdrawing a large handkerchief from within her robes. There, there, Sybil, calm down. Blow your nose on this. It's not as bad as you think now. You're not going to have to leave Hogwarts. Oh, really, Professor McGonagall, said Umbridge in a deadly voice, taking a few steps forward. And your authority for that statement is? That would be mine, said a deep voice. The oak front doors had swung open, and students beside them scuttled out of the way as Dumbledore appeared in the entrance. What had he been doing out in the grounds, Harry could not imagine. But there was something impressive about the sight of him framing the doorway against the oddly misty night. Leaving the doors wide behind him, he strode forward through the circle of onlookers towards the place where Professor Trelawney sat, tear-stained and trembling upon her trunk, Professor McGonagall alongside her. "'Yours, Professor Dumbledore,' said Umbridge with a singularly unpleasant little laugh. "'I'm afraid you do not understand the position. "'I have here,' she pulled out a parchment scroll from within her robes, "'an order of dismissal, signed by myself and the Minister of Magic. "'Under the terms of Educational Decree Number 23, and the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts, I have the power to inspect, place upon probation, and sack any teacher I feel is not performing up to the standard required by the Ministry of Magic. And I have decided that Professor Trelawney is not up to scratch. I have dismissed her. To Harry's very great surprise, Dumbledore continued to smile. He looked down at Professor Trelawney, who was still sobbing and choking on her trunk, and said, You are quite right, of course, Professor Umbridge. As High Inquisitor, you have every right to desist my teachers. You do not, however, have the authority to send them away from this castle. I am afraid, he said, he went on with a courteous little bow, that the power to do that still resides with the headmaster, and it is my wish that Professor Trelawney continue to live at Hogwarts. At this, Professor Trelawney gave a wild little laugh, in which a hiccup was barely hidden. No! 
No, I'll, I'll go, Dumbledore. I shall leave Hogwarts and seek my fortune elsewhere. No, said Dumbledore sharply. It is my wish that you remain, Sybil. He turned to Professor McGonagall. Might I ask you to escort Sybil back upstairs, Professor McGonagall? Of course, said McGonagall. Up you get, Sybil. Professor Sprout came hurrying forward out of the crowd and grabbed Professor Trelawney's other arm. Together they guided her past Umbridge and up the marble staircase. Professor Philip went scurrying after them. His wand held up before him. He squeaked, Locomotor trunks! And Professor Trelawney's luggage rose in the air and proceeded up the staircase after her. Professor Flitwick bringing up the rear. Professor Umbridge was standing stock still, staring at Dumbledore, who continued to smile benignly. And what, she said in a whisper that nevertheless carried all around the entrance hall, are you going to do with her once I appoint a new divination teacher who needs her lodgings? Oh, that won't be a problem, said Dumbledore pleasantly. You see, I have already found us a new divination teacher, and he would prefer lodgings on the ground floor. You found, said Umbridge shrilly, you found, might I remind you, Dumbledore, that Educational Decree 22, the Ministry has the right to appoint a suitable candidate if, and only if, the Headmaster is unable to find one, said Dumbledore, and I am happy to say on this occasion, I have succeeded. May I introduce you? He turned to face the open front doors through which the night mist was now drifting. Harry had heard hooves. There was a shock murmur around the hall, and those nearest to the door hastily moved even further backwards, some of them tripping over their haste to clear a path for the newcomer. And through the mist came a face Harry had seen once before on a dark, dangerous night in the Forbidden Forest. White blonde hair and astonishing blue eyes, the head and torso of a man joined to the palomino body of a horse. This is Ferenz, said Dumbledore happily to a thunderstruck umbrage. I think you'll find him suitable. And that closes out that chapter. A couple things here, right? Umbridge has now kind of taken her authority to the next level and flexed her muscles and fired one of Dumbledore's staff members, Professor Trelawney. Mm -hmm. This is kind of puts Dumbledore in a weird paradox here because Professor Trelawney in the wrong hands can actually be very dangerous because even though she makes a lot of phony predictions, we know for a fact, as of what's already been stated previously in the books, that she has made two prophecies that were actually really true prophecies right so right. if she ever goes into that kind of state again and the wrong hands that could be catastrophic to the magical world as we know it so Dumbledore had to think quickly so he had to keep Professor Trelawney at Hogwarts while also appointing a new teacher so what he did it was almost like a double backhand to Umbridge he's <laughs> like you can't kick her out of here She's my guest. She will be staying at Hogwarts. And on top of that, I'm appointing a half-breed as a new divination teacher things that you can't stand. Excellent. So he basically slapped her in the face with his amazing ability to stay poised and calm through every situation. Mm -hmm. And it's stuff like this why Chase and I aren't the biggest fans of the character, the, the casting of the new Dumbledore. Unfortunately, the one in the first two movies, he passed away, so there's nothing they could have really done about that. Mm -hmm. But this is kind of the reason why we have an issue with the casting of the quote-unquote new Dumbledore in the films. Because throughout this whole scene that I just read, Dumbledore was quiet, smiling, benignly. Like, he was calm. Didn't have any sort of outrage. And, you know, as we see a lot in the films, he's very, he's very like, shouty and very, like, sharp. And, like, 
you know. So regardless, though, that's kind of where we stand here. And I'll let Chase pick up from where we are now, starting Chapter 27, The Centaur and the Sneak. Yeah, uh, what I was going to say, I mean, I we have nothing against, like, the actor himself. Like, it's the portrayal that I have a problem with. Um, like, why does he sound kind of Austrian at some points? Did you put your name in the goblet of fire? <laughs> like, I, I don't know, man. And I thought I was bad with accents. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we don't do accents anymore on this show. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it's it's not that we have anything against the actor. Just, like, that's not the way Dumbledore's supposed to be. And uh, I feel like here's what I kind of feel like, which correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's me. The way I perceive Dumbledore is very calm. Like we saw the first one, but at the same time, as you're getting into these books, you do see him very stern. So calm, but really stern and stands his ground. So what's, what is, um, I guess sad, I would say, or, um, yeah, sad really is since uh, Richard, I can't remember his last name, but uh, the actor that originally played the first Dumbledore died, you never really got to see the part as it got to later in the books where, you know, you really had, you saw, you know, uh, I guess this is the, um, you know, irony, I guess our pun here, right? Like, (laughs) the one who he always feared, like that side of it. and just another side note, you know, where you said the paradox, that was cool because I watched The Departed the other day. And if y'all have ever seen The Departed with Jack Nicholas, you know, he's the Irish, like he's the mobster, right? And he puts the change in Matt Damon's hand when he's a kid. And he said, you do good in school? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, I did too. We call that a paradox. <laughs> so I, I just thought that was really funny. But actually, the way we're going to do this, I'm just going to send it right back to Josh because this... This is when we're getting into stuff like we really can't cut any of this out. And kind of the way we're going to do this, um, this is when we are getting into a little bit of story time with Chase and Josh. So I'm going to let this is Josh's chapter here. Like this is one of probably one of the most important parts in the book. I have my (laughs) chapter that we'll do a few episodes from now that I feel like is right up there with this as one of the most important parts but this is a very big important part in the book for this really this whole chapter because it all you know it's all like a bridge it all really connects into each other you can't really cut any of this out and then what i'm going to do is because stapes my boy i'll take the next chapter so i'm going to let josh take this whole thing man so just kicking it right back over uh to jay nelly you know my spot on this was i brought up the departed so so you can get past the bagpipes and the bullshit only one of us is a cop here bill <laughs> so uh that's for the uh so all our um young audience members you can watch that when you're 30 <laughs> for all mom and dad out there go check that one out that film's badass i'll turn it back over to jay nelly awesome so some cool things about here, because I, I will take the majority of this chapter, and like I, I, honestly, I will take it its entirety, but the good news is I'm not going to have to read it all the way through. There's going to be bits and pieces that I choose to read until I get to a certain part, and I'll, I will read about 15 pages mm-hmm. to the end of the chapter. So just because, there's, like he said, there's, there's a lot of really important things here and some cool scenes, and it's just stuff that like I wouldn't feel right if we didn't bring to you as an audience, so... Wouldn't do it justice, that's for sure. Exactly. So what I'll start is I'll start by reading the last paragraph on page 600 through 
uh, a certain part on page 602. So I'll read about two pages here to start, and then we'll go from there. So the last sentence or the last paragraph on page 600. The classroom floor had been had become springily mossy, and trees were growing out of it. Their leafy branches fanned across the ceiling and windows so that the room was full of slanting shafts of soft dappled green light. The students who had already arrived here were sitting on the earthy floor with their backs resting at the tree trunks or boulders, arms wrapped around the knees or folded tightly across their chest looking rather nervous. In the middle of the room, where with no trees, stood Ferenz. Harry Potter, he said, holding out a hand when Harry entered. Uh, hi, said Harry, shaking hands with the centaur, who surveyed him unblinkingly through those astonishing blue eyes. He did not smile, but he said, uh, good to see you. And you, the centaur replied, inclining his white blonde head. It was foretold that we would meet again. So that was cool foreshadow there real quick. I, I enjoyed that part of it. But uh, continuing on, Harry noticed that there was the shadow of a hoof-shaped bruise on Ferenz's chest. And as he turned to join the rest of the class upon the floor, he saw they were all looking at him with awe, apparently deeply impressed that he was on speaking terms with Ferenz, whom they seemed to find intimidating. When the door was closed and the last student had sat down upon the tree stump beside the waste paper basket, Ferenz gestured around the room. Professor Dumbledore has kindly arranged this classroom for us, said Ferenz when everyone had settled down, in imitation of my natural habitat. I would have preferred to teach you in the Forbidden Forest, which was, until Monday, my home, but this is not possible. Please, uh, sir, said Profati breathlessly, raising her hand. Why not? We've been in there, right, Hagrid. We're not frightened. It's not a question of your bravery, said Ferenz, but of my position. I can no longer return to the forest. My herd has banished me. Herd, said Lavender in a confused voice, and Harry knew what she was thinking of cows. What? Oh, comprehension dawned on her face. There are more of you, she said, stunned. Did Hagrid breed you like the Thestrals? asked Dean eagerly. And Ferenz turned his head very slowly to face Dean, who seemed to realize at once that he had said something very offensive. I didn't mean... I'm, I'm sorry, he finished in a hushed voice. Centaurs are not the servants or playthings of humans, said Ferenz quietly. There was a pause, and then Pervati raised her hand again. Please, sir, why have the other centaurs banished you? Because I have agreed to work for Professor Dumbledore. They see this as a betrayal of our kind. And Harry remembered how nearly four years ago, the centaur Bane had shouted at friends for allowing Harry to ride safely upon his back, calling him a common mule. He wondered whether it had been Bane who had kicked Ferenz in the chest. So, this is this is the part where like I'll leave that for now. But so remember, I remember in the Sorcerer's Stone, I told you guys there's a big foreshadow with like talking about the alignment of Mars and the skies that Mars is bright tonight. Here we are, four years later. You know, the Ferenz is still around, but his herd is still very anti-human, and them being anti-human really comes into play next episode i'll say <laughs> talking a little bit about that um but i thought it was pretty cool you see that his herd kind of attacked him and we'll learn more about the attacking of friends shortly but uh big big news there just I'll, I'll put that in there for a foreshadow to keep your mind on now on page 602 i'll go ahead and read kind of the last paragraph through there 
through uh, uh, midway through page 603. So, Professor Trelawney did astrology with us, said Parvati excitedly, raising her hand in front of her so that it stuck up in the air as she lay on her back. Mars causes accidents and burns and things like that. And when it makes an angle to Saturn, like now, she drew a right angle in the air above her. That means people will need to be extra careful when handling hot things. That, said Ferenz calmly, is human nonsense. Parvati's hand fell limply to her side. Trivial hurts, tiny human accidents, said Ferenz as his hooves thudded on the moss floor. These are no more of significance than the scurrying of ants to the wide universe and are unaffected by planetary movements. But Professor Trelawney, began Parvati in a hurt and indignant voice, is a human, said Ferenz simply, and is therefore blinkered and fettered by the limitations of your kind. Harry turned his head very slightly to look at Parvati. She looked very offended, as did several people surrounding her. Sybil Trelawney may have seen. I do not know, continued Ferenz, and Harry heard the swishing of his tail again as he walked up and down before them. But she wastes her time in the main on the self-flattering nonsense humans call fortune-telling. I, however, am here to explain the wisdom of centaurs, which is impersonal and impartial. We watch the skies for great tides of evil or change that are sometimes marked there, and it may take ten years to be sure of what we are seeing. And the friends pointed to the red star directly above Harry. In the past decade, the indications have been that wizard kind is living through nothing more than a brief calm between two wars. Mars, bringer of battle, shines brightly above us, suggesting that the fight must break out again soon. How soon, centaurs may attempt to divine by the burning of certain herbs and leaves and by the observations of fume and flame. So, this is big stuff here, because I just mentioned back in Sorcerer's Stone talking about like Mars burns brightly tonight. Well, he's foretelling the next big war between the wizard kind. Like, he's already talking about it. He already, in this very first divination class, kind of has shown more aptitude to the subject than Professor Trelawney, who's been doing it for 16 years teaching these kids. So, very, very interesting there. From there, I'll go ahead and touch on a, a section in page 604. And this kind of... It's when Ferenz gives Harry a warning to give to Hagrid. So let me go ahead and, and jump into that here. Because I think you guys are going to find, with what Hagrid has got going on, the warning is actually pretty fair. So, I'm going to go ahead. It says, Harry Potter, you are a friend of Hagrid's, are you not? Said the centaur. Yes, said Harry. Then give him a warning from me. His attempt is not working. He would do better to abandon it. His attempt is not working, he repeated blankly. And he would be do better to abandon it, said Friends, nodding. I would warn Hagrid myself, but I am banished, and it would be unwise for me to go too near the forest now. Hagrid has troubles enough as it is without a centaur's battle. But what's Hagrid attempting to do, said Harry nervously, and Friends surveyed Harry impassively. Hagrid has recently rendered me a great service said Ferenz, and he has long since earned my respect for the care he shows all living creatures. I shall not betray his secret, but he must be brought to his senses. The attempt is not working. Tell him, Harry Potter. Good day to you. So this kind of leaves us with some questions. What's this attempt? 
What good service did Hagrid render Ferenz? And where does this kind of go from here? Good news is, with the book, it all answers that later on. <laughs> but that's kind of where that section leaves us here. So, on page 605, I'm going to go ahead and, and read from Umbridge Had Continued, uh, all the way through uh, Harry Had No Choice on the same page here. So, Umbridge Had Continued Attending All Care of Magical Creatures Lessons, so it been very difficult to deliver Ferenza's warning to Hagrid. At last, Harry had managed it by pretending he had lost his copy of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Which, guys, that's a cool little line there. That actually ends up being a film in our real life, uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. So, <laughs> just going to point that out quickly. And doubling back after class one day. When he repeated Ferenza's words, Hagrid gazed at him for a moment through his puffy, blackened eyes, apparently taken him back, then seemed to pull himself together. Nice bloke, Ferenza, he said gruffly. But he don't know what he's talking about on this. The attempt's coming on fine. Hagrid, what are you up to? Asked Harry, seri- asked Harry seriously, because you've got to be careful. Umbridge has already sacked Trelawney, and if you ask me, she's on a roll. If you're doing anything you shouldn't be, there's things more important than keeping a job, said Hagrid, though his hands shook slightly as he said this, and a basin full of gnarled droppings crashed to the floor. Don't worry about me, Harry. Just go along now. There's a good lad. And Harry had no choice but to leave Hagrid mopping up all the dung over this floor. But he felt thoroughly dispirited as he trudged back up to the castle. So, now, again, same sort of deal. What's the secret that Hagrid has? It keeps building and building. Page 607. The door of the room of requirement opened, and then closed again. Harry looked around to see who had entered, but there did not seem to be anybody there. It was a few moments before he realized that the people close to the door had fallen silent. Next thing he knew, something was tugging at his robe somewhere near the knee. He looked down and saw, to his very great astonishment, Dobby the house elf peering up at him from beneath his usual eight hats. Hi, Dobby. What is, what's wrong? For the elves' eyes were wide with terror and he was shaking. The members of the DA closest to Harry had fallen silent now. Everybody in the room was watching Dobby. The few Patronuses people had managed to conjure faded away into silver mist, leaving the room much darker than before. Harry Potter, sir, squeaked the elf, trembling from head to, to foot. Harry Potter, sir, Dobby has come to warn you, but the house has been warned not to tell. He ran head first at the wall. Harry, who had some experience of Dobby's habit of self-punishment, made to seize him, but Dobby merely bounced off the stone cushion by his eight hats. Hermione and few of the other girls out squeaks of fear and sympathy. What's happened, Dobby? Harry asked, grabbing the elf's tiny arms and holding him away from anything which he might seek to hurt himself with. Harry Potter. She. She. And Dobby hit himself hard on the nose with his free fist, and Harry sees that too. Who's she, Dobby? But he thought he knew. Surely the only she that could induce such fear in Dobby. The elf looked at him, slightly cross-eyed, and mouthed wordlessly. Umbridge? asked Harry, horrified. Dobby nodded, and then tried to bang his head off Harry's knees, and Harry held him at bay. What about her, Dobby? She hasn't found out about this, about us, about the DA. And he read the answer in the elf's stricken face. His hands held fast by Harry. The elf tried to kick himself, and he fell to the floor. Is she coming? Harry asked quietly. Dobby had let out a howl and began beating his bare feet hard on the floor, Yes, Harry Potter, yes. Harry straightened up, 
looked around at the motionless, terrified people gazing at the thrashing elf. What are you waiting for, Harry bellowed. Run! And they all pelted towards the exit at once, forming a scrum at the door. Then people burst through. Harry could hear them sprinting along the corridors and hoped they had the sense to not and try to make it had the sense not to try and make it all the way to their dormitories. It was only ten to nine. If they had just took refuge in the library or the owlery, which were both nearer, Harry, come on, shrieked Hermione from the center of the knot of people who were now fighting to get out. Harry scooped up Dobby, who was still attempting to do himself serious injury, and ran with the elf in his arms to join the back of the queue. Dobby, this is an order. Get back down to the kitchens with the other house elves, and if she asks you whether you warn me, lie and say no, said Harry, and I forbid you to hurt yourself, he added, and dropping the elf as he made it over the threshold at last, slamming the door behind him. Thank you, Harry Potter, squeaked Dobby, and he streaked off. Harry glanced left and right. The others were all moving so fast that he only caught glimpses of flying heels at either end of the corridors before they vanished. He started to run right, and there was a boy's bathroom up ahead. He could pretend he'd been in there all the time if he could just reach... Ah! Something caught him around the ankles, and he fell spectacularly, skidding along on his front for six feet before coming to a halt. Someone behind him was laughing. He rolled over to his back and saw Malfoy, concealed in a niche beneath an ugly, dragon-shaped vase. Trip Jinx Potter, he said. Hey, Professor, Professor, I've got one. Umbridge came bustling around the far corner, breathless, but wearing a delighted smile. It's him, she said jubilantly at the sight of Harry on the floor. Excellent, Draco. Oh, excellent. Very good. Fifty points to Slytherin. I'll take it from here. Stand up, Potter. And Harry got to his feet, glaring at the pair of them. He had never seen Umbridge look so happy. She seized his arm in a vice-like grip, turned, beamed broadly to Malfoy. You hop along and see if you can round up any more of them, Draco. Tell the others look in the library. Anybody out of breath. Check the bathrooms. Miss Parkinson can do the girls' runs. Off you go. And you, she added in her softest, most dangerous voice as Malfoy walked away, you can come with me to the headmaster's office. And they were at the stone gargoyle within minutes. Harry wondered how many of them had been caught. He thought of Ron and Mrs. Weasley, how he would, she would kill him, and how Hermione would feel if she was expelled before she could take her owls. And it had been Seamus' first meeting. Nell had been getting so good. Fizzing Wisby, sang Umbridge, and the stone gargoyle jumped aside, and the wall split open, and they ascended the moving stone staircase until they reached a polished door with a griffin knocker. But Umbridge did not bother to knock. She strode straight inside, still holding tight to Harry. Alright guys, what happened here? Well, just about as bad a thing as you could imagine. Professor Umbridge found out about the Dumbledore's army, the Defense Against the Dark Arts group. Not only found out about them, found out where to find them, and captured their leader, Harry, like, basically red-handed. Like, they all burst out of the door, and of all the people to catch, they caught Harry. <laughs> so, we're in kind of a pickle here as we enter Dumbledore's office, because we've got a room full of people, and this is really cool, because this is where I'll take it from the end of the chapter, uh, one of the better moments in this book. Very, very cool. Also, like you said, kind of shows Dumbledore's real ability when you kind of annoy him to the point where he says, okay, enough's enough. Right. Like, this is this is kind of good stuff. 
Did you have anything to add between where they got caught by Umbridge and the DA to Dumbledore's office? Did you want to put anything in there? Um, I think you hit it nail on the head. Just a couple things. And then right before that moment, before the rumor requirement, I was just going to say one thing I thought that was really cool that J.K. Rowling did with the details of this book. Uh, remember, uh, Ferenz changed the classroom to classroom 11 on the on the bottom floor because he couldn't get up the ladder. So I thought that was really cool. And then going back to where we are now, I was just going to say, and we'll bring this up in our differences episode, but like where was that entire capture scene in the film just throwing that out there we'll talk about that in the differences episode but that's like and you know i watched the film and it wasn't as bad as the other ones i actually had ranked it decent but like the reason i can't even really rank it was good is because like it like it's just so much it leaves out and the things they do different which we'll talk about that in differences episode but that's just what i was going to say like in this whole scene that goes down of capture there were no slytherins or malfoy anywhere <laughs> in the film and uh the rest is all you man i think uh you should take this one uh take the long road on this one and uh you know finish out the chapter man you got it this one's gonna be fun because it's gonna be 14 pages of straight reading so (laughs) buckle up ladies and gentlemen you're about to get story time with jay and nelly let me put the book here i'll cross my legs and get right on into it all right (laughs) so the office was full of people dumbledore was sitting behind his desk his expression serene the tips of his long fingers together professor mcgonagall stood rigidly beside him her extreme her face extremely tense. Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic, was rocking backwards and forwards on his toes beside the fire, apparently immensely pleased with the situation. Kingsley Shacklebolt, and a tough-looking wizard Harry did not recognize, with very short, wiry hair, were positioned on either side of the door like guards. And the freckled, bespeckled form of Percy Weasley hovered excitedly beside the wall, a quill and a heavy scroll of parchment in his hands, apparently poised to take notes. The portrait of old headmasters and mistresses were not shaming sleep tonight. All of them were watching with what happened below, alert and serious. As Harry entered, a few flitted into neighboring frames and whispered urgently into their neighbor's ears. Harry had pulled himself free of Umbridge's grasp as the door swung shut behind them. Cornelius Fudge was glaring at him with a kind of vicious satisfaction upon his face. Well, he said, well, well, well. And Harry replied with the dirtiest look he could muster. His heart drummed madly inside him, but his brain was oddly cool and clear. He was heading back to the Gryffindor Tower, said Umbridge. There was an indecent excitement in her voice. The same callous pleasure... Harry had heard as he watched Professor Trelawney dissolving with misery in the entrance hall. The Malfoy boy cornered him. Did he? Did he? said Fudge appreciatively. I must remember to tell Lucius. Well, Potter, I expect you know why you're here. And Harry intended to respond with a defiant yes. His mouth had opened and the word was half formed when he caught sight of Dumbledore's face. Dumbledore was not directly looking at Harry. His eyes were fixed upon the point just above his shoulder, but as Harry stared at him, he shook his head a fraction of an inch to each side. 
and Harry changed direction midward. Yeah, no. I beg your pardon, said Fudge. No, said Harry firmly. You don't know why you're here? No, I don't, said Harry. <laughs> and Fudge looked incredulously from Harry to Professor Umbridge. Harry took advantage of his momentary inattention to steal another quick look at Dumbledore, who gave the carp the tiniest of nods and the shadow of a wink. So you have no idea, said Fudge, in a voice positively sagging with sarcasm, why Professor Umbridge has brought you to this office? You are not aware that you have broken any school rules? School rules, said Harry. No. Or ministry decrees, amended Fudge angrily. Not that I'm aware of, said Harry blandly. His heart was still hammering fast. It was almost worth telling these lies to watch Fudge's blood pressure rising. But he could not see how on earth he would get away with them. If someone had tipped off homage about the DA, then he, the leader, might as well be packing his trunks right now. So it's news to you, is it, said Fudge, his voice now thick with anger, that an illegal student organization has been discovered within this school? Yes, it is, said Harry, hoisting an unconvincing look of innocent surprise on his face. I think, Minister, said Umbridge silkily from beside him, we might make better progress if I fetch our informant. Yes, yes, do, said Fudge, nodding, and he glanced maliciously at Dumbledore as Umbridge left the room. There's nothing like a good witness, is there, Dumbledore? Nothing at all, Cornelius, said Dumbledore gravely, inclining his head. There was a wait of several minutes, in which nobody looked at each other. Then Harry heard the door open behind him. Umbridge moved past him into the room. Gripped by the shoulder was Cho's curly-haired friend, curly friend Marietta, who was hiding her face in her hands. "'Don't be scared, dear. Don't be frightened,' said Professor Umbridge softly, patting her on the back. "'It's quite all right now. You've done the right thing. The minister is very pleased with you. He'll be telling your mother what a good girl you've been.' Marietta's mother, Minister, she added, looking at Fudge, is Madame Edgecombe from the Department of Magical Transportation, the Flute Network office. She's been helping us police the Hogwarts fires, you know. Jolly good, jolly good, said Fudge heartily. Like mother, like daughter, eh? Well, come on now, dear. Look up. Don't be shy. Let's see what you've got to galloping gargoyles. <laughs> As Marietta raised her head, Fudge leapt backwards in shock, nearly landing himself in the fire. He cursed and stamped on the hem of his cloak, which had started to smoke. And Marietta gave a wail and pulled the neck of her robes right up to her eyes. But not before the whole room had seen her face was horribly disfigured by a series of close-set purple pustules that spread across her nose and cheeks to form the word sneak. Never mind the spots now, dear, said Umbridge impatiently. Just take your robes away from your mouth and tell the minister... But Marietta gave another muffled wail and shook her head frantically. Oh, very well, you silly girl. I'll tell him, snapped Umbridge. She hitched her sickly smile back onto her face and said, Well, Minister, Miss Edgecombe came here to my office shortly after dinner this evening to tell me that she had something that she needed to say. She said that if I proceeded to a secret room on the seventh floor, sometimes known as the Room of Requirement, I would find out something to my advantage. I questioned her a little further, and she admitted that there was to be some kind of meeting there. Unfortunately, at this point in the hex, she waved impatiently at Marietta's concealed face, 
It came into operation upon catching sight of her face in the mirror. The girl became too distressed to tell me any more. Well now, said Fudge, fixing Marietta with what he evidently imagined was a kind and fatherly look. It is very brave of you, my dear, coming to tell Professor Umbridge you did exactly the right thing. Now, will you tell me what happened at this meeting? What was its purpose? Who was there? But Marietta would not speak. She merely shook her head, her eyes wide and fearful. Haven't we got a counter jinx for this? Fudge asked Umbridge, impatiently gesturing at Marietta's face, so she can speak freely. I have yet not managed to find one, Umbridge admitted grudgingly, and Harry felt a surge of pride in Hermione's jinxing abilities. But it doesn't matter if she won't speak. I can take up the story from here. You will remember, Minister, that I sent your report back in October, that Potter had met a number of fellow students in the Hogshead in Hogsmeade. And what is your evidence for that? cut in Professor McGonagall. I have a testimony from Willie Wittershins Minerva, who happened to be in the bar at this time. He was heavily bandaged, it is true, but his hearing was quite unimpaired, said Umbridge smugly. He heard every word Potter said and hastened straight to the school to report to me. Oh, so that's why he wasn't prosecuted for setting up all those regurgitating toilets, said Professor McGonagall, raising her eyebrows. What an interesting insight to our justice system. Blatant corruption, roared the portrait of the corpulent red-nosed wizard on the wall behind Dumbledore's desk. The ministry did not cut deals with petty criminals in my day. No, sir, they did not. That will do, Fortescue. That will do, said Dumbledore softly. The purpose of Potter's meeting with these students, continued Professor Umbridge, was to persuade them to join an illegal society whose aim was to learn spells and curses the Ministry has decided are inappropriate for school aid. I think you'll find you're wrong there, Dolores, said Dumbledore quietly, peering, over, peering at her over the half-moon spectacles perched halfway down his crooked nose. Harry stared at him. He could not see how Dumbledore was going to talk him out of this one. If Willie Wittershins had indeed heard every word in the hogshead, there was simply no escaping it. Aho! said Fudge, bouncing up and down on the balls of his feet. Yes! Let's do hear the latest cock and bull story designed to pull Potter out of trouble. Go on then, Dumbledore. Go on. Willie Wittershins was lying, was he? Or was Potter's identical twin in a hogshead that day? Or is this the usual simple explanation involving a reversal of time, a dead man coming back to life, and a couple of invisible dementors? Percy Weasley let out a hearty laugh. Oh, very good, Minister. Very good. Harry could have kicked him. Then he saw, to his astonishment, Dumbledore was smiling too. Cornelius, I do not deny, nor am I, I am sure does Harry, that he was in the hogshead that day, nor that he was trying to recruit students to a defense against the Dark Arts group. I am merely pointing out that Dolores is quite wrong to suggest that such a group was, at that time, illegal. If you remember, the Ministry Decree Banning Student Societies was not put into effect until two days after Harry's Hogsmeade meeting, so he's not breaking any school rules in the Hogshead at all. Percy looked as though he'd been struck in the face by something very heavy. Fudge remained motionless, mid-bounce, his mouth hanging open. Umbridge recovered first. That's all very fine, Headmaster, she said, smiling sweetly. But we are now nearly six months in from the introduction of Educational Decree Number 24. 
if the first meeting was not illegal, all those that have happened since most certainly are. Well, said Dumbledore, surveying her with polite interest over the top of his interlocked fingers, they certainly would be if they had continued after the decree came into effect. Do you have any evidence that these meetings continued? As Dumbledore spoke, Harry heard a rustle behind him and rather thought Kingsley whispered something. He could have sworn, too, that he felt something brush against his side, a gentle something, like a draft, or bird wings. But looking down, he saw nothing there. Evidence, repeated Umbridge, with that horrible toad-like smile. Have you not been listening, Dumbledore? Why do you think Miss Edgecombe is here? Oh, she can tell us about six months' worth of meetings, said Dumbledore, raising his eyebrows. I was under the impression that she was reporting, really reporting a meeting tonight. Miss Edgecombe, said Umbridge at once, tell us how long these meetings have been going on, dear. You can simply nod or shake your head. I'm sure that won't make the spots worse. Have they been happening regularly over the last six months? And Harry felt a horrible plummeting in his stomach. This was it. They had hit a dead end of solid evidence that not even Dumbledore would be able to shift aside. Just nod or shake your head, dear, said Umbridge coaxingly to Marietta. Come on now. That won't activate the jinx further. And everyone in the room was gazing at the top of Marietta's face. Only her eyes were visible between the pull up of her robes and her curly fringe of hair. Perhaps it was a trick of the light, but her eyes looked oddly blank. And then, to Harry's utter amazement, Marietta shook her head. Umbridge looked quickly at Fudge and back at Marietta. I don't think you understood the question, did you, dear? I'm asking whether you've been going to these meetings for the past six months. You gab, haven't you? Again, Marietta shook her head. What do you mean by shaking your head, dear? said Umbridge in a testy voice. I would have thought her meaning was quite clear, said Professor McGonagall harshly, that there have been no secret meetings for the past six months. Is that correct, Miss Edgecombe? Marietta nodded. But there was a meeting tonight, said Umbridge furiously. There was a meeting, Miss Edgecombe. You told me about it in the room of requirement, and Potter was the leader. Was he not? Potter organized it. Potter, why are you shaking your head, girl? When usually a person shakes their head, said McGonagall coldly, they mean no. So unless Miss Edgecombe is using a form of sign language as yet unknown to humans, Professor Umbridge and seized Marietta, pulled her around to face her, and began shaking her very hard. A split second later, Dumbledore was on his feet, wand raised. Kingsley started forward, and Umbridge leapt back from Marietta, waving her hands in the air as though she had been burned. I cannot allow you to manhandle my students, Dolores, said Dumbledore. For the first time, he looked angry. You want to calm yourself, Madam Umbridge, said Kingsley in his deep, slow voice. You don't want to get yourself in trouble now. No, said Umbridge breathlessly. I mean, yes, you're right, Shacklebolt. I forgot myself. Marietta was standing exactly where Umbridge had released her. She neither seemed perturbed by Umbridge's sudden attack, nor relieved by her release. She was still clutching her robe up to her oddly blank eyes, staring straight ahead of her. A sudden suspicion connected to Kingsley Whisper and the thing he felt shoot past him sprang into Harry's mind. Dolores, said Fudge, with the air of trying to settle something once and for all. The meeting tonight, the one we know happened. Yes, said Umbridge, pulling himself. Yes, well, Miss Edgecombe tipped me off. I proceeded at once to the seventh floor, accompanied by certain trustworthy students, so as to catch those in the meeting red-handed. It appears they were forewarned of my arrival, however, because when I reached the seventh floor, they were running in every direction. That does not matter, however. I have all of their names here. 
Miss Parkinson ran into the room of requirement for me to see if they had left anything. We needed the evidence, and the room provided. And to Harry's horror, she withdrew from her pocket the list of names that had been pinned upon the room of requirement's wall and handed it to Fudge. The moment I saw Potter's name on the list, I knew what we were dealing with, she said softly. Excellent, said Fudge, a smile spreading across his face. Excellent, Del Dolores. And by thunder! And he looked up at Dumbledore, who was standing still beside Marietta, his wand loosely in his hand. See what they've named themselves? Dumbledore's army! Dumbledore reached out and took a piece of parchment from Fudge. He gazed at the heading scribbled by Hermione months before, and for a moment seemed unable to speak. Then, he looked up smiling. Well, the game is up, he said simply. Would you like a written confession from me, Cornelius? Or will a statement before these witnesses suffice? Harry saw McGonagall and Kingsley look at each other. There was fear in both faces. He did not understand what was going on, and neither, apparently, did Fudge. Statement, said Fudge slowly. What? I don't... Dumbledore's army, Cornelius said Dumbledore, still smiling, as he waved the list of names before Fudge's face. Not Potter's army. Dumbledore's army. But, but, understanding blazed suddenly in Fudge's face. He took a horrified step backwards, yelped, and jumped out of the fire again. You, he whispered, stampering on his smoldering cloak. That's right, said Dumbledore pleasantly. You organized this? I did. You recruited these students for, for your army? "'Tonight was supposed to be the first meeting,' said Dumbledore, nodding, "'merely to see whether they would be interested in joining me. "'Now I see that it was a mistake to invite Miss Edgecombe, of course.' And "'Marietta nodded. "'Fudge looked from her to Dumbledore, his chest swelling. "'Then you have been plotting against me,' he yelled. "'That's right,' said Dumbledore cheerfully. "'No!' Said, shouted Harry. "'And Kingsley flashed a look of warning at him, "'McGonagall widening her eyes threateningly, but it suddenly dawned upon Harry what Dumbledore was about to do, and he could not let it happen. No, Professor Dumbledore. Be quiet, Harry, or I'm afraid you'll have to leave my office, said Dumbledore calmly. Yes, shut up, Potter, barked Fudge, who was still ogling Dumbledore with a kind of horrified delight. Well, 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 I came here tonight expecting to expel Potter, and instead, instead you get to arrest me, said Dumbledore, smiling. It's like losing a nut and finding a galleon, isn't it? "'Weasley!' cried Fudge, now positively quivering with delight. "'Weasley, have you have it all written down? "'Everything is said. "'His confession. Have you got it?' "'Yes, sir. I think so, sir,' said Percy eagerly, "'whose nose was splattered with ink from the speed of his note-taking. "'The bit about he's trying to build an army against the Ministry, "'how he's working to destabilize me.' "'Yes, sir. I've got it. Yes,' said Percy, scanning his nose joyfully. "'Very well, then,' said Fudge, now radiant with glee. Duplicate your notes, Weasley, and send a copy to the Daily Prophet at once. If we send a fast novel, we should make the morning edition. Percy dashed from the room, slamming the door behind him. Fudge turned back to Dumbledore. You will now be escorted back to the Ministry, where you'll be formally charged, and then sent to Azkaban to await trial. Ah, said Dumbledore gently. Yes. Yes, I thought we might hit that little snag. Snag? Said Fudge, his voice still vibrating with joy. I see no snag, Dumbledore. Well, said Dumbledore apologetically, 
I'm afraid I do. Oh, really? Well, it's just that you seem to be laboring under the delusion that I am going to... What is the phrase? Come quietly? I am afraid I am not going to come quietly at all, Cornelius. I have absolutely no intention of being sent to Azkaban. I could break out, of course, but what a waste of time. And frankly, I can think of a whole host of things I would rather be doing. Umbridge's face was growing steadily redder, and she looked as though she was being filled with her, her face was being filled with boiling water. Fudge stared at Dumbledore with a very silly expression on his face, as though he had just been stunned by a sudden blow and could not quite believe it had happened. He made a small choking noise, then looked around at Kingsley and the man with short gray hair, who alone of everyone in the room remained entirely silent so far. The latter gave Fudge a reassuring nod and moved forward a little, away from the wall. Harry saw his hand drift almost casually toward his pocket. "'Don't be silly, Dawlish,' said Dumbledore kindly. "'I see you. I know you're an excellent Auror. "'I seem to remember you achieved outstanding in all your newts. "'But if you attempt to uh, bring me in by force, I will have to hurt you.' "'The man called Dawlish blinked rather foolishly. "'He looked toward Fudge again, "'but this time seemed to be hoping for a clue as to what to do next. "'So!' sneered Fudge, recovering himself. You intend to take on Dawlish, Shacklebolt, Dolores, and myself single-handedly, do you, Dumbledore? Merlin's beard, no, said Dumbledore, smiling. Not unless you are foolish enough to force me to. He will not be single-handed, said Professor McGonagall, McGonagall loudly plunging her hand inside her robes. Oh, yes, he will, Minerva, Dumbledore said sharply. Hogwarts needs you. Enough of this rubbish, said Fudge, pulling out his own wand. Dawlish, Shacklebolt, take him. A streak of silver light flashed around the room. There was a bang like a gunshot and the floor trembled. A hand grabbed the scruff of Harry's neck and forced him down to the floor as a second silver flash went off and several of the portraits yelled. Fox screeched and a cloud of dust filled the air. Coughing in the dust, Harry saw a dark figure fall to the ground with a crash in front of him. There was a shriek and a thud and somebody cried, No! And then the sound of breaking glass frantically scurrying footsteps, a groan, and silence. Harry struggled to see who was half-strangling him and saw Professor McGonagall crouch down beside him. She had forced both him and Marietta out of harm's way. Dust was still floating gently through the air onto them. Panting slightly, Harry saw a very tall figure moving toward them. "'Are you all right?' said Dumbledore. "'Yes,' said Professor McGonagall, getting up and dragging Harry and Marietta with her. The dust was clearing, the wreckage of the office loomed into view. Dumbledore's desk had been overturned. All the spindly tables had been knocked to the floor, their silver instruments in pieces. Fudge, Umbridge, Kingsley, and Dawlish lay motionless on the floor. And Fox, the phoenix, soared wide circles above them, singing softly. Unfortunately, I had to hex Kingsley too, or it would have looked very suspicious, said Dumbledore in a low voice. He was remarkably quick on the uptake, modifying Miss Edgecombe's memory like that while everyone's looking the other way. Thank him for me, won't you, Minerva? Now, they will all awake very soon and be very best if they do not know that we had time to communicate. You must act as though no time has passed, as though they are really knocked to the ground and they will not remember. Where will you go, Dumbledore whispered McGonagall. Grimwald Place? Oh no, 
said Dumbledore with a grim smile. I am not leaving to go into hiding. Fudge will soon wish he'd never dislodge me from Hogwarts. I promise you. Professor Dumbledore, Harry began. He did not know what to say first. How sorry he was that he starred the DA in the first place and caused all this trouble. Or how terrible he felt that Dumbledore was leaving him to leaving to save him from expulsion. But Dumbledore cut him off before he could say another word. Listen to me, Harry. He said urgently. You must study equivalency as hard as you can. Do you understand me? Do everything Professor Snape tells you and practice it, particularly every night before sleeping so you can close your mind to bad dreams. You will understand why soon enough. But you must promise me. The man called Dolish was stirring. Dumbledore seized Harry's wrist. Remember, close your mind. But as Dumbledore's fingers closed over Harry's skin, a pain shot through his scar on his forehead, and he felt a, again that terrible, snake-like longing to strike Dumbledore, to bite him, to hurt him. You will understand, whispered Dumbledore. Fox circled the office, swooped low over him. Dumbledore released Harry, raised his hand, grasped the phoenix's long golden tail, and there was a flash of fire, and the pair of them had gone. Where is he? yelled Fudge, pushing himself up in the ground. Where is he? I don't know, shouted Kingsley, also leaping to a feast. Well, he can't have disapparated, cried Umbridge. You can't inside the school. The stairs, cried Dawlish, and he flung himself upon the door and wrenched it open and disappeared followed closely by Kingsley and Umbridge. Fudge hesitated, then got to his feet slowly, brushing the dust from his front, and there was a long and painful silence. Well, Minerva, said Fudge nastily, straightened his torn shirt sleeve. I'm afraid this is the end of your friend Dumbledore. You think so, do you? said McGonagall scornfully, and Fudge seemed not to hear her. He was looking around at the wrecked office. A few of the portraits hissed at him, one or two even made rude hand gestures. You better get those two off to bed, said Fudge, looking back at Professor McGonagall with a divisive nod towards Harry and Marietta. She said nothing, but marched Harry and Marietta to the door. As it swung closed behind them, Harry heard Phineas, Phineas Nigellus's voice. You know, Minister, I disagree with Dumbledore on many accounts, but you cannot deny he's got style. <laughs> and that closes out that chapter, so many huge things to talk about there. On top of the fact there's a big difference between that movie there. I will leave that one alone for now. <laughs> but like we said, when Dumbledore decides that he's had enough, you get to kind of see his abilities and why. He knocked out two excellent orders. Like, you know, Cornelius Fudge isn't going to bring like just average orders with him to apprehend Dumbledore. You know what I mean? So Kingsley's one of the best. Dawlish has got to be one of the best. He's the Minister of Magic, talking about Cornelius Fudge himself. And Umbridge is, you know, for all worth, she's still a ministry official. So like all these talented witches and wizards, in like one swish of his like wand, he <laughs> knocked great. them all out, incapacitated, got out of there. Like he came up with a story on the fly, by the way. He's just a genius. Like Dumbledore genius. In this moment, really showed his abilities and how great he is, and exactly why he is considered one of the greatest wizards of the age. So, so many big things happened, and on top of that, before he left, he's trying to press into Harry the importance of studying occlumency as hard as he can, and we'll come to find out why he's so adamant about that later on, right. and actually what comes to happen from it. But as of right now, though, where do we stand? Dumbledore is no longer at Hogwarts, so we can kind of see. Who is probably in line to take up after him as the person that's going to be in charge? 
and most likely going to be Professor Umbridge just by, you know, power of deduction. And we're going to see a little bit about how uh, that comes into play here later. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Chase. Yeah, uh, about that, you know, we're, we'll leave the differences for our differences episode, but just throwing this out there, like, they might as well have just called the scene selection in the movie the snake, because there was no sneak at all <laughs> in the film, so just throwing that out there. But yeah, man, it's a, it's a really powerful moment, and I think the moment, like, this is why Dumbledore's one of my favorite characters um really in my top um which will rank him a long time from now right but um really the moment when he grabs his wand and stands up to umbridge uh sticking up for his students uh you know that's a really powerful moment there like he it really showed that moment of like we've seen it a little bit from dumbledore in the goblet of fire uh, when he went after the imposter, right, as Alistair Moody. But this is really a big moment because this is when it showed, like, okay, like, we know how far we can almost push Dumbledore's, Dumbledore's limits. And then finally, if, like, you, if you start causing harm to any of his students, no matter who it is, even if it's one that basically sold out half the school, like he doesn't care like he's gonna stick up for his students uh, so that was a really powerful moment there but yeah so you had story time with josh welcome to story time with chase <laughs> so uh here we go guys um yeah so this next chapter is really powerful there's a the i'm just gonna go ahead and like wind up diving into it because there's so many important stuff in here as far as umbridge and then we have a, a little section with harry and and Cho, <laughs> it uh, doesn't go the way it seems. <laughs> it's not as it seems. And uh, then, you know, uh, we learn a lot about Snape's past and why he is the way he is. So I'll go ahead and uh, take it from here. Is that cool with you? Yeah, man. Absolutely. Cool. Awesome. Uh, so, uh, so we first start off this chapter, chapter 28, Snape's Horse Memory. Uh, Umbridge is really pissed at the situation you just described. So, like, all hell is just about to break loose because of, a, you know, Dumbledore, in the words of, you know, <laughs> straight from the book, can't deny he has style. <laughs> yeah, so, but this starts off a whole chain of events. Um, by order of the Ministry of Magic, Dolores Jane Umbridge, high in Inquisitor has replaced Albus Dumbledore as head of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. The above is in accordance with Educational Decree Number 28, signed Cornelius Oswald Fudge with the Ministry of Magic seal. Uh, the notice, notices had gone up all over the school overnight, but they did not explain how every single person within the castle seemed to know that Dumbledore had overcome two Aurors, the High Inquisitor, the Minister of Magic, and his junior assistant to escape. No matter where Harry went within the castle the next day, the sole topic of conversation was Dumbledore's flight. And though some of the details might have gone awry in the retelling, Harry overheard one second-year girl assuring another that Fudge was now lying in St. Mungo's with a pumpkin for a head. It was surprising how accurate the rest of the information was. Everybody seemed aware, for instance, that Harry and Marietta were the only 
only students to have witnessed the scene in Dumbledore's office, and as Marietta was now in the hospital wing, Harry found himself uh, besieged with requests to give a first-hand account of whatever, wherever he went. Dumbledore will be back before long, said Ernie McMillan, confidently on the way back from Herbology after listening intently to Harry's story. They couldn't keep him away in our second year, and they won't be able to in this time. The fat friar told me, he dropped his low voice conspiratorially, conspiratorially so that Harry, Ron, and Hermione had to lean closer to, hear, to him to hear. That Umbridge tried to get back into his office last night after they'd searched the castle and grounds for him. Couldn't get past the gargoyle. The head's office has sealed itself against her, Ernie smirked. Apparently, she had a right little tantrum. Oh, I expect she's really fancied herself sitting up there in the head's office, said Hermione, viciously as they walked up the stone steps into the entrance hall, lording it over all the other teachers, the stupid, puffed-up, power-crazy old... Now do you really want me to finish that sentence, Granger? Draco Malfoy had slid out from behind the door, closely followed by Crab and Goyle. His pale-pointed face was alight with malice. Afraid I'm going to have to dock you a few points, Gryffindor and Hufflepuff, he drawled. It's only teachers that can dock points from houses, Malfoy, said Ernie at once. Yeah, we're prefects too, remember, snarled Ron. I know prefects can't dock points, Weasel King, sneered Malfoy. Crab and Goyle sniggered. But members of the Inquisitorial Squad, the what? said Hermione sharply. The Inquisitorial Squad, Granger, said Malfoy, pointing toward a tiny silver uh, toward a tiny silver eye upon his robes just beneath his prefect's badge. A select group of students who are supportive of the Ministry of Magic, handpicked by Professor Umbridge. Anyway, members of the Inquisitorial Squad do have the power to dock points. So, Granger, I'll have... Five from you for being rude about our new headmistress, Magmillan. Five for contradicting me. Five because I don't like you, Potter. Weasley, your shirt's untucked, so I'll have another five for that. Oh yeah, I forgot. You're a mudblood, Granger, so ten for that. Ron pulled out his wand, but Hermione pushed it away, whispering, Don't! Wise move, Granger, breathed Malfoy. New head, new times. Be good now, Potty. Weasel King. He strode away laughing heartily with Crab and Goyle. He was bluffing, said Ernie, looking appalled. He can't be allowed to dock points. That would be ridiculous. It would completely undermine the prefect system. But Harry, Ron, and Hermione had turned automatically toward the giant hourglass set in niches along the wall behind them, which recorded the house points. Gryffindor and Ravenclaw had been neck and neck in the lead that morning. Even as they watched, stones flew upward, reducing the amount in lower bulbs. In fact, the only glass that seemed unchanged was the emerald-filled one with Slytherin. So right at this moment here, we have Umbridge's... She started some big shit going on. Like, now she has, like, a whole team of insiders taking this thing. And, uh, of course, like, Draco gets in power. Like, talk about, like the corrupt safety patrol like you thought the departed was bad we'll go put malfoy in there and you see what's about to happen uh so from here it says 
the Harry Ron and Hermione had turned automatically okay toward the giant hourglass, and of course, the only one to change was the Emerald Phil Lomas Slytherin. Um, noticed, have you? said Fred's voice. He and George had just come down the marble staircase and joined Harry, Ron, and Hermione and Ernie in front of the hourglasses. Malfoy just docked us all 50 points, said Harry furiously, as they watched several more stones fly upward from the Gryffindor hourglass. Yeah, Montag tried to do us during break, said George. What do you mean, tried, said Ron quickly. He never managed to get all the words <laughs> words out, said Fred, due to the fact that we forced him headfirst into a vanishing cabinet on the first floor. <laughs> Here's your boys. Uh, Hermione looked very shocked. But you'll get into trouble. Terrible trouble. Not until Montag reappears, and that could take weeks. I don't know where we sent him, said Fred coolly. Anyways, we've decided we don't care about getting into trouble anymore. Have you ever? asked Hermione. Of course we have, said George. Never been expelled, have we? We've always known where to draw the line, said Fred. We might have put a toe across it occasionally, said George. But we've always stopped short of causing real mayhem, said Fred. But now, said Ron tentatively. Well, now, said George. What, with Dumbledore gone, said Fred? We reckon a bit of mayhem, said George. Is exactly what our dear new head deserves, said Fred. You mustn't, whispered Hermione. You really mustn't. She'd love a reason to expel you. You don't get it, Hermione, do you? Said Fred, smiling at her. We don't care about staying anymore. We'd walk out right now if we weren't determined to do our bit for Dumbledore first. So anyway, he checked his watch. Phase one is about to begin. I'd get in the Great Hall for lunch if I were you. That way, the teachers will see you can't have anything to do with it. Anything to do with what? Said Hermione anxiously. You'll see, said George. Run along now. <laughs> Your boys are about to cause some <laughs> big, uh, big, big issue there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Fred and George turned away and disappeared into the swelling crowd, descending the stairs towards lunch, looking highly disconcerted. Ernie muttered something about unfinished transfiguration homework and scurried away. I think we should get you out of here, you know, said Hermione nervously, just in case. Yeah, all right, said Ron, and then the three of them moved towards the door to the Great Hall, but Harry had barely glimpsed today's ceiling of scuttling white clouds when somebody tapped him on the shoulder, and turning, he found himself almost nose-to-nose -nose with Filch, the caretaker. He took several hasty steps backwards. Filch was best viewed at the distance. This dude is, always plays a creep on top of that. Like... <laughs> I always think of Walter Frey, man. <laughs> this is, he's even worse in this book, though. That's a perfect role for him. The headmistress would like he's to see... He's not worse in this book. He's way worse in Game of Thrones. Are you yeah. kidding me? Okay, so he's worse in Game of Thrones, but I'm thinking specifically of a part uh, you're going to cover uh, next episode <laughs> where he mentions he wishes... Uh, you know, students were taught a little more properly. <laughs> but, uh, so, okay, I guess he is way worse than Game of Thrones. We won't well, I mean, you're about to say it right now. It's not next episode. You're about to say exactly what he wants to happen right now. Yeah, actually, uh, <laughs> okay, do you want to take these couple little no. chapters? Because it's your boy, you sure? I'm sure, man. I'm okay, sure. I just don't want to, uh, these are your boys, man. I never want to step on your toes on here because these are your guys. But, okay, I'll take his part because, uh, God, this guy is terrible. He's just awful. Um, so, 
With Filch the caretaker, he took several hasty steps backwards. Filch was best viewed at a distance. The Hess mistress would like to see you, Potter, he leered. I didn't do it, said Harry stupidly, thinking of whatever Fred and George were planning. Filch's jowls wobbled with silent laughter. Guilty conscience, eh? He wheezed. Follow me. Harry glanced back at Ron and Hermione, who were both looking worried. He shrugged and followed Filch back into the entrance hall against the tide of hungry students. Filch seemed to be in extremely good mood. He hummed creakily under his breath as they climbed the marble staircase. As they reached the first landing, he said, Things are changing around here, Potter. I've noticed, said Harry coldly. Yes. I've been telling Dumbledore for years and years he's too soft with you all, said Filch, chuckling nastily. You filthy little beech would never have dropped stink pellets if you would have known I had it in my power to whip you raw, would you now? Nobody would have thought of throwing fanged frisbees down the corridors if I could have strung you up by your ankles in my office, would they? But when Educational Decree 29 comes in, Potter, I'll be allowed to do them things. And she's asked the minister to sign an order for expulsion of peeves. Oh, things are going to be very different around here with her her in charge. Umbridge had obviously gone to some lengths to get Filch on her side. Harry thought, and the worst of it, was that he would probably prove an important weapon. His knowledge of the school's secret passageways and hiding places was probably second only to the Weasley twins. Here we are, he said, leering down at Harry as he rapped three times upon Professor Umbridge's door and pushed it open. The Potter boy to see you, ma'am? Umbridge's office, so very familiar to Harry from his many detentions, was the same as usual except for the large wooden block lying across the front of her desk on which golden letters spelled the word headmistress, also as firebolt, and Fred and George's clean sweeps, which he saw with a pang, were now chained and padlocked to the stout iron peg in the wall behind the desk. Umbridge was sitting behind the desk, busily scribbling upon her, some pink parchment, but looked up and smiled widely at their entrance. "'Thank you, Argus,' she said sweetly. "'Not at all, ma'am, not at all,' said Filch, bowing as low as his uh, rheumatism would permit, and exiting backward. "'Sit,' said Umbridge curtly, pointing toward the chair, and Harry sat. She continued to scribble for a few moments. He watched some of the foul kittens gambling around the plates over her head, wondering what fresh horror she had in store for him. Well now, she said finally, setting down her quill and surveying him complacently like a toad about to swallow a particularly juice fly. What would you like to drink? What? said Harry, quite sure he had misheard her. To drink, Mr. Potter, she said, smiling still more widely. Tea? Coffee? Pumpkin juice? As she named each drink, she gave her short wand a wave, and a cup of cup or glass of it appeared upon her desk. Nothing, thank you, said Harry. I wish you to have a drink with me, she said, her voice becoming more dangerously sweet. Choose one. Fine tea, then, said Harry. Shrugging. I kind of want to stop you right there, too, just sure. to talk about that for a second. Because, like, isn't it kind of, like, weird? Like, shouldn't you already have, like, red flags going off, like... This teacher that's hated you this whole time is all of a sudden offering you beverages like she's your friend. Like, already there should be, like, red flags, like, wait, 
why is she offering me these things? And eventually we get there, but like, man, I, right off the bat, I would have been like, what the heck? Like, no, I ain't taking mm-hmm. anything that she gives me. But that's all I just wanted to point out mm-hmm. there. Like, we should this should have been from the start. Her saying like, oh, let's have a drink, and like comes up with a bunch of different options from the drink from. There, there should have been some red flags from the very beginning right there. Yeah, no, you brought up a great point. Pay attention to that because that comes up huge in the next episode we discuss. And on <laughs> yes. top of that, too, just like you were saying, you have probably the most asshole swib ever just escorted you in there talking about whipping you raw. Like, why is anyone offering me tea or coffee at this point? Like, you literally just said, string me up by my ankles and whip me raw. <laughs> like, are you out of your effing mind? <laughs> like, just crazy, man. It's crazy stuff. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to say on that? I didn't no, I dive back it. into it. I just, no, go ahead and get back into it. I just thought that was just like, hey, we should have thought of that. That's a big red flag from Harry right there. Like, at that point... I guess he played it smart because if he flat out refused, like I guess she could have resorted to what she tries to do next episode that we'll talk about. But uh, yeah, I just want those things. It's like it shouldn't have took Harry that long for it to click because it does for a second. Like he has to think about like another wizard that he reminds him of the situation before he's like, oh wait a second, maybe I shouldn't do this. But I just wanted to point that out that like it should have been an immediate like immediate red flag. <laughs> oh right away. Uh, I just keep thinking during this whole scene. <laughs> this is the perfect scene for Arya Stark. Where's Arya Stark when you need right. her right now? But uh, yeah, we'll get back into it, my man. Uh, so let's see. She says, uh, choose one. Fine, tea then, Harry said. Uh, Harry shrugging. She got up and made quite a performance of adding milk with her back to him. She then bustled around the desk with it, smiling in sinisterly sweet fashion. There, she said, handing it to him. Drink it before it gets cold, won't you? Well now, Mr. Potter, I thought we ought to have a little chat after the distressing events of last night. He said nothing. She settled herself back into her seat and waited. When several long moments had passed in silence, she said gaily, You're not drinking up? He raised the cup to his lips and then just as suddenly lowered it. One of the horrible painted kittens behind Umbridge had a great round blue eyes just like Mad-Eye Moody's magical one and it had just occurred to harry what mad i would say if he ever heard that harry had drunk anything offered by a known enemy what's the matter said umbridge who was still watching him closely do you want sugar no said harry he raised the cup to his lips again and pretended to take a sip though keeping his mouth tightly closed umbridge smiled widen good she whispered very good now then she leaned forward where is albus dumbledore no idea said harry promptly drink up drink up she said still smiling now mr potter let us not play childish games i know what you know where he has gone you and dumbledore have been in this together from the beginning consider your position mr potter i don't know where he is harry repeated he pretended to drink again. She was watching him very closely. Very well, she said. Though she looked displeased in that case, you will kindly tell me the whereabouts of Sirius Black. Very well, she said, though she looked displeased. In that case, you will kindly tell me the whereabouts of Sirius Black. Harry's stomach turned over and his hand 
holding the teacup shook so that the cup rattled in the saucer. He tilted the cup to his mouth with his lips pressed together so that some of the hot liquid trickled down onto his robes. I don't know, he said a little too quickly. Mr. Potter, said Umbridge, let me remind you that it was I who almost caught the criminal black in the Gryffindor fire in October. I know perfectly well. It was you he was meeting, and if I had any proof, neither of you would be at large today. I promise you. I repeat, Mr. Potter, where is Sirius Black? No idea, said Harry loudly. Haven't got a clue. They stared at each other so long that Harry felt his eyes watering. Then he stood up. Very well, Potter, I will take your word for it this time, but be warned. The might of the ministry stands behind me. All channels of communication in and out of the school are being monitored. A flu network regulator is keeping watch over every fire in Hogwarts except my own, of course. My inquisitorial squad, inquisitorial squad is opening and reading all owl posts, entering and leaving the castle. And Mr. Filch is observing all secret passageways in and out of the castle. If I find a shred of evidence, boom! The very floor of the office shook. Umbridge slipped sideways, clutching her desk for support, looking shocked. What was... She was gazing towards the door. Harry took the opportunity to empty his almost full cup of tea into the nearest vase of dried flowers. He could hear people running and screaming several floors below. Back to lunch with you, Potter, cried Umbridge, raising her wand and dashing out of the office. Harry gave her a few seconds to start and then hurried after her to see what the source of all the uproar was. It was not difficult to find one floor down. Pandemonium reigned. Somebody in Harry had a very shrewd idea who had set off had set off what seemed to be an enormous crate of enchanted fireworks. Dragons comprised entirely of green and gold sparks were soaring up and down the corridors, emitting loud fiery blasts and bangs as they went. Shocking pink Catherine wheels five feet in diameter were wheezing were whizzing lethally through the air like so many flying saucers. Rockets with long tails of brilliant silver stars were ricocheting off the walls. Sparklers were riding swear words in midair of their own accord. Firecrackers were exploding like mines everywhere. Harry looked, and instead of burning themselves out, fading from sight, or fizzling to a halt, these pyrotechnical miracles seemed to be gaining in energy and momentum the longer he watched. Filch and Umbridge were standing, apparently transfixed with the horror, halfway down the stairs. As Harry watched, one of the larger Catherine wheels seemed to decide, decide that what it needed was more room to maneuver. It whirled toward Umbridge and Filch with a sinister, Whee! Both adults yelled with fright and ducked it, soared straight out of the window behind them and off across the grounds. Meanwhile, several of the dragons in the large purple bat that was smoking ominously, took advantage of the open door at the end of the corridor to escape towards the second floor. Hurry, Filch, hurry! shrieked Umbridge. They'll be all over the school unless we do something. Stupefy! A jet of red light shot out of the end of her wand and hit one of the rockets. Instead of freezing in midair, it exploded with such a force that it blasted a hole in, pant in painting of a soppy-looking witch in the middle of the meadow. She ran for it just in time, reappearing seconds later squashed into the painting next door where a couple of wizards playing cards stood up hastily to make room for her don't stun them filch shouted umbridge angrily for all the world as though it had been his suggestion 
Right you are, headmistress, wheezed Filch, who was a squib and could no more have stunned the fireworks than swallowed them. He dashed to a nearby cupboard, pulled out a broom, and began swatting at the fireworks in midair. Within seconds, the head of the broom was ablaze. Harry had seen enough. Laughing, he dug down low, ran to a door he knew was concealed behind a tapestry, little way along the corridor, and slipped through it to find Fred and George hiding just behind it, listening to Umbridge's and Filch's yells, quaking with suppressing Merith. Impressive, Harry said, quietly grinning. Very impressive. You'll put Dr. Filibuster out of business, no problem. Cheers, whispered George, wiping tears of laughter from his face. Oh, I hope she tries vanishing them next. They multiply by ten every time you try. <laughs> the fireworks continued to burn and to spread all over the school that afternoon. Though they caused plenty of disruption, particularly the firecrackers, the other teachers did not seem to mind that them very much. Very much. Dear, dear, said Professor McGonagall sardonically, as one of the dragons soared around her classroom, emitting loud bangs and exhaling flame. Miss Brown, would you mind running along to the headmistress and informing her that we have an escaped firework in the classroom? The upshot of it all was that Professor Umbridge spent her first afternoon as headmistress running all over the school answering the summons of other teachers, none of whom seemed able to rid their rooms of fireworks without her. When the final bell rang and the students were heading back to the Gryffindor Tower with the bangs, Harry saw with immense satisfaction a disheveled and suit-blackened umbrage, tottering, sweating face from Professor Flitwick's classroom. "'Thank you so much, Professor,' said Professor Flitwick in his squeaky little voice. "'I could have got rid of the sparklers myself, of course, but I wasn't sure whether I had the authority.' Beaming, he closed his classroom door in a snarling face. Fred and George were heroes that night in the Gryffindor common room. Even Hermione fought her way through the excited crowd around them to congratulate them." They were wonderful fireworks, she said admiringly. Thanks, said George, looking both surprised and pleased. Weasley's wildfire whiz bangs. <laughs> Only thing is, we used our whole stock. We're going to have to start again from scratch now. It was worth it, though, said Fred, who was taking orders from clamoring Gryffindors. If you want to add your name to the waiting list, Hermione, it's five gallons for your basic blaze box and 20 for the del deflagration deluxe hermione returned to the table with harry and ron uh, were sitting staring at their school bags as though hoping their homework might spring out of it and start doing itself oh why don't we have the night off said hermione brightly as a silver-tailed weasley rocket zoomed past the window after all the easter's holidays start on friday we'll have plenty of time then are you feeling all right ron asked staring at her in disbelief now you mention it said hermione happily do you know, I think, I think I'm feeling a bit rebellious. Harry could still hear the distant bangs of escaped fireworks when he and Ron went up to bed an hour later and he got undressed, uh, a sparkler floated past the tower, still resulting, res resolutely spelling out the word poo. He got into bed yawning with his glasses off, the occasional fireworks still passing the window and becoming blurred, looking like sparkling clouds, beautiful and mysterious against the black sky. He turned onto his side, wondering how Umbridge was feeling about her first day in Dumbledore's job, and how Fudge would react when he heard the, that the school had spent most of its day in the state of advanced disruption. Smiling to himself, he closed his eyes.
The whizzes and bangs of escaped fireworks in the ground seemed to be growing more distant, or perhaps he... Harry was simply speeding away from them. He had fallen right into the corridor leading to the Department of Mysteries. He was speeding toward the plain black door. Let it open. Let it open. It did. He was inside the circular room lined with doors. He crossed it. Placed his hand upon an identical door that swung inward. Now he was in a long rectangular room full of an odd mechanical clicking. There were dancing flecks of light on the walls, but he did not pause to investigate. He had to go on. There was a door to the far end. It, too, opened at his touch. And now he was in a dimly lit room, as high and wide as a church, full of nothing but rows and rows towering shelves, each laden with small, dusty, spun glass spears. Now Harry's heart was beating fast with excitement. He knew where to go. He ran forward, but his footsteps made no noise in the enormous, deserted room. There was something in this room he wanted very much. Something he wanted. Or somebody else wanted. His scar was hurting. Bang! Harry awoke instantly confused and angry. The dark dormitory was full of the sound of laughter. Cool, said Seamus, who was silhouetted against the window. I think one of those Catherine wheels hit a rocket and it's like they made it. Come and see. Harry heard Ron and Dean scramble out of bed for a better look. He lay quiet, still and silent, while the pain in his scar subsided and disappointment washed over him. He felt as though a wonderful treat had been snatched from him at the very last moment. He had got so close this time. Glittering pink and silver-winged piglets were now soaring past the windows of the Gryffindor Tower. Harry lay and listened to the appreciative whoops of Gryffindors in the dormitories below. His stomach gave a sickening jolt as he remembered that he had occlumency the following evening. Harry spent the whole day of the next day dreading what Snape was going to say if he found out how much farther into the Department of Mysteries he had penetrated during his last dream. With a surge of guilt, he realized that he had not practiced occlumency once since their last lesson. There had been too much going on since Dumbledore had left. He was sure he would not have been able to empty his mind even if he had tried. He doubted, however, whether Snape would accept that, that excuse. He attempted a last-minute practice during the classes of the day, but it was no good. Hermione kept asking him what was wrong whenever he felt sil fell silent trying to rid himself of all the thought and emotion. And after all, the best moment to empty his brain was not while teachers were firing review questions at the class. Resigned to the worst, he set off for Snape's office after dinner. Halfway across the entrance hall, however, Cho came hurrying up to him. Over here, said Harry, glad of a reason to postpone his meeting with Snape and beckoning her across the corner of the entrance hall where the giant hourglass stood. Gryffindor was now almost empty. Are you okay? Umbridge hasn't been asking you about the DA, has she? Oh, no, said Cho hurriedly. No, it was only, well, I just wanted to say, Harry, I never dreamed Marietta would tell. Yeah, I will, said Harry moodily. He did feel Cho might have chosen her friends a bit more carefully. It was small consultation that the last he had heard Marietta was still up in the hospital wing, and Madame Pomfrey had not been able to make the slightest improvements to her pimples. She's a lovely person, really, said Cho. She just made a mistake. Harry looked at her incredulously. A lovely person who made a mistake? She sold us all out, including you. Well, we all got away, didn't we? said Cho pleadingly. 
you know, her mom works for the ministry. It's really difficult for her. Ron's dad works for the ministry too, Harry said furiously. And in that case, you hadn't noticed, he hasn't got sneak written across his face. That was a really horrible trick of Hermione Granger's, said Cho, fiercely. She shouldn't have told us she jinxed that list. I think it's a brilliant idea, said Harry coldly. Cho flushed and her eyes grew brighter. Oh, yes, I forgot, of course. If it was darling Hermione's idea. Don't start crying again, said Harry warningly. I wasn't going to, she shouted. Yeah, well, good, he said. I've got enough to cope with at the moment. Go and cope with it then, she said furiously, turning on her heel and stalking off. Fuming, Harry descended to the stairs at Snape's dungeon. And though he knew from experience how much easier it would be uh, for Snape to penetrate his mind if he arrived angry and resentful, he succeeded in nothing but thinking of a few more good things he should have said to Cho about Marietta before reaching the dungeon door. You're late, Potter, said Snape coldly as Harry closed the door before him. Snape was standing with his back to Harry, removing, as usual, certain of his thoughts and placing them carefully in Dumbledore's pensieve. He dropped the last silvery strand into the stone basin and turned to face Harry. So, he said, have you been practicing? Yes, Harry lied, looking carefully at one of the legs of Snape's desk. Well, we'll soon find out, won't we, said Snape smoothly. Wand out, Potter. Harry moved into his usual position, facing Snape with the desk between them. His heart was pumping fast with anger at Cho and anxiety about how much Snape was about to extract from his mind. On the count of three, then, Snape said lazily. One, two. Snape's office door banged open and Draco Malfoy sped in. Professor Snape, sir. Oh, oh sorry. Malfoy was looking at Snape and Harry in some surprise. It's all right, Draco, said Snape, lowering his wand. Potter is here for a little remedial potions. Harry had not seen Malfoy look so gleeful since Umbridge had turned up to inspect Hagrid. I didn't know, he said, leering at Harry, who knew his face was burning. He would have given a great deal to be able to shout the truth at Malfoy, or even better, to hit him with a curse, a good curse. Well, Draco, what is it? asked Snape. It's Professor Umbridge, sir. She needs your help, said Malfoy. They've found Montag, sir. He turned up jammed inside a toilet on the fourth floor. How did he get in there? demanded Snape. I don't know, sir. He's a bit confused. Very well. Very well. Potter, said Snape, we shall resume this lesson tomorrow evening instead. He turned and swept from this office. Malfoy mouthed, remedial potions? At Harry behind Snape's back before following him. Seething, Harry replaced his wand inside his robes and made to leave the room. At least he had 24 more hours in which to practice. He knew he ought to feel grateful for the narrow escape. Though it's hard that it came as the expense of Malfoy telling the whole school that he needed remedial potions. He was at the office door when he saw it. A patch of shivering light dancing on the doorframe. He stopped. Looking at it, it reminded him of something. Then he remembered... It was a little like the lights he had seen in his dream last night, the lights in the second room he had walked through on his journey through the Department of Mysteries. He turned around. The light was coming from the pensieves sitting on Snape's desk. The silver-white contents were ebbing and swirling within. Snape's thoughts? Things he did not want Harry to see if broke through Snape's defenses accidentally. Harry gazed at the pensieve, curiosity welling inside him. What was it that Snape had 
was so keen to hide from Harry. The silvery lights shivered on the wall. Harry took two steps towards the desk, thinking hard. Could it possibly be information about the Department of Mysteries that Snape was determined to keep from him? Harry looked over his shoulder, his heart now pumping harder and faster than ever. How long would it take Snape to release Montag from the toilet? Would he come straight back to his office afterwards or accompany Montag to the hospital wing? Surely the latter. Montag was captain of the Slytherin Quidditch team. Snake would want to make sure he was all right. Harry walked the remaining few feet to the Pensieve and stood over it, gazing into his, into its depths. He hesitated, listening, then pulled out his wand again. The office and the corridor beyond were completely silent. He gave the contents of the Pensieve a small prod with the end of his wand. The silvery stuff would then begin to swirl very fast. Harry leaned forward over it and saw that it had become transparent. He was once again looking down into a room as though a circular window in the ceiling. In fact, unless he was much mistaken, he was looking down upon the Great Hall. His breath was actually fogging the surface of Snape's thoughts. His brain seemed to be in limbo. It would be insane to do the thing that he was so strongly tempted to do. He was trembling. Snape could be back at any moment, but Harry thought of Cho's anger, of Malfoy's jeering face, and a reckless daring seized him. He took a great gulp of breath and plunged his face into the surface of Snape's thoughts. At once, the floor of the office lurked, tipping Harry headfirst into the pensieve. He was falling through cold blackness, spinning furiously as he went, and then... He was standing in the middle of the Great Hall, but the four house tables were gone. Instead, there were more than a hundred smaller tables, all facing the same way, at each of which sat a student, head bent low, scribbling on a roll of parchment. The only sound was the scratching of quills and the occasional rustle as somebody adjusted their parchment. It was clearly exam time. Sunshine was streaming through the high windows into the bent heads, with shown chestnut and copper and gold in the bright light. Harry looked around carefully. Snape had to be here somewhere. This was his memory. And there he was, at a table right behind Harry. Harry stared. Snape the teenager had a strangely pallid look about him, like a plant kept in the dark. His hair was lank and greasy and was flopping onto the table, his hooked nose barely half an inch from the surface of the parchment as he scribbled. Harry moved around behind Snape and read the heading of the examination paper. Defense against the dark arts, ordinary wizarding level. So Snape had to be 15 or 16, around Harry's own age. His hand was flying across the parchment. He had written at least a foot more than his closest neighbors, and yet his writing was minuscule and cramped. Five more minutes! The voice made Harry jump. Turning, he saw the top of Professor Flitwick's head moving between the desk a short distance away. Professor Flitwick was walking past a boy with untidy black hair. Very untidy black hair. Harry moved so quickly that had he been solid, he would have knocked desks flying. Instead, he seemed to be to slide dreamlike across the two aisles and up the third. The back of the black-haired boy's hair uh, head, the back of the black-haired boy's head, drew nearer and nearer. He was straightening up now, putting down his quill, pulling his roll of parchment toward him, so as to reread what he had written. Harry stopped in front of the desk and gazed down at his 15-year-old father. Excitement exploded in the pit of his stomach. It was as though he was looking at himself, but with deliberate mistakes. James' eyes were hazel, his nose was slightly longer than Harry's, and there was no scar on his forehead, but they had the same thin face, same mouth, 
same eyebrows, James' hair stuck up at the back exactly as Harry's did. His hands could have been Harry's, and Harry could tell that when James stood up, they would be within an inch of each other's heights. James yawned hugely and rumped up his hair, rumpled up his hair, making it even messier than it had been. Then with a glance toward Professor Flitwick, he turned in his seat and grinned at a boy sitting four seats behind. With another shock of excitement, Harry saw Sirius give James a thumbs up. Sirius was lounging in the chair at his ease, tilting it back on two legs. He was very good looking. His dark hair fell into his eyes with a sort of casual gaze, casual elegance neither James nor Harry's could ever have achieved, and a girl sitting behind him was eyeing him hopefully, though he didn't seem to have noticed, and two seats along from this girl. Harry's stomach gave another pleasurable squirm. Was Remus Lupin? He looked rather pale and peaky. Was the full moon approaching? And was absorbed in the exam? As he reread reread his answers, he scratched his chin with the end of his quill, frowning slightly. So that meant Wormtail had to be around somewhere too. And sure enough, Harry spotted him within seconds, a small mousy-haired boy with with a pointed nose. Wormtail looked anxious. He was chewing his fingernails, staring down at the paper at his paper, scuffing the ground with his toes. Every now and then he glanced hopefully at his neighbor's paper. Harry stared at Wormtail for a moment, then back at James, who was now doodling on a bit of scrap parchment. He had done he had drawn a snitch and was now tracing the letters L E. What did they stand for? Quills down, please, squeaked Professor Flitwick. That means you too, Stebbins. Please room Remain seated while I collect your parchment. Accio! More than a hundred rolls of parchment zoomed into the air and into Professor Flitwick's outstretched arms, knocking him backward off his feet. Several people laughed. A couple of the students at the front of the desk got up, took hold of Professor Flitwick beneath the elbows, and lifted him onto his feet again. Thank you, thank you, panted Professor Flitwick. Very well. Everybody, you're free to go. Harry looked down at his father, who had hastily crossed out the L.E. He had been embellishing, jumped to his feet, stuffed his quill and the exam question paper into his bag, which he slung over his back and stood waiting for Sirius to join them. Join him. Harry looked around and glimpsed Snape, a short way away, moving between the tables toward the doors into the entrance hall, still absorbed in his own examination paper, round-shouldered yet angular. He walked in a twitching manner, that recalled a spider, his oily hair swiggling about his face. A gang of chattering girls separated Snape from James and Sirius, and by planting himself in the midst of this group, Harry managed to keep Snape in sight while straining his ears to catch the voices of James and his friends. "'Did you like Question 10 Mooney?' asked Sirius as they emerged into the entrance hall." Loved it, said Lupin briskly. Give five signs that identify the werewolf. Excellent question. Do you think you managed to get all those signs? (laughs) Said James in tones of mock concern. Think I did, said Lupin seriously as they joined the crowd thronging around the front doors, eager to get out into the sunlit grounds. One, he's sitting on my chair. Two, he's wearing my clothes. Three, his name is Remus Lupin. Wormtail was the only one who didn't laugh. I got the snout shape, the pupils of the eyes and the tufted tail, he said anxiously. But I couldn't think what else. 
How think how thick are you, Wormtail? <laughs> said James impatiently. You run round with a werewolf once a month. <laughs> Keep your voice down, employed Lupin. Harry looked anxiously behind him again. Snape remained close by, still buried in his examination questions, but this was Snape's memory, and Harry was sure that if Snape chose to wander off in a different direction, once outside in the grounds, he and Harry would not be able to follow James any farther. To his intense relief, however, when James and his three friends strode off, down the lawn towards the lake, Snape followed, still poring over the paper and apparently with no fixed idea of where he was going. By jogging a little ahead of him, Harry managed to maintain a close watch on James and the others. Well, I thought the paper was a piece of cake, he heard Sirius say. I'll be surprised if I don't get an outstanding on it at least. Me too, said James. He put his hand in his pocket and took out a struggling golden snitch. Golden snitch. Where'd you get that? Nickled it, said James casually. He started playing with the snitch, allowing it to fly as much as a foot away and seizing it again. His reflexes were excellent. Wormtail watched him in awe. They stopped in the shade of the very same beech tree on the edge of the lake where Harry, Ron, and Hermione had spent a Sunday finishing their homework and threw themselves down on the grass. Harry looked over the shoulder yet again and saw to his delight that Snape had settled himself on the grass in the defense sh in the dense shadows of a clump of bushes bushes he was deeply immersed in the owl paper as ever which left harry free to sit down on the grass between the beach and the bushes and watch the foursome under the tree the sunlight was dazzling on the smooth surface of the lake on the bank of which the group of laughing girls who had just left the great hall were sitting with shoes and socks off cooling their feet in the water Lupin had pulled out a book and was, re and was reading. Sirius stared around at the students, milling over the grass, looking rather haughty and bored, but very handsomely so. James was still playing with the snitch, letting it zoom farther and farther away, almost escaping, but always grabbed at the last second. Wormtail was watching him with his mouth open. Every time James made a particularly difficult catch, Wormtail gasped and applauded. After five minutes of this, Harry wondered why James didn't tell Wormtail to get a grip on himself, but James seemed to be enjoying the attention. Harry noticed his father had a habit of rumpling up his hair as though to make sure it did not get too tidy, and also that he kept looking over at the girls by the water's edge. Put that away, will you? said Sirius finally as James made a fine catch and Wormtail let out a cheer before Wormtail wets himself from excitement. Wormtail turned slightly pink, and put, but James grinned. If it bothers you, he said, stuffing the snitch back in his pocket. Harry had the distinct impression that Sirius was the only one for whom James would have stopped showing off. I'm bored, said Sirius. Wish it was a full moon. You might, said Lupin darkly from behind his book. We've still got transfiguration if you're bored. You could test me. Here. He held out the book. Sirius snorted. I don't need to look at that rubbish. I know it all. "'This'll liven you up, Padfoot,' said James quietly. "'Look who it is!' Sirius's head turned. He had become very still like a dog that was scented a rabbit. That has scented a rabbit. "'Excellent!' he said softly. "'Snivellus!' Harry turned to see... "'Snivellus.' "'Snivellus, sorry, my bad. "'Snivellus!' <laughs> yeah, Snivellus. Jay Nelly with the names. "'Excellent,' he said softly. "'Snivellus!' Harry turned to see what Sirius was looking at. Snape was on his feet again and was stowing the owl paper in his bag. 
As he emerged from the shadow of the bushes and set off across the grass, Sirius and James stood up. Lupin and Wormtail remained sitting. Lupin was still staring down at his book, though his eyes were not moving and a faint frown line had appeared between his eyebrows. Wormtail was looking from Sirius and James to Snape, with a look of avid anticipation on his face. All right, Snivellus, said James loudly. Snape reacted so fast it was as though he had been expecting an attack. Dropping his bag, he plunged his head, hand inside his robes, and his wand was halfway into the air when James shouted, Expelliarmus! Snape's wand flew 12 feet into the air and fell with a little thud in the grass behind him. Sirius let out a bark of laughter. Impedimenta, he said, pointing his wand at Snape, who was knocked off his feet, halfway through a dive toward his fallen wand. Students all around had turned to watch. Some of them had gotten to their feet and were edging nearer to watch. Some looked apprehensive, others entertained. Snape lay panting on the ground. James and Sirius advanced on him. Wands up. James glancing over his shoulder as the girls of the water's edge as they went. Wormtail was on his feet now, watching hungrily, edging around Lupin to get a clearer view. How'd exams go, Snivelli? said James. I was watching them. His nose was touching the par parchment, said Sirius viciously. There'll be great grease marks all over it. They won't be able to read a word. Several people watched, laughed. Snape was clearly unpopular. Wormtail sniggered shrilly. Uh, Snape was trying to get up, but the jinx was still operating on him. He was struggling, as though bound by invisible ropes. You wait, he panted, staring up at James with an expression of purest loathing. You wait! Wait for what? said Sirius coolly. What are you going to do, snivelly? <laughs> snivelly? Wipe your nose on us? Snape let out a stream of mixed swear words and hexes, but as one being ten feet away, nothing happened. Wash out your mouth, said James coldly. Scourgeify! Pink soap bubbles streamed from Snape's mouth at once. The froth was covering his lips, making him gag, choking him. Leave him alone! James and Sirius looked around. James' free hand jumped to his hair again. It was one of the girls from the lake's edge. Lake Edge. She had thick, dark red hair that fell to her shoulders and startlingly green almond-shaped eyes. Harry's eyes. Harry's mother. All right, Evans, said James, and the tone of his voice was suddenly pleasant, deeper, more mature. Leave him alone, Lily repeated. She was looking at James with every sign of great dislike. What's he done to you? Well, said James, appearing to deliberate the point, it's more the fact that he exists, if you know what I mean. Many of the surrounding watchers laughed, Sirius and Wormtail included, but Lupin, still apparently intent on his book, didn't, and neither did Lily. You think you're funny, she said coldly, but you're just an arrogant, bullying toe rag. Potter, leave him alone. I will if you go out with me, Evans, said James quickly. Go on. Go out with me, and I'll never lay a wand on old Snivelli, Snivelli again. <laughs> Behind him, the impediment jinx was wearing off. Snake was beginning to inch toward his fallen wand, speeding, spitting, his, spitting out soap suds as he crawled. I wouldn't go out with you if it was a choice between you and the giant squid, said Lily. Bad luck, Pronks, said Sirius briskly, turning back to Snape. Oi, <laughs> 
But too late, Snape had directed his wand straight at James. There was a flash of light and gash appeared on the side of James's face, spattering his robes with blood. James whirled about a second flash of light later. Snape was hanging upside down in the air, his robes falling over his head to reveal skinny, pallid legs and a pair of graying underpants. Many people in the small crowd watched, cheered. Sirius James and Wormtail roared with laughter. Lily, whose furious expression had twitched for an instant as though she was going to smile, said, Let him down! Certainly, said James, and he jerked the wand upward. Snape fell into a crumpled heap on the ground, disentangling himself from his robes. He got quickly to his feet, wand up, but Sirius said, Locomoto Mortis! And Snape keeled over again at once, rigid as a board. Leave him alone! Lily shouted. She had her own wand out now. James and Sirius eyed it wearily. Ah, Evans, don't make me hex you, said James earnestly. Take the curse off him then. James sighed deeply, then turned to Snape and muttered the counter curse. There you go, he said as Snape struggling to his feet again. You're lucky, Evans. <laughs> Evans was here, sniv Snivellus. I don't need help from filthy little mudbloods like her. Lily blinked. Fine, she said coolly. I won't bother in the future, and I'd wash your pants if I were you, Snivellus. Apologize to Evans, James roared at Snape. His wand pointed threaten threateningly at him. I don't want you to make him apologize, Lily shouted, rounding on James. You're as bad as he is. What? yelled James. I'd never call you a... You know what? Messing up, messing up your hair because you think it looks cool to look like you just got off your broomstick? Showing off with a stupid snitch? Walking down the corridors and hexing anyone who annoys you just because you can? I'm surprised your broomstick can't get off the ground with that fat head on it. You make me sick. She turned on her heel and hurried away. Evans! James shouted after her. Hey, Evans! But she didn't look back. What is it with her? Said James, trying and failing to look as though this was a throwaway question of no real importance to him. Reading between the lines, I'd say she thinks you're a bit conceited, mate, said Sirius. Right, said James, who looked furious now. Right. There was another flash of light, and Snape was once again hanging upside down in the air. Who wants to see me take Snivelly's pants? But whether James really did take off Snape's pants, Harry never found out. A hand had closed tight over his upper arm, closed with a pincer-like grip. Wincing, Harry looked around to see who had a hold of him, and saw, with a thrill of horror, a fully grown adult-sized Snape standing right beside him, with white with rage. Having fun? Harry felt himself rising into the air. The summer's day evaporated around him. He was floating upward through icy blackness. Snape's hand still tied upon his upper arm. Then, with a swooping feeling as though he had turned, turned head over heels in midair, his feet hit the stone floor of Snape's dungeon, and he was standing again beside the Pensieve on Snape's desk in the shadowy present-day Potions Master's study. So, Snape, said Snape, gripping Harry's arm so tightly, Harry's hand was starting to feel numb. So, been enjoying yourself, Potter? N no, said Harry, trying to free his arm. It was, it was scary. Snape's lips were shaking. His face was white. His teeth were barred. Amusing man, your father, wasn't he? 
said Snape, shaking Harry so hard that his glasses slipped down his nose. I, di- I didn't. Snape threw Harry from him with all his might. Harry fell hard on the dungeon floor, onto the dungeon floor. You will not repeat what you saw to anybody, Snape bellowed. No, said Harry, getting to his feet as far from Snape as he could. No, of course I... Get out! Get out! I don't want to see you in this office ever again! And as Harry hurtled towards the door, a jar of dead cockroaches exploded over his head. He wrenched the door open and flew away up the corridor, stopping only when he had put three floors between himself and Snape. There he leaned against the wall, panting and rubbing his bruised arm. He had no desire at all to return to the Gryffindor Tower so early, nor to tell Ron and Hermione what he had just seen. What was making Harry feel so horrified and unhappy was not being shouted at or having jars thrown at him. It was that he knew how it felt to be humiliated in the middle of a circle of onlookers, knew exactly how Snape had felt as his father had taunted him, and that judging from what he had just seen, his father had been every bit as arrogant as Snape had always told him. Crazy, man. That's, uh... And, uh, you know, we try not to keep it story time with Chase and Josh, but there's just so much detail. Um, and, you know, the big point from that that we really learned is, you know, all these... Think about all the way back from Sorcerer's Stone. You know, when... Snape's always been like your father was a swine well now we're starting to see you know even though that statement might not be entirely true it very well has some truth to it for the way James acted Um, so back to you my man yeah there was there was a couple things from that chapter that's a good takeaway number one like Umbridge tried to like poison Harry with some truth serum to get get some information about (laughs) where Sirius is where Dumbledore is uh, starts like thinking uh, to put executive orders to allow whipping from Filch to the students when they misbehave, like hanging them up by their ankles. Like this whole school is doing a complete 180 from where Dumbledore left it to where Umbridge is taking up from it. On top of that, we've got Fred and George like determined to make a lot of mischief and uh, make life very <laughs> very hard for Umbridge, which you know I, I love and appreciate. And then to the last point here of everything that we just saw in the pen seat with Snape. What it does is it really details the reasons why Snape dislikes Sirius so much, why they hate each other, why Snape has always spoke poorly about Harry's father, and why Snape almost like <clears throat> vicariously hates Harry because he reminds him so much of James. So like right. it shows us some of the why behind Snape's actions. So we kind of get he almost becomes a sympathetic figure. So if you're if you're reading all the way to this point, like you just, especially as a kid, if you're reading it, you really don't like Snape. He's been mean to Harry this whole time. He's just a jerk of a teacher. He's helped out Harry certain ways in terms of saving him from falling off the broom and Sorcerer's Stone. But really, throughout the series, he's just been a thorn in Harry's side. But like now, we kind of get the why behind it, and you know those kind of memories they don't fade fast. And I kind of we can kind of see. Yeah. Especially with that specific memory that we saw, why Snape feels the way he does about Harry's dad, and subsequently Harry because of that. So definitely, yeah. Was, with with yeah. <laughs> with that, I'll go ahead and carry on into our our next chapter here: yeah, career dude. advice. Just a quick um, thing. Uh, yeah. One big thing I took away from that was Lily sticking up for Snape, which plays a big role later on 
um, with why Snape, you know, how he feels towards her. But yeah, I mean, that was uh, just uh, really, there's nothing worse in this world than a bully. And you almost feel helpless for Snape. Like you wish you were just there to stop everything. But think about that, like how messed up everyone was. It took a, a, a woman to stand up to three full-grown grown-ass men picking on this kid like no one wanted to step in the way almost like no one wanted to well let's not bother. call them full gro- not full grown-ass men they're 15 years old okay I think 15, you, you always, yeah you always have this terrible idea with people's age in this series man. They're, 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 they're <laughs> grown-ass men they're, they're 40 children years old. <laughs> they're 15 they're 15 years old they're kids in high school like you know like the, you know people and like we'll find out a little bit later on too like when harry finally has a discussion with certain people about what he saw you know, them say the kind of thing, you know, people grow and get more mature as they get older. So they aren't full grown men. Like yeah. she stood up to, and it wasn't three, it was two. Lupin was sitting by himself, like reading a book. Wormtail can't do anything because he's half an idiot. So it's really just Sirius and James that are kind of being a bully, you know. So she stood up no to Sirius there, and James, like, where bothered. most other people just kind of let it happen. Yeah. True. Yeah. But yeah, full no, grown men. She definitely stuck up for him. That, that shows the character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll let, yeah full but, grown uh, men was an expression yeah. I know they're 15, 16 <laughs> with that I'll let uh, Jay Nelly take us away man we're chugging right along <laughs> chugging along and the good news is with this chapter mm-hmm. I can kind of go through a good couple things with just bullet points instead of reading the whole thing I'm going to read towards the end Awesome. Um, but the good news is for the first bit of this chapter I can talk a little bit about it in terms of bullets so in page 651, we kind of learn that there's going to be no more occlumency classes with Snape. He doesn't want Harry anywhere near his office again. He doesn't want it. So uh, that that's done. Occlumency is done, which kind of goes and plays into a big role later on. Uh, page 651, Hermione makes Harry and Ron schedules because, like, you know, their exams are coming up here pretty soon. So she makes some schedules, which is nice of her. Uh, page 653... Harry is kind of tortured by what he saw in the Pensieve. Like, he starts to question if his dad was really a good guy or not. You know, and, and that's, there's nothing worse than that because, like, he's got no way of telling because his dad's passed away. So, he's stuck with these tortured thoughts of, like, man, I've always kind of looked up to my dad. And, like, when people told me I, I remind them of him, I always felt, like, a sense of pride. But, like, mm-hmm. man, this is, like, if he was really like this, is that something to be really proud of, you know? Right. So, that kind of sad, right? And uh, page 655. This is a kind of a funny thing because it kind of gives homage to my boys, Fred and George. It's when Harry tells Ginny that like he wants to talk to Sirius, and Ginny tells him that hey, like they think that they can come up with a way. And uh, she, this is the exact words: "The thing about growing up with Fred and George," said Ginny thoughtfully, "is that you sort of start thinking anything's possible if you've got enough nerve." So that was really nice. So they're gonna come up with some way for Harry to be able to speak to Sirius about what he saw in the Pensieve. And that's kind of coming to the full circle of what I was saying, like when Harry finally talks to people about what he saw. That's coming up here shortly. So going on for, uh, going there, I'm going to read the career advice excerpt on page 656. Career advice. All fifth years will be required to attend a short meeting with their head of house during the first week of summer term in which they will be given the opportunity to discuss their future careers. Times of individual appointments are listed below. So this is before the exams, they're going to start looking at what classes they're going to be taking next year because it's going to decide where they want to go for their life outside of Hogwarts. Right. So we're going to kind of come up here really shortly on 
what Harry wants to do once he graduates Hogwarts. He hasn't really thought much about it, but when he gets to this office here, and that's where I'll take up here pretty shortly, um, we get to learn a little bit about it. So, and page 657, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, they're looking at pamphlets of potential career opportunities. Uh, just for example, Curse Breakers at Gringotts, uh, that, that's one of the things, um, work in muggle relations. That's another one that popped up being a healer for St. Mungo's is another thing they were looking at. So just a couple little uh, options that they were seeing from the pamphlets that were spread out across the, the, the common room. Uh, on page 657, I'm going to go ahead and read like a little page here. It says from the part where it says, Hey, said a voice in Harry's ear, which happens to be from, uh, Fred and Frank, well, Fred, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Anyways, hey, said a voice in Harry's ear. He looked around. Fred and George had come to join them. Ginny's had a word with us about you, said Fred, stretching his legs out on the table in front of them and causing several booklets on careers with the Ministry of Magic to slide off the floor. She says you need to talk to Sirius? What? said Hermione sharply, freezing with her hand halfway towards picking up uh, make a bang at the Department of Magical Accidents and Catastrophes. Yeah, said Harry, trying to sound casual. Yeah, I, I thought I'd like... Don't be so ridiculous, said Hermione, straightening up and looking at him as though he, she could not believe her eyes. With Umbridge groping around in fires and frisking all the owls? Well, we think we can find a way around that, said George, stretching and smiling. It's a simple matter of causing a diversion. Now, you might have noticed that we've been rather quiet on the mayhem front during the Easter holidays? What was the point, we asked ourselves, of disrupting leisure time, continued Fred. No point at all, we answered ourselves. And of course... We'd have messed up people studying too, which would be the very last thing we'd want to do. And he gave Hermione a sanctimonious little nod. She looked rather taken aback by this thoughtfulness. But it's business as usual from tomorrow, continued Fred briskly. And if we're going to be causing a bit of an uproar, why not do it so that Harry can have his chat with Sirius? Yes, but still, said Hermione with an air of explaining something to a very simple, uh, very something very simple to somebody who was very obtuse. Even if you do cause a diversion. How was Harry supposed to talk to him? Umbridge's office, said Harry quietly. He had been thinking about it for a fortnight. He could think of no other alternative. Umbridge herself had told him that the only fire that was not being watched was her own. Are you insane? said Hermione in a hushed voice. Ron had lowered his leaflet on jobs and cultivated fungus trades and was watching the conversation warily. I don't think so, said Harry shrugging. How are you going to get in, her, in there to the fireplace? And Harry was already ready for this question. Sirius is knife, he said. Excuse me? Christmas before last, Sirius gave me a knife that'll open any lock. So even if she bewitched the door so Alohomora won't work, which I bet she has. What do you think about this? Hermione demanded of Ron. And Harry was reminded irresistibly of Mrs. Weasley appealing to her husband, which is kind of funny, a little foreshadowing. Uh, Harry, during uh, Harry's first dinner at Grimmauld Place. Uh, I don't know, said Ron, looking alarmed at being asked to give an opinion. If Harry wants to do it, it's up to him, isn't it? Spoken like a true Fred and Weasley, said Fred, clapping Ron on the back. Right then, we're thinking of doing it tomorrow. Just after lessons, because it should cause maximum impact if everybody's in the corridors. Harry, we'll set off in the east wing somewhere, draw her right away from her office, and I reckon we should be able to guarantee you what? 20 minutes, he said, looking at George. Easy, said George. What sort of diversion is it, asked Ron. You'll see, little bro. At least you will if you trot along to Gregory the Smarties Corridor around 5 o'clock tomorrow. 
So there, there's a couple foreshadows in here, right? They're him like kind of making the pass at like how Ron and Hermione reminded uh, him of Mrs. Weasley and Mr. Weasley at dinner time, like arguing or something, and like a little bit of foreshadow about what Fred and George are planning to do next with this uproar, and also Harry going to speak with Sirius in the fire. There's a lot that kind of goes on in just that small amount of time. Mm-hmm. So going on to page 660, Hermione is trying to talk Harry out of breaking into Professor Umbridge's office to talk to Sirius. Um, and on going on a little bit further from there, in page 661, Snape unfairly gives Harry a zero on his invigoration drought. <laughs> now, this was really messed up, because what had happened yeah. is Harry actually did a fantastic job on it for once in potions class. Mm-hmm. He put it in that little, like, vial, and he went to put it on Snape's desk, and, like, Snape, like, like switched it and knocked it off with his wand, and it smashed to the floor, and he's like, oops, Looks like another zero for Potter then. And Hermione had already like finished cleaning up like Harry's rest of his potion. So Harry r- really got the shaft on that end. Like he yeah, finally did something good in potions and he still got a zero because Snape's holding that grudge for him seeing what happened in the Pensieve. Yeah. So that was, that was pretty messed up. However, super messed up. Going back <laughs> to this, Dumbledore has warned Harry so many times to not be getting too curious. So, whatever. I mean, I wouldn't have done it. I thought it was pretty messed up, but if all he's got to take is a zero, <laughs> well, maybe you shouldn't have been snooping. Maybe you should have kept your nose out of other people's business, Harry. It Back was for sure childish, <laughs> though. For sure childish. Yeah, true. Yeah, so, it was childish. <laughs> with that, Harry meets with Professor McGonagall to discuss potential career paths. And actually... Umbridge is in the room observing this meeting between them. So I'm actually going to read um, from here, and here we go with story time again, uh, through the end of the chapter. <laughs> yeah. So this because there's just a lot of stuff that needs mm-hmm. to be said. So let me go ahead and take a little malice in the chalice here. Malice cheers before I get started baby. from cheers. this to the end of the chapter, and move on or through to the last one that we'll have for you for this week's episode. All right. Perfect. So I'll go ahead and start from where it says, Well, I thought of maybe being an Auror, Harry mumbled. You'd need top grades for that, said Professor McGonagall, extracting a small, dark leaflet from under the mass on her desk and opening it. They ask for a minimum of five newts, and nothing under exceeds expectations grade, I see. Then he would be required to undergo a stringent series of character and aptitude tests at the Auror office. It's a difficult career path, Potter. They only take the best. In fact, I don't think anybody has been taken on in the last three years. At this moment, Professor Umbridge gave a very tiny cough, as though she was trying to see how quietly she could do it, and Professor McGonagall ignored her. You'll want to know which subjects you ought to take, I suppose, she went on talking a little more loudly than before. Yes, defense against the dark arts, I suppose. Naturally, said Professor McGonagall crisply. I would also advise... Professor Umbridge gave another cough, a little more audible this time. Professor McGonagall closed her eyes for a moment, opened them again, and then continued as though nothing happened. I would also advise transfiguration, because Aurors frequently need to transfigure or untransfigure in their work. And I ought to tell you now, Potter, that I do not accept students into my newt classes unless they have achieved and exceeds expectations or higher at ordinary wizarding level. I'd say you're averaging acceptable at the moment, so you'll need to put in some good hard work before the exams to stand a chance of continuing. 
Then you want to do charms, always useful, and potions. Yes, Potter, potions, she added with the merest flicker of a smile. Poisons and antidotes are essential study for Aurors. And I must tell you that Professor Snape absolutely refuses to take students who get anything other than outstanding in their owls. So, Professor Umbridge gave her most pronounced cough yet. May I offer you a cough drop, Dolores? Professor McGonagall asked curtly without looking at Professor Umbridge. Oh no, thank you very much, said Umbridge, with that simpering laugh that Harry hated so much. I was just wondering if I could make the teensiest interruption, Minerva. I dare say you'll find you can, said Professor McGonagall through tightly gritted teeth. I was just wondering whether Mr. Potter has quite the temperament for an auror, said Professor Umbridge sweetly. Were you? said Professor McGonagall haughtily. Well, Potter, she continued, as though there had been no interruption, if you're serious in this ambition, I would advise you to concentrate hard on bringing your transfiguration and potions up to scratch. I see Professor Flitwick has graded you between acceptable and exceed expectations for the last two years, so your charm work seems satisfactory. As for defense against the dark arts, your marks have generally been high. Professor Lupin in particular thought, Are you quite sure you wouldn't like a cough drop, Dolores? Oh, no need, thank you, Minerva, simpered Professor Umbridge, who had just coughed her loudest yet. I was just concerned that you might not have might not have Harry's most recent defense against a dark arc mark in front of you. I'm quite sure I slipped in a note. What, this thing? said Professor McGonagall in the total revulsion, as she pulled a sheet of pink parchment from between the leaves of Harry's folder. She glanced down on it, eyebrows slightly raised, then placed it back into the folder without comment. Yes. As I was saying, Potter, Professor Lupin thought you showed a pronounced aptitude for the subject, and obviously for an auror. Did you not understand my note, Minerva? asked Professor Umbridge in a honey-toned voice, quite forgetting to cough. Of course I understood it, said Professor McGonagall, her teeth clenched so tightly that the words came out a little muffled. Well then, I am confused. I'm afraid I don't quite understand how you can give Mr. Potter false hope that— False hope, repeated Professor McGonagall, still refusing to look around at Umbridge. He has achieved high marks in all of his defense against the art, Dark Arts test. I'm terribly sorry to have to contradict you, Minerva, but as you will have seen from my note, Harry has been achieving very poor results in classes with me. I should have made my meaning plainer, said Professor McGonagall, turning at last to look at Umbridge directly in the eyes. He has achieved high marks in all defense against the Dark Arts test set by a competent teacher. And Professor Umbridge's smile vanished suddenly as a light bulb blowing. She sat back in her chair, turned a sheet on her clipboard, and began scribbling very fast indeed, her eyes bulging, rolling from side to side. And Professor McGonagall turned back to Harry, her thin nostrils flailed, eyes burning. Any questions, Potter? Uh, yes, said Harry. What sort of character and aptitude tests do the Ministry do on you if you get enough newts? Well, you'll need to demonstrate the ability to react well to pressure and so forth said Professor McGonagall, perseverance and dedication, because aura training takes a further three years, not to mention very high skills and practical defense. It will mean a lot more study even after you left school. So unless you're prepared to, I think you'll also find, said Umbridge, her voice very cold now, that the ministry looks into the records of those applying to be aurors. They're criminal records. Unless you're prepared to take even more exams after Hogwarts, you should really look at another, which means that this boy has as much chance of becoming an Auror as Dumbledore has of ever returning to the school. A very good chance, then, said Professor McGonagall. Potter has a criminal record, said Umbridge Dudley. P 
Potter has been cleared of all charges, said Professor McGonagall even more loudly. Professor Umbridge stood up. She was so short that this did not make a great deal of difference, but her fussy, simpering demeanor had given place to a hard fury that made her broad, flabby face look oddly sinister. Potter has no chance whatsoever of becoming an Auror. Professor McGonagall got to her feet, too, and in her case, this was much more an impressive move. She towered over Professor Umbridge. Potter, she said ringing in, tone, in, in ringing tones, I will assist you to become an Auror if it is the last thing I do. If I have to coach you nightly, I will make sure you achieve the required results. The Minister of Magic will never employ Harry Potter, said Umbridge, her voice rising furiously. There may well be a new Minister of Magic by the time Potter is ready to join, shouted Professor McGonagall. Aha! shrieked Professor Umbridge, pointing a stubby finger at McGonagall. Yes! Yes, yes, of course! That's what you want, isn't it? Isn't it, Minerva McGonagall? You want Cornelius Fudge replaced by Albus Dumbledore. You think you'll be where I am, don't you? Senior Secretary to the Minister and Headmistress to boot. You are raving, said Professor McGonagall superbly disdainfully. Potter, that concludes our career consultation. Harry swung his bag over his shoulder and hurried out of the room, not daring to look at Umbridge. He could hear her and Professor McGonagall continuing to shout at each other all the way back down the corridor. Professor Umbridge, who was still breathing as though she had just run a race when she strode into their defense against a dark arts lesson that afternoon. I hope you've thought better what you're planning to do, Harry, Hermione whispered the moment they'd opened their books to Chapter 34, Non-Retaliation and Negotiation. Umbridge looks like she's in a really bad mood already. Every now and then, Umbridge shot glowing looks at Harry, who kept his head down, staring at defense magical theory, his eyes unfocused, thinking. He could just imagine Professor McGonagall's reaction if he were to be caught trespassing in Professor Umbridge's office as mere hours after she had vouched for him. There was nothing from stopping him from simply going back to Gryffindor Tower and hoping that sometime during the next summer holiday, he would have the chance to talk to Sirius and ask him about the scene he witnessed in the Pensieve. Nothing except that the thought of taking the sensible course of action made him feel as though a lead weight had dropped into his stomach. And then there was the matter of Fred and George, whose diversion was already planned, not to mention the knife Sirius had given him, which was currently residing in his school bag, along with his father's old invisibility cloak. But the fact remained, if he were caught... Dumbledore sacrificed himself to keep you in school, Harry, whispered Hermione, raising her book to hide her face from Umbridge. If you get thrown out today, it will all vent through not for nothing. He could abandon the plan and simply learn to live with the memory of what his father had done on a summer's day more than 20 years ago. And then he remembered Sirius in the fire upstairs in the upstairs Gryffindor common room. You're less like your father than I thought. The risk would have been what made it fun for James. But did he want to be like his father anymore? Harry, don't do it. Please don't do it, said Hermione in anguished tones as a bell rang at the end of class. He did not answer. He did not know what to do. Ron seemed determined to neither give his opinion or his advice. He would not look at Harry, though when Hermione opened her mouth to try to dissuade Harry some more, he did say in a low voice, Give it a rest, okay? He can make up his own mind. Harry's heart beat very fast as he left the classroom. He was halfway along the corridor outside when he heard the unmistakable sounds of a diversion going off in the distance. There were screams and yells reverberating from somewhere above them. People exiting the classrooms all around Harry were stopping in their tracks and looking at the ceiling fearfully. Then Umbridge came pelting out of her classroom as fast as her short legs would carry her. Pulling out her wand, she hurried off in the opposite direction. It was now or never. 
Harry, please, said Hermione weakly. But he had made up his mind. Hitching his bag more securely onto his shoulder, he set off at a run, weaving in and out of students, now hurrying in the opposite direction to see what all the fuss was about in the east wing. Harry reached the corridor of where Umbridge's office was situated. Creaked around, whose, dashing behind a large suit of armor whose helmet creaked around to watch him, he pulled his bag, seized Sirius's knife, and donned the invisibility cloak. He then crept slowly and carefully back out from behind the suit of armor and along the corridor until he reached Umbridge's door. He inserted the blade of magical knife into the crack around it and moved it gently up and down and withdrew it. There was a tiny click and the door swung open. He ducked inside the office, closed the door behind him, and looked around. It was empty. Nothing was moving except horrible kittens on the plates continuing to frolic on the wall above the confiscated broomsticks. Harry pulled off his cloak and, striding over to the fireplace, found what he was looking for within seconds. A small box containing glittering flu powder. He crouched down in front of the empty grate, handshaking. He had never done this before, though he thought he knew how it must work. Sticking his head into the fireplace, he took a large pinch of the powder and dropped it onto the logs stacked neatly beneath him. They exploded at once into emerald green flames. Number 12, Grimald Place, said Harry loudly and clearly. It was one of the most curious sensations he had ever experienced. He had traveled by flu powder before, of course, but then it had been his entire body that had spun around and around in the flames through the network of wizarding fireplaces that stretched over the country. This time, his knees remained firm on the cold floor of Umbridge's office, and only his head hurtled through the emerald fire. And then, abruptly as it begun, the spinning stopped. Feeling rather sick, as though he was wearing an exceptionally hot muffler around his head, Harry opened his eyes to find that he was looking up out of the kitchen fireplace at the long wooden table where a man sat peering, pouring over a piece of parchment. Serious? The man jumped and looked around. It was not Sirius, but Lupin. Harry, he said, looking thoroughly shocked. What are you? What's happened? Is everything all right? Yes, said Harry. I just wondered. I mean, I, I fancied a chat with Sirius. I'll call him, said Lupin, getting to his feet, still looking perplexed. He went upstairs to look for Creature. He seems to be hiding in the attic again. And Harry saw Lupin hurry out of the kitchen. Now he's left with nothing to look at but the chair and table legs. He wondered why Sirius had never mentioned how uncomfortable it was to speak out of the fire. His knees were already adjusting painfully to the prolonged contact with Umbridge's hard stone floor. And Lupin returned with Sirius at his heels moments later. What is it? said Sirius urgently, sweeping his long dark hair out of his eyes and dropping to the ground in front of the fire so that him and Harry were on a level. Lupin knelt down too, looking very concerned. Are you alright? Do you need help? No, said Harry. It's nothing like that. I just, I wanted to talk about my dad. They exchanged a look of great supplies, but Harry did not have time to feel awkward or embarrassed. His knees were becoming sore, and by the second, he guessed that five minutes had already passed from the start of the diversion, and George had only guaranteed him twenty. So, therefore, he immediately plunged to the story of what he had seen in the Pensieve. When he had finished... Neither Sirius nor Lupin spoke for a moment. Then Lupin said quietly, I wouldn't like you to judge your father on what you saw there, Harry. He was only fifteen. I'm fifteen, said Harry heatedly. Look, Harry, said Sirius placatingly. James and Snape hated each other from the moment they set eyes on each other. It was just one of those things. You can understand that, can't you? I think James was everything Snape wanted to be. He was popular, good at Quidditch, pretty much good at everything. And Snape was just this little oddball who was up to his eyes in the dark arts 
And James, whatever else he may have appeared to you, Harry, always hated the Dark Arts. Yeah, said Harry, but he just attacked Snape for no good reason. Just because, well, because you said you were bored. He finished with a slightly apologetic note in his voice. I'm not proud of it, said Sirius quickly. Lupin looked sideways at Sirius and said, Look, Harry, what you've got to understand is that your father and Sirius were the best in school at whatever they did. Everyone thought they were the height of cool, even if they sometimes got a bit carried away. If we were sometimes arrogant little burks, you mean, said Sirius. Lupin smiled. He kept messing up his hair, said Harry in a pained voice. Sirius and Lupin laughed. I'd forgotten he used to do that, said Harry affectionately. Was he playing with the snitch, said Lupin eagerly. Yeah, said Harry, watching uncomprehendingly as Sirius and Lupin beamed reminiscently. Well, I, I thought he was a bit of an idiot. Of course he was a bit of an idiot, said Sirius bracingly. We were all idiots. Well, not Mooney so much, he said fairly, looking at Lupin. But Lupin shook his head. Lupin shook his head. Did I ever tell you to lay off, Snape? He said, did I ever have the guts to tell you I thought you were out of order? Yeah, well, you made us feel ashamed of ourselves sometimes, and that was something. And, said Harry, doggedly, determined to say everything that was on his mind now that he was here. He kept looking over at the girls by the lake, hoping they were watching him. Oh, well, he always made a fool of himself whenever Lily was around, said Sirius, shrugging. He couldn't stop himself showing off whenever he got near her. How come she married him? Harry asked miserably. She hated him. Nah, she didn't, said Sirius. She started going out with him in seventh year, once James had deflated his head a bit, and stopped texting people just for the fun of it. Even Snape, said Harry. Well, said Lupin slowly, Snape was a special case. I mean, he never lost an opportunity to curse James, so you couldn't really expect to have James take that lying down, could you? And my mom was okay with that? She didn't know too much about it, to tell you the truth, said Sirius. I mean, James didn't take Snape on dates with her and jinx him in front of her, did he? Sirius frowned at Harry, who was still looking unconvinced. Look, he said, your father was the best friend I ever had, and he was a good person. A lot of people are idiots at the age of 15. He grew out of it. Yeah, okay. I just never thought I'd feel sorry for Snape. Now that you mention it, said Lupin, a faint crease between his eyebrows, how did he react when he found out you saw all this? He told me he'd never teach me a clemency again, said Harry, indifferently. Like, that's a big disappointment. He what? shouted Sirius, causing Harry to jump and inhale a mouthful of ashes. Are you serious, Harry? He stopped giving you lessons? Yeah, said Harry, surprised that way he considered a great overreaction. But it's okay. I don't care. It's a bit of a relief to tell you that I'm coming up there to have a word with Snape, said Sirius forcefully, and he actually made to stand up, but Lupin wrenched him back down again. If anyone's going to tell Snape, it's going to be me, he said firmly. But Harry, first of all, you're to go back to Snape and tell him on no account is he to stop giving you lessons. And when Dumbledore hears, I can't tell him that. He'd kill me, said Harry outraged. You didn't see him when we got out of the Pensieve. Harry, there is nothing so important as you learning a clemency, said Lupin sternly. Do you understand me? Nothing. Okay, okay, said Harry, thoroughly decomposed, not to mention annoyed. I'll, I'll try and say something to him, but it won't be... He fell silent. He could hear distant footsteps. Is that creature coming downstairs? No, said Sirius, glancing behind him. It must be somebody on your end. Harry's heart skipped several beats. I'd better go, he said hastily, and he pulled his head backwards out of the grim old place's fire. For a moment, his head seemed to be revolving on his shoulders, and then he found himself kneeling in front of Umbridge's fire with his head firmly back on, watching the emerald flames flicker and die. Quickly, 
Quickly, he heard a wheezing voice right outside the office door. Ah! She's left it open. Harry dived for the invisibility cloak and had just managed to pull it back over himself when Filch burst into the office. He looked absolutely delighted about something and was talking to himself feverishly as he crossed the room. He pulled open a drawer in Umbridge's desk and began rifling through the papers inside it. Approval for whipping! Approval for whipping! I can do it at last! They've had it coming to them for years! He pulled out a piece of parchment, kissed it, then shuffled rapidly back out the door, clutching it to his chest. Harry leapt to his feet, making sure that he had his bag and invisibility cloak and was completely covering him. He wrenched open the door and hurried out of the office after Filch, who was hobbling along faster than Harry had ever seen him go. One landing down from Umbridge's office, and Harry thought it was safe to become visible again. He pulled off the cloak, shoved it in his bag, and hurried onward. There was a great deal of shouting and movement coming from the entrance hall. He ran down the marble staircase and found what looked like most of the school assembled there. It was just like the night when Trelawney had been sacked. Students were standing all around the walls in a great ring. Some of them, Harry noticed, covered in a substance that looked very much like stink sap. Teachers and ghosts were also in the crowd. Prominent among the onlookers were members of the Inquisitorial Squad, who were all looking exceptionally pleased with themselves. And Peeves, who was bobbling overhead, gazed down upon Fred and George, who stood in the middle of the floor with the unmistakable look of two people who had just been cornered. So, said Umbridge triumphantly, whom Harry realized was standing just a few stairs in front of him, one more looking down, like once more looking down upon her prey. So, you think it was amusing to turn a school corridor into a swamp, do you? Pretty amusing, yeah, said Fred, looking back <laughs> up her without the slightest sign of fear. Filch elbowed his way closer to Umbridge, almost crying with happiness. I've got the form headmistress, he said hoarsely, waving the piece of parchment Harry had just seen him take from the desk. I've got the form. I've got the whips waiting. Oh, let me do it now. Very good, Argus, she said. You two, she went on, gazing down at Fred and George, are about to learn what happens to wrongdoers in my school. You know what, said Fred? I don't think we are. He turned to his twin. George, said Fred. I think we've outgrown full-time education. Yeah, I've been feeling that way myself, said George lightly. Time to test our talents in the real world, do you reckon? Asked Fred. Definitely, said George. And before Umbridge could say a word, they raised their wands and together said, Accio brooms! Harry heard a loud crash somewhere in the distance. Looking to his left, he ducked just in time as Fred and George's broomsticks, one still trailing the heavy chain with the iron peg in which Umbridge had fastened them to the wall with, were hurtling along the corridor towards their owners. They turned left, straight down the stairs, and, stood sh and stopped sharply in front of the twins, the chain clattering loudly on the stone flagged floor. We won't be seeing you, Fred told Professor Umbridge, swinging his leg over his broomstick. Yeah, don't bother to keep in touch, said George, mounting his own. Fred looked around at the assembled students and at the silent, watchful crowd. If anyone fancies buying a portable swamp, as demonstrated upstairs, come to number 93 Diagon Alley. Weasley's Wizarding Wheezes, he said in a loud voice. Our new premises. Special discounts to Hogwarts students who swear they're going to use our products to get rid of this old bat, added George, pointing to Professor Umbridge. Stop them, shrieked Umbridge, but it was too late. As the Inquisitorial Squad closed in, Fred and George kicked off from the floor, shooting 15 feet in the air with the iron peg swinging dangerously below. Fred looked across the hall at the poltergeist, 
bobbing on bobbing on his level above the crowd. Give her hell from us, Peeves. And Peeves, whom Harry had never seen take an order from a student before, swept his belled hat from his head and sprang into a salute as Fred and George wheeled around to a tumultuous applause from the students below and sped out of the open front doors into the glorious sunset. And that ends awesome. that chapter, which is badass. That's my boys. How bad is it for Umbridge? This is the second time people have gotten away right under her nose. Like, on Dumbledore, when they cornered him in his office, now she can't even get two students. Like, they got away. Like, she must feel like a real, like, failure, man. She sucks. Legends, but, man. Your your boys are legends. Legends, sure. man. It's funny, because that's, like, the first sentence of this first chapter. I'm just going to read it, because, like, like you it. said, it's amazing. The story of Fred and George's flight to freedom was retold so often over the next few days that Harry could tell it would soon become the stuff of Hogwarts legend. So Dude, you are awesome. absolutely right. They became legends in that moment. A lot of things to talk about, though, outside of that. The mm-hmm. argument between Professor Umbridge and Professor McGonagall. So they're kind of at odds. Like Umbridge is basically saying Harry's never going to have a job at the Ministry of Magic ever, which... You know, we'll come to find out how that comes out to play. Professor McGonagall saying like she'll do whatever it takes to make sure he does, in fact, do that. But then I've got questions because that kind of raises a plot hole. Right. Because um, newts are done in the seventh year of yeah. Hogwarts, right. and you know we know certain people decide to do other things <laughs> later on. So I'm really curious as to how that played out. So we'll, maybe they made a special uh, circumstance, but we won't get into it. But then on top of that, we got Harry talking to Sirius and Lupin. He seems to feel a little bit better after he got what he got off his chest. Mm-hmm. Lupin and Sirius basically saying what I said. Like, hey, he was a kid. He grew up. It's not how he is as a person. Don't judge your father based on that short you know, memory that you saw. And then, of course, ending the chapter with my guys Fred and George making a portable swamp, causing a big scene, dissing Umbridge to her face, and then flying off. Like with their brooms that she confiscated for them, telling everyone that they own a new premises in Diagon Alley. That was badass. With that, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, man. Uh, why don't we do this then? Because you're, I want to give uh, your boys, uh, Fred and George. Uh, you know, you're you're their guys. So why don't you start us off then, and then I'll take it all the way until we get to the Quidditch matches interrupted. Did you want to split this one in half to close us out? Yeah, dude, absolutely. And like, to your point, exactly. We're, we're on our last chapter to close out what we'll do with the books, but then we'll talk about our potential plot holes and our singular interesting facts. We promise to keep the interesting facts short for you guys today. But, <laughs> this was uh, a long one, but we have to. Yeah. Like, we have 100%. to. 100%. Yeah. There was no way around it. So what I'll do is I'll take this from page 676 through 681, and then I'll, I'll stop right before... Uh, the Quidditch match starts. I'll let you take it from the start of the Quidditch match to the end of the chapter. Does that sound good? Perfect. Sounds great to me. Awesome. Cool beans. So, uh, let me go ahead and start here. Within a week, even those who had been eyewitnesses were half convinced that they had seen the twins dive bomb Umbridge on their brooms, pelting her with dung bombs before zooming out of the corridors. In the immediate aftermath of their departure, there was a great wave of people talking about copying them. So that Harry frequently heard students saying things like, Honestly, some days I just feel like jumping on my broom and leaving this place. Or else, one more lesson like that and I might just do a Weasley. (laughs) Fred and George made sure nobody was likely to forget them very soon. For one thing, they had not left instructions on how to remove the swamp that now 
filled the corridor on the fifth floor of the east wing, but Umbridge and Filch had been observing had been observed trying different means of removing it without success. Eventually, the area was roped off, and Filch, gnashing his teeth furiously, was giving the task of punting students across it to their classrooms. Can we stop there real quick? This was a, a acceptable form of transporting kids to their class, like a punt in football. You drop the ball and kick it with your foot. He was doing that to students. Filch was punting students across the swamp. Okay. Yeah, Apparently, that's allowed bad. in high school. That's messed up. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Harry was certain that teachers like McGonagall or Flitwick could have removed the swamp in an instant. But just as in the case of Fred and George's wildfire whiz-bangs, they, they seemed to prefer to watch Umbridge struggle. Then, there were the two large broom-shaped holes in Umbridge's office door through which Fred and George's clean sweeps had smashed to rejoin their masters. Phil's fitted a new door and removed Harry's firebolt to the dungeons where, it was rumored, Umbridge had set an armed security troll to guard it. However, her troubles were far from over. Inspired by Fred and George's example, a great number of students were now vying for the newly vacant position of troublemakers in chief. In spite of the new door, somebody managed to slip a hairy snouted Niffler into Umbridge's office, which promptly tore the place apart in its search for shiny objects. It leapt up on Umbridge on her uh, entrance and tried to gnaw the rings off her stubby fingers. Dung bombs and stink pellets were dropped so frequently in the corridors that it became the new fashion for students to perform bubblehead charms on themselves before leaving lessons, which ensured them a supply of fresh, clean air, even though it gave them all peculiar appearance of wearing an upside-down goldfish bowl on their head. Filch prowled the corridors with a horse whip ready in his hand, desperate to catch miscreants. But the problem was that there was now so many of them, he did not know which way to turn. The Inquisitorial Squad were attempting to help him, but odd things kept happening to its members. Warrington of the Southern Quidditch team reported to the hospital wing with a horrible skin complaint that made him look as he had been coated in cornflakes. Pansy Parkinson, to Hermione's delight, missed all of her lessons the following day as she had sprouted antlers. <clears throat> Meanwhile, it became clear just how many scotting snack boxes Fred and George had managed to sell before leaving Hogwarts. Umbridge only had to enter classrooms for the students assembled there to faint, vomit, develop dangerous fevers, or else spout blood from both nostrils. Shrieking with rage and frustration, she attempted to trace the mysterious symptoms to their source, but the students told her stubbornly they were suffering from Umbridge-itis. After putting four successive classes in detention and failing to discover their secret, she was forced to give up and allow the bleeding, swooning, and sweating, vomiting students to leave her classes in droves. But not even the users of the snack boxes could compete with that master of chaos, Peeves, who had seemed to take Fred's parting words deeply to heart. Cackling madly, he soared through the school, upending tables, bursting out of blackboards, toppling statues and vases. Twice he shut Mrs. Norris inside uh, suits of armor from which she was rescued, yowling loudly by the furious caretaker. He smashed lanterns, snuffed out candles, juggled burning torches over the heads of screaming students, caused neatly stacked piles of parchment to topple into fires or out of windows, flooded the second floor when he pulled on all the taps in the bathrooms, and dropped a big bag of tarantulas in the middle of the Great Hall during breakfast, and whenever he fancied a break, 
spent hours at a time floating along after umbrage, blowing loud raspberries every time she spoke. None of the staff but Filch seemed to be stirring themselves to help her. Indeed, a week after Fred and George's departure, Harry witnessed Professor McGonagall walking right past Peeves, who was determinedly loosening a crystal chandelier, and could have sworn he heard her tell the poltergeist out of the corner of her mouth, it unscrews the other way. <laughs> to cat matters, Montag had still not recovered from his sojourn in the toilet. He remained confused and disoriented, and his parents were observed were to be observed one Tuesday morning, striding up to the front drive looking extremely angry. Should we say something? said Hermione in a worried voice, pressing her cheek against the charm's window so that she could see Mr. and Mrs. Montag marching inside. About what happened to him, in case it helps Madame Pomfrey cure him? Of course not, he'll recover, said Ron indifferently. Anyway, more trouble for Umbridge, isn't it? said Harry in a satisfied voice. He and Ron both tapped the teacups they were supposed to be charming with their wands. Harry spouted four very short legs that would not reach the desk and wiggled pointlessly in midair. Ron grew four very thin spindly legs that hoisted the cup off the desk with great difficulty, trembled for a few seconds, then folded, causing the cup to crack in two. Reparo, said Hermione quickly, mending Ron's cup with a wave of her wand. That's all very well, but what if Montag's permanently injured? Who cares, said Ron irritably, while his teacup stood drunkenly again, trembling violently at the knees. Montag shouldn't have tried to take all those points from Gryffindor, should he? If you want to worry about anyone, Hermione, worry about me. You she said, catching her teacup as a scampered happily across the desk on four sturdy little willow-patterned legs and replacing it in front of her. Why should I be worried about you? When Mom's next letter finally gets through Umbridge's screening process, said Ron bitterly, now holding his cup while its frail legs tried feebly to support its weight, I'm going to be in deep trouble, and I wouldn't be surprised if she sent a holler again. But... It'll be my fault Fred and George left. You wait, said Ron darkly. She'll say I should have stopped them leaving. I should have grabbed the ends of their brooms and hung on or something. Yep, it'll be all my fault. Well, if she does say that, it'll be very unfair. You couldn't have done anything. But I'm sure she won't. I mean, if it's really true they've got premises in Diagon Alley now, they must have been playing this for ages. Yeah, that's another thing. How did they get premises, said Ron, hitting his teacup so hard with his wand that its legs collapsed again and it lay twitching before him. It's a bit dodgy, isn't it? They'll need loads of galleons to afford rent on a place like Diagon Alley. She'll want to know what they've been up to to get their hands on that sort of gold. Well, yes, that, that occurred to me too, said Hermione, allowing her teacup to jog in neat little circles around Harry's, whose stubby little legs were still unable to touch the desktop. I've been wondering whether Mundungus has persuaded them to sell stolen goods or something awful. He hasn't said Harry curtly. How do you know, said Ron and Hermione together, because Harry hesitated, but the moment to confess finally seemed to have come. There was no good to be gained in keeping silent if it meant anyone suspected that Fred and George were criminals. Because they got the gold from me. I gave them my Triwizard winnings last June. There was a shocked silence, then Hermione teacup jogged right off the edge of the desk and smashed on the floor. Oh, Harry, you didn't! Yes, I did, said Harry mutinously, and I don't regret it either. I didn't need the gold, and they'll be great at a joke shop. But this is excellent, said Ron, looking thrilled. It's all your fault, Harry. Mom can't blame me at all. Can I tell her? Yeah, I suppose you better, 
said Harry dully, especially if she thinks they're receiving stolen cauldrons or something. And Hermione had said nothing at all for the rest of the lesson. But Harry had a shrewd suspicion that her self-restraint was about to crack before long. And sure enough, once they had left the castle for break, they were standing around in the weak May sunshine. And Harry, she fixed Harry with a beady eye and opened her mouth with a determined air. It's no good nagging me. It's done, he said firmly. Fred and George have got the gold. Spent a good bit of it, too, by the sounds of it. And I can't get it back from them, and I don't want to. So save your breath, Hermione. I wasn't going to say anything about Fred and George, he said in an injured voice. Ron snorted disbelievingly, and Hermione threw, himself a, threw him a very dirty look. No, I wasn't. As a matter of fact, I was going to ask Harry when he's going to go back to Snape and ask for the clemency lessons again. So that's where I'll stop that there. There's a couple more bullet points I'm going to get talk about before I pass the remainder of the chapter on over to Chase. But now, full circle moments. We figure out Triwizard winnings have gone to Fred and George. Everyone knows it now. So that way there's no more secrets. But it's, it's amazing how their impact lasted after they left. Like everyone right. now has been trying to copy them and really give Umbridge a hard time. So our boys are trailblazers, brothers. So give me one second and I'll jump right back into these bullet points and I'll turn it over to you in just a minute here. You're good, man. No, Fred and George are legends, man. Like they'll, they are in Hogwarts history forever for the just the way it happened and uh, we'll leave this for our differences episode, but I'll say, like, that's one big problem I had with the film is, like, all the main points of Fred and George and their legacy are basically left out. <laughs> so, like, that's one of the problems I have. But, yeah, man, I'll let you keep diving back into it. Awesome. So, I'm going to go ahead and I got three more bullet points here, and then it, it goes over to you. So, Harry keeps getting further in his dream. Now he sees a cavernous room of dusty glass spheres, and he notes that row number 97 was where he woke up. So he's got that gradual progression of those dreams. So now he's through the first door, he gets to the second one, and now he's in the room full of dusty glass spheres. And row number 97, this is going to be important. Now, past that on page 683, Ron details how Gryffindor is still in the running for the Quidditch Cup. So it's pretty amazing that they're still even have any sort of chance <laughs> at all, right? right? So what ended up happening is Slytherin had been nearly defeated by Hufflepuff. Gryffindor uh, would need a win to win the cup because Slytherin lost to Hufflepuff. So uh, it comes down to the final match of the Quidditch season. It's going to be Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw. That's going to be the way whoever wins this is going to be the deciding factor of who wins the cups because somehow. Gryffindor got help from other teams losing to be in the position where if they win this match against Ravenclaw here, they win the Quidditch Cup with that B-list team that Chase and I were telling you about when we first started yeah. this episode, you know, when we started today. So with that, I'll go ahead and turn over the Quidditch match to Chase. He's going to take you there through the end of the chapter, and then we'll do our other parts of here, and we'll get out of your guys' hair. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, just to make sure we're clear for the audience, so like, did Slytherin wind up losing matches? So now it's like Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw, I guess. Because remember how yes. Slytherin so, was the favorites? Yeah, so Slytherin had been narrowly defeated by Hufflepuff in their last match. Now it's on page 683, the third paragraph. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that's yep. just... Yeah, because I just wanted to make sure uh, that way... And they, they attribute the loss to like um, 
Montag not being recovered because of him being shoved in that that uh, vanishing cabinet. So that's like their excuses why they're losing is because they don't have their captain. So because of that, Hufflepuff was able to take the win from Slytherin. And remember, Harry already beat Slytherin earlier this year. So that's two right. losses for Slytherin. So they're out of the running. So now it comes down to Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw for the cup. Awesome. Great stuff. Uh, so the final match of the Quidditch season, Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw, was to take place on the last weekend of May. Although Slytherin had been narrowly defeated by Hufflepuff in their last match, Gryffindor was now daring to hope for a victory. Okay, so you said that that spot, but um, due mainly to the course of nobody, uh, course nobody said it to him. To Ron's abysmal goalkeeping record, he, however, seemed to have found a new optimism. I mean, I can't get any worse, can I? He told Harry and Hermione, grimly over breakfast on the morning of the match. Nothing, nothing to lose now, is there? You know, said Hermione as she and Harry walked down to the pitch a little later in the midst of a very excitable crowd. I think Ron might do better without Fred and George around. They never exactly gave him a lot of confidence. Luna Lovegood overtook them with what appeared to be a live eagle perched on top of her head. Oh gosh, I forgot, said Hermione, watching the eagle flapping its wings as Luna walked serenely past a group of cackling and pointing Slytherins. Cho will be playing, won't she? Harry, who had not forgotten this, merely grunted. They found seats in the topmost row of the stands. It was fine. Clear day. Ron could not wish for better, and Harry found himself hoping against hope that Ron would not give the Slytherins cause for more rousing choruses of Weasley is our king. Lee Jordan, who had been very dispirited since Fred and George had left, was commentating as usual. As the teams zoomed onto the pitches, he named the players with something less than his usual gusto. Bradley, Davies, Chang, he said, and Harry felt his stomach perform. Less of a backflip, more of a feeble lurk as, Co- as Cho walked out onto the pitch, her shiny black hair rippling in the slight breeze. He was not sure what he wanted to happen anymore, except that he could not stand any more rows. Even the sight of her chatting animatedly, to Roger Davies as they prepared to mount their brooms caused him only a slight twinge of jealousy. And they're off, said Lee, and Davies takes the quaffle immediately. Ravenclaw captain Davies with a quaffle. He dodges Johnson, he dodges Bell, he dodges Spinnett as well. He's going straight for the goal. He's going to shoot, and, and, Lee swore very loudly, and he scored. Harry and Hermione groaned with the rest of the Gryffindors, Predictably horribly, the Slytherins on the other side of the stands began to sing, Weasley cannot save a thing, he cannot block a single ring. Harry said a hoarse voice in Harry's ear, Hermione. Harry looked around and saw Hagrid's enormous bearded face sticking between the seats. Apparently he had squeezed his way all along the row behind. For the first and second years he had just passed and had a ruffled, flattened look about him. For some reason, Hagrid was bent double as though anxious not to be seen, though he was still at least four feet taller than everybody else. Listen, he whispered, can you come with me now while everyone's watching the match? Er, can it wait, Hagrid? asked Harry, till the match is over? No, said Hagrid, no. Harry, it's gotta be now while everyone's looking the other way, please. Hagrid's nose was gently dripping blood 
His eyes were both blackened. Harry had not seen him this close up since his return to the school. He looked utterly woebegone. Course, said Harry at once. Course will come. He and Hermione edged back along their rows of seats, causing much grumbling among the students who had to stand up for them. The people of Hagrid's row were not complaining, merely attempting to make themselves as small as possible. I appreciate this, you two. I really do, said Hagrid as they reached the stairs. He kept looking around nervously as they descended toward the lawn below. I just hope she doesn't notice us going. You mean Umbridge? said Harry. She won't. She's got her whole in inquisitorial squad sitting with her. Didn't you see? She must be expecting trouble at the match. Yeah, well, a bit of trouble wouldn't hurt, said Hagrid, pausing to peer around the edge of the stands to make sure the stretch of lawn between there and the cabin was deserted. Give us more time. What is it, Hagrid? said Hermione, looking up at him with a concerned expression on her face as they hurried across the lawn towards the edge of the forest. Uh, yeah, yeah, you'll see, see, see him, said Hagrid, looking over his shoulder as a great roar rose from the stands behind them. Hey, did you just, did someone, someone just score? It'll be Ravenclaw, <laughs> said Harry heavily. Good, good, said Hagrid distractedly. That's good. They had to jog to keep up with him as he strode across the lawn. Looking around with every step when they reached the cabin, Hermione turned automatically left towards the front door. Hagrid, however, walked straight past it into the shade of the trees onto the outermost edge of the forest where he picked up a crossbow that was leaning against a tree. When he realized they were no longer with him, he turned. We're going in here, he said, jerking his shaggy head behind him. Into the forest, said Hermione, perplexed. Yeah said Hagrid. Come on now, quick, before we're spotted. Harry and Hermione looked at each other, then ducked into the cover of the trees behind Hagrid, who was already striding away from them into the green gloom, his crossbow over his arms. Harry and Hermione ran to catch up with them. Hagrid, why are you armed, said Harry. Just a precaution, said Hagrid, shrugging his massive shoulders. You didn't bring your crossbow the day you showed us Thestrals, said Hermione timidly. Now, nah, well, we, we were going in so far then, said Hagrid. And uh, anyway, that was before Ferenz left the forest, wasn't it? Why does Ferenz leaving make a difference, asked Hermione curiously. Because uh, the other centaurs are good and riled at me, that's why, uh, said Hagrid quietly, glancing around. They used to be, well, you call it uh, friendly, but we got all um, right, kept to themselves, but always turned up if I wanted a word not anymore he sighed deeply friends said that they're angry because he went to work for dumbledore harry asked tripping on a protruding root because he was busy watching hagrid's profile yeah said hagrid he heavily well angry doesn't cover it ready livid if i hadn't stepped in i reckon they'd kicked friends to death they attacked him said hermione sounding shocked yep said hagrid gruffly forcing his way through the several low-hanging branches. He had, uh, he had half the herd onto him. And you stopped it, said Harry, amazed and impressed by yourself. Of course I did. I couldn't stand by and watch him kill him, could I? Said Hagrid. Lucky I was passing, really. And I've thought Ferenz might have remembered that before he started sending me stupid warnings, he added hotly and unexpectedly. 
So now we know why Ferenz had that mark on his chest full circle moment there. Harry and Hermione looked at each other, startled, but Hagrid's scowling did not elaborate. Anyway, he said, breathing a little more heavily than usual. Since then, the other centaurs have been livid with me, and the trouble is, they've got a lot of influence in the forest. Cleverest creatures in here. Is that why we're here, Hagrid? asked Hermione. The centaurs? Uh, no, said Hagrid, shaking his head dismissively. No, it's not them. Well, of course, they could complicate the problem, yeah. But, yeah, see, see what I mean in a bit. On the incomprehensible note, he fell silent and forged a little ahead, taking one stride for every three of theirs, so that they had great trouble keeping up with them. The path was becoming increasingly overgrown. The trees grew so closely together as, the walk, as they walked farther and farther into the forest that it was as dark as dusk. They were soon a long way past the clearing where Hagrid had shown them the Thestrals, but Harry felt no sense of unease until Hagrid stepped unexpectedly off the path and began wending his way in and out of trees uh, toward the dark heart of the forest. Hagrid, said Harry, fighting his way through thickly, knotted brambles over which Hagrid had stepped easily and remembering very vividly what had happened to him on the other occasions he had stepped off the forest path. Where are we going? Bit further, said Hagrid over his shoulder. Come on, Harry. We need to keep uh, keep together now. It was a great struggle, struggle to keep up with Hagrid. What with branches and thickets of thorn through which Hagrid met marched as easily as though they were cobwebs, but which snagged Harry and Hermione's robes, frequently entangling them so severely that they had to stop for minutes at a time to free themselves. Harry's arms and legs were soon covered in small cuts and scratches. They were so deep in the forest now that sometimes all Harry could see of Hagrid in the gloom was a massive dark shape ahead of him. Any sound seemed threatening in the muffled silence. The breaking of a twig echoed loudly in the tiniest rustle of movement, though it might have been made by an innocent sparrow, caused Harry to peer through the gloom for a culprit. It occurred to him that he had never managed to get this far into the forest without meeting some kind of creature. Their absence struck him as rather ominous. Hagrid, would it be all right if we lit our wands? said Hermione quietly. Er, all right, Hagrid whispered back. In fact... He stopped suddenly and turned around. Hermione walked right into him, and he was knocked over backward. Harry caught, caught her just before she hit the forest floor. Maybe we've been just stopping for a moment, so uh, I can fill you, fill you in, said Hagrid. Before we get there, like... Good, said Hermione, as Harry sat back on their feet. They both murmured, Lumos, and their wands tips ignited. Hagrid's face swam through the gloom by the light of the two wavering beams, and Harry saw that he looked nervous and sad again. Right, said Hagrid. Well, see, the thing is, he took a great breath. Well, there's a good chance I'm going to, to be getting the sack any day now, he said. Harry and Hermione looked at each other, then back at him. But you've lasted this long, Hermione said tentatively. What makes you think... Umbridge reckons it was me that put that Niffler in her office. And was it? said Harry, before he could stop himself. No, it ruddy well wasn't, said Hagrid indignantly. Only anything to do with magical creatures, and she thinks it's got something to do with me. You know, she's been looking for a chance to get rid of me ever since I got back. I don't want her to go, of course. 
but if it wasn't for, well, the special circumstances I'm about to explain to you, I'd leave right now before she goes. The chance to uh, do it in front of the whole school like she did Trelawney, Harry and Hermione both made noises of protest, but Hagrid overrode them with a wave of one of his enormous hands. It's not the end of the world. I'll be able to help Dumbledore once I'm out of here. I can be useful to the order. And you'll lot have a grumbly plank. Yeah, yeah, get through your exams fine. His voice trembled and broke. Don't worry about me, he said hastily, as Hermione made to pat his arm. He pulled his enormous spotted handkerchief from the pocket of his waistcoat and mopped his eyes with it. Look, I wouldn't be telling you this at all if I didn't have to see to see if I go. Well, I can leave without without telling someone because I'll I'll need you two to help me. And Ron, if he's willing. Of course we'll help you, said Harry at once. What do you want us to do? Haggard gave a great sniff and patted Harry wordlessly on the shoulder with such force that Harry was knocked sideways into a tree. I knew you'd say yes, said Haggard into his handkerchief, but I I won't never forget. Well, come on, just a little bit further through here. Watch yourselves. Now, there's nettles. They walked on in silence for another 15 minutes. Harry opened his mouth to ask how much further they had to go when Haggard threw out his right arm to signal that they should stop. Really easy, he said softly. Very quiet now. They crept forward and Harry saw that they were facing a large smooth mound of earth, nearly as tall as Hagrid, that he thought with a jolt of dread was sure to be a lair of some enormous animal. Trees had been ripped up at the roots all around the mound so that it stood on a bare patch of ground surrounded by heaps and trunks of boughs that formed a kind of fence or barricade behind which Harry's Harry, Hermione, and Hagrid now stood. Sleeping, breathed Hagrid. Sure enough, Harry could hear a distant rhythmic rumbling that sounded like a pair of enormous lungs at work. He glanced sideways at Hermione, who was gazing at the mound with her mouth slightly open. She looked utterly terrified. Hagrid, she said in a whisper barely audible over the sound of the sleeping creature, who is he? Harry found this as an odd question. What is it? was the one he had been planning on asking hagrid you told us said hermione her wine now shaking in her hand you told us none of them wanted to come harry looked from her, from her to hagrid and then as a realization hit him he looked back at the mound with a small gasp of horror the great mound of earth on which he hermione and hagrid could easily have stood was moving slowly up and down in time with the deep grunting breathing it was not a mound at all. It was the curved back of what was clearly... Well, no. He didn't want to come, said Hagrid, sounding desperate. But I had to bring him, Hermione. I had to. But why? asked Hermione, who sounded as though she wanted to cry. Why? What? Oh, Hagrid. I knew if I just got him back, said Hagrid, sounding close to tears, himself in, in a in taunt him a few manners i'd be able to take him outside and show everyone he's harmless harmless said hermione shrilling and hagrid made frantic hushing noises with his hands as the enormous creature before them grunted loudly and shifted in his sleep he's been hurting you all this time hasn't he that's why you've had all those injuries he doesn't know his own strength 
said Hagrid earnestly. And he's getting better. He's not frightened so much anymore. So this is why it took you two months to get home? Said Hermione distractedly. Oh, Hagrid, why did you bring him back if he didn't want to come? Wouldn't he have been happier with his own people? They were all buying him, Hermione. Bullying him. Bullying. <laughs> buying him. <laughs> yeah, that would be weird. Selling him like pets. No, bullying him. <laughs> they were all bullying him, Hermione. Because he's small, said Hagrid. Small, said Hermione. Small? Hermione, I couldn't leave him, said Hagrid, tears now trickling down his bruised face into his beard. See? He's my brother. Hermione simply stared at him, her mouth open. Hagrid? When you say brother, said Harry slowly, do you mean... Well, half-brother, amended Hagrid. Turns out, me mother took him up with another giant when she left me dad, and she went... Uh, had Grop here. Grop, said Harry. Yeah, well, that's what it sounds like when he says his name, said Hagrid anxiously. He doesn't speak a lot of English. I've been trying to teach him. Anyway, she doesn't seem to have liked him much more. She liked me. See, with Giantess, what counts is producing good big kids. And he's always been a bit on the runty side for a giant. Only 16 foot. Oh, yes, tiny, said Hermione with a kind of hysterical sarcasm. Absolutely minuscule. He was a bin kicked around by all of them. I just couldn't leave him. Did Madame Maxine want to bring him back, asked Harry. She, well, she could see it was uh, right important to me, said Hagrid, twisting his enormous hands. But, but she got a bit tired of him after a while, I must admit. So we split up on our journey home. She promised not to tell anyone, though. How on earth did you get him back without anyone noticing, said Harry. Well, that's why it took so long, you see, said Hagrid. He'll only travel by night and through wild country and stuff. Of course, he covers the ground pretty well when he wants to, but he keeps wanting to go back. Oh, Hagrid, why on earth didn't you let him, said Hermione, flopping down onto the ripped up tree and burying her face in her hands. What do you think you're going to do with a violent giant who doesn't even know, want to be here? Well now, violent, that's a bit harsh, said Hagrid, still twisting his hands agitatedly. I'll admit he might take a couple of swings at me when he's been in a bad mood, but he's getting better, loads better, settling down, well. What are those ropes for then, Harry asked. Yeah, I just noticed ropes thicks as saplings stretching from around the trunks of the largest nearby trees toward the place where Grop lay curled on the ground with his back to back to them you have to keep him tied up said hermione faintly well yeah said hagrid looking anxious see it's like i say he doesn't really know his strength harry understood now why there had been such suspicious lack of any other living creature in the part of the forest so what is it you want harry and ron and me to do hermione asked apprehensively look after him said hagrid croakily after I'm gone. Harry and Hermione exchanged miserable looks. Harry uncomfortably aware that he had already promised Hagrid that he would do whatever he asked. What? What does that involve exactly? Hermione inquired. Not food or anything, said Hagrid eagerly. He can get his own food, no problem. Birds and deer and stuff. No, it's company he needs. If I just knew someone was carrying on, trying to help him a bit, teaching him, you know... Harry said nothing, but turned to look back at the gigantic form lying asleep on the ground in front of him. 
Grobhead is back to them, unlike Hagrid, who simply looked like a very oversized hunk, uh, uh, human, oversized human. Grob looked strangely mishappen. White Harry had taken to be a vast mossy boulder to the left of the great earthen mound. He now recognizes Grob's head. It was much larger in proportion to the body than a human head, almost perfectly round and covered with a tightly curling, close-growing hair the color of bracken. The rim of a single large fleshy ear was visible on top of the head, which seemed to sit rather like Uncle Vernon's directly upon the shoulders, with little or no neck in between. The back, under what looked like a dirty brownish smock, comprised of animal skins sewn roughly together, was a very broad and a grop, and as grop slept, it seemed to strain a little as the rough seams of the skins. The legs were curled up under the body. Harry could see the soles of the enormous, filthy, bare feet, large as sleds, resting on one on top of the other, on the earthly forest floor. "'You want us to teach him?' Harry said in a hollow voice. He now understood what Ferenza's warning had meant. "'His attempt is not working. He would do better to abandon it.' "'Of course,' the other creatures who lived in the forest would have heard Hagrid's fruitless attempts to teach Grop English.' Yeah, even if you just talk to him a bit, said Hagrid, hopefully. Because I reckon if he can talk to people, he'll understand more than we all like like him, really, and want him to stay. Harry looked at Hermione, who peered back at him from between the fingers over her face. Kind of makes you wish we had Norbert back, doesn't it? <laughs> he said, and she gave a very shaky laugh. Yeah, I'll do it then, said Hagrid, who did not seem to have caught what Harry had just said. Well, said Harry, already bound by his promise, we'll try, Hagrid. I knew I could count on you, Harry, Hagrid said, beaming in a very watery way and dabbing at his face with a handkerchief again. And I don't want you to put yourself out too much. Like, I know you got exams. I uh, uh, could just nip down here in your invisibility cloak maybe once a week and have a little chat with him. I'll wake up, then I introduce you. What? No? said Hermione, jumping up. Hagrid, no, don't wake him. Really, we don't need... But Hagrid had already stepped over the great trunk in front of them and was proceeding towards Grob. When he was around ten feet away, he lifted a long, broken bough from the ground, smiled reassuringly over his shoulder and at Harry and Hermione, then poked Grob hard in the middle of the back with the end of the bell. The giant gave a roar that echoed around the silent forest, Birds in the treetops overhead rose twittering from the perches and soared away. In front of Harry and Hermione, meanwhile, the gigantic grop was rising from the ground, which shuddered as he placed an enormous hand upon it to push himself onto his knees and turned his head to see who and what had disturbed him. All right, Groppy, said Hagrid in a would-be cheery voice, backing away with a long bow raised, ready to poke grop again. Had a nice sleep, eh? Harry and Hermione retreated as far as they could while still keeping the giant within their sights. Grop knelt between two trees and had not yet uprooted. They looked up into his staringly huge face, which resembled a gray full moon swimming in the gloom of the clearing. It was as though the features had been hewn onto a great stone ball. The nose was stubby and shapeless, the mouth lopsided and full of mishappened yellow teeth the size of half bricks. The small eyes were a muddy greenish-brown, and just now were half gummed together with sleep. Grop raised dirty knuckles as the big and cricket balls 
to his eyes, rubbed vigorously, and then without warning, pushed himself to his feet without, with surprising speed and agility. Oh my, Harry heard Hermione squeal, terrified beside him. The trees to which the other end of the ropes around Grop's wrist and ankles were attached creaked ominously. He was, as Hagrid had said, at least 16 feet tall. Gazing blearily around, he reached out a hand size, hand the size of a beech umbrella, seized a bird's nest from the upper branches of a towering pine, and turned it upside down with a roar of apparent displeasure that there was no bird in it. Eggs fell like grenades toward the ground, and Hagrid threw his arms over his head to protect himself. "'Anyway, Groppy!' shouted Hagrid, looking up apprehensively in case of further falling eggs. I brought some friends to meet you. Remember I told you I might? Remember when I said I might have to go on a little trip and leave uh, leave then to your for a bit? Remember that, Groppy? But Grop merely gave another low roar. It was hard to say whether he was listening to Hagrid or whether he had recognized the sounds Hagrid was making as speech. He had now seized the top of the pine tree and was pulling it toward him evidently for the simple pleasure of seeing how far it would spring back when he let go. "'Now, Groppy, don't do that!' shouted Hagrid. "'That's that's how you ended up pulling up the others!' And sure enough, Harry could see the earth around the tree's roots beginning to crack. "'I got company for you!' Hagrid shouted. "'Company, see? Look down, you big buffoon! I brought you some friends!' "'Oh, Hagrid, don't!' moaned Hermione." But Hagrid had already raised the bow again and gave Grop's knee a sharp poke. The giant let go of the top of the pine tree, which swayed maniacally, indulged Hagrid with a rain of needles and looked down. This, said Hagrid, hastening over to where Harry and Hermione stood, is Harry, Grop. Harry Potter. He might be coming to visit you if I have to go away, understand? The giant had only just realized that Harry and Hermione were there. They watched in great trepidation as he lowered his huge boulder of a head so that he could peer blearily at them. And this is Hermione, see? Her... Hagrid hesitated, turning to Hermione. He said, Would you mind if he called you Hermie? Hermione? Only it's difficult name for him to remember. No, not at all, squeaked Hermione. This is Hermie, Grop. And she's going to be coming in all. Is that nice? Uh, two friends for you, Groppy? Groppy, no! Grop's hand had shot out of nowhere towards Hermione. Harry seized her and pulled her backward beyond the tree so that Grop's fist scraped the trunk but closed on the thin air. Bad boy, Groppy! Harry heard Hagrid yelling as Hermione clung to Harry behind the tree, shaking and whimpering. Very bad boy, you don't grab! Ouch! Harry poked his head out from around the tree and saw Hagrid lying on his back, his hand over his nose. Grop, apparently losing interest, had straightened up again and was again engaged in pulling back the pine as far as it would go. Right, said Hagrid thickly, getting up, with one hand pinching his bleeding nose and the other grasping his crossbow. Well, there you are. You met him, and, and now he'll know you when you come back. Yeah, well... He looked up at Grop, who was now pulling back the pine with an expression of detached pleasure on his boulderish face. The roots were creaking as he ripped them away from the ground. Well, I reckon that's enough for the day, said Hagrid. Well, we'll be back now, shall we? Harry and Hermione nodded. Hagrid shouldered his crossbow again and still pitching 
pinching his nose, led the way back into the trees. Nobody spoke for a while, not even when they heard the distant crash that meant Grop had pulled over the pine tree at last. Hermione's face was pale and set. Hermione, uh, Harry could not think of a single thing to say. What on earth was going to happen when somebody found out that Hagrid had hidden Grop in the forest? And he had promised that he, Ron and Hermione, would continue Hagrid to tally pointless attempts to civilize the giant. How could Hagrid, even with the immense capacity to elude himself that fanged monsters were lovably harmless, fool himself that Grop would ever be fit to mix with humans? Hold it, said Hagrid abruptly, just as Harry and Hermione were struggling through a patch of thick knotgrass behind them. He pulled an arrow out of the quiver over his shoulder and fitted it into the crossbow. Harry and Hermione raised their wands now that they had stopped walking. They too could hear movement close by. Oh, blimey, said Hagrid quietly. I thought, I thought we told you, Hagrid, said a deep male voice, that you are no longer welcome here. A man naked torso seemed for an instant to be floating toward them through the dappled green half-light. Then they saw that his waist joined smoothly with the horse's chestnut body. This centaur, a proud, high-cheekboned face and long black hair like Hagrid, he was armed. A quiver full of arrows and a long bow were slung over his shoulders. "'How are you, Megorian?' said Hagrid wearily. The trees behind the centaur rustled and four or five more emerged behind him. Harry recognized that the black body and bearded Bane, whom he had met nearly four years ago on the same night he had met Ferenz. Bane gave no sign that he had ever seen Harry before. So, he said with a nasty inflection in his voice before turning immediately to Megorian. We agreed, I think, that we would do if this human showed his face in the forest again. This human now am I, said Hagrid testily, just for stepping on all of you committing murder. You ought not to have meddled, Hagrid, said Megorian. Our ways are not yours, nor are our laws. Ferenz has betrayed and dishonored us. I don't know how you worked that out, said Hagrid impatiently. He's done nothing except to help Albus Dumbledore. Ferenz has entered into servitude to humans, said a gray centaur with a hard, deeply lined face. Servitude, said Hagrid scathingly. He's doing Dumbledore a favor is all. He is peddling our knowledge and secrets among humans, said Megorian quietly. There can be no return from such disgrace. If you say so, said Hagrid shrugging, but personally I think you're making a big mistake. As are you, human, said Bane, coming back into our forest when we warned you. Now you listen to me, said Hagrid angrily. I'll have less of this our forest if it's all the same to you. It's not up to you who comes and goes in here. No more is it up to you, Hagrid, said Megorian smoothly. I shall let you pass today because you are accompanied by your young. They're not his, interrupted Bane contemptuously. Students, Megorian. From up at the school, they have probably already profited from the traitor Ferenza's teachings. Nevertheless, said Megorian calmly, the slaughter of foils is a terrible crime. We do not touch the innocent. Today, Hagrid, you pass. Henceforth, stay away from this place. You forfeited the friendship of the centaurs when you helped the traitor Ferenza escape us. 
I won't be kept out of the forest by a bunch of mules like you, said Hagrid loudly. Hagrid, said Hermione in a high-pitched and terrified voice as both Bane and Grey Centaur pawed at the ground. Let's go, please let's go. Hagrid moved forward, but his crossbow was still raised and his eyes were still fixed threateningly upon Megorian. We know what you are keeping in the forest, Hagrid, Megorian called after them as the centaur slipped out of sight. And our tolerance is, a, is warning. Our tolerance is waning. Hagrid turned and gave every appearance of wanting to walk straight back to Megorian again. You'll tolerate him as long as he's here. It's as much his forest as yours, he yelled, while Harry and Hermione both pushed with all their might against Hagrid's moleskin waistcoat in an effort to keep him moving forward. Still scowling, he looked down, his expression changed to mild surprise at the sight of them both pushing him. He seemed not to have felt it. Calm down, you two, he said, turning to walk on while they panted along behind them. Ruddy old nags, though, eh? Hagrid, said Hermione breathlessly, skirting the patch of nettles they had passed on their way there. If the centaurs don't want humans in the forest, it doesn't really look as though Harry and I will be able... Ah, you heard what they said, said Hagrid dismissively. They wouldn't hurt foils, I mean kids. Anyway, we can't let ourselves be pushed around by that lot. Nice try, Harry murmured to Hermione, who looked crestfallen. At last they rejoined the rejoined the path, and after another ten minutes, the trees began to thin. They were able to see patches of clear blue sky again and hear in the distance indefinite sounds of cheering and shouting. "'Was that another goal?' asked Hagrid, pausing in the shelter of the trees as the Quidditch Stadium came into view. "'Or do you reckon the match is over?' "'I don't know,' said Hermione miserably. Harry saw that she looked much worse for, for wear. Her hair was full of bits of twigs and leaves, her robes were ripped in several places, and there were numerous scratches on her face and arms. He knew he could look a, uh, he knew he could look a little better. I reckon it's over, you know," said Hagrid, still squinting toward the stadium. "Look, there's people coming out already. If you two hurry, you'll be able to blend in with the crowd, and no one'll know you you weren't there." "Good idea," said Harry. "Well, see you later, Hagrid." I don't believe him, said Hermione in a very unsteady voice the moment they were out of earshot of Hagrid. I don't believe him. I really don't believe him. Calm down, said Harry. Calm down. Calm down, she said feverishly. A giant? A giant in the forest? And we're supposed to give him English lessons? Always assuming, of course, we can get past the herd of murderous centaurs on the way in and out. I don't, I don't believe him. We haven't got to do anything yet, Harry tried to reassure her, a quiet voice, as they joined a stream of jabbering Hufflepuffs heading back towards the castle. He's not asking us to do anything unless he gets chucked out, and that might not even happen. Oh, come off it, Harry, said Hermione angrily, stopping dead in her tracks so that people behind her had to swerve to avoid her. Of course he's going to be chucked out, and to be perfectly honest... After that we've just seen, who can blame Umbridge? There was a pause in which Harry glared at her and her eyes filled slowly with tears. You didn't mean that, said Harry quietly. No, well, all right, I didn't, she said, wiping her eyes angrily. But 
Why does he have to make life so difficult for himself? For us? I, I don't know. I don't know. Weasley is our king. Weasley is our king. He didn't let the quaffle in. Weasley is our king. And I wish they'd stop singing that stupid song, said Hermione miserably. Haven't they gloated enough? A great tide of students was move, moving up the sloping lawns from the pitch. Oh, let's get in before we have to meet the Slytherins, said Hermione. Weasley can save anything. He never leaves a single ring. That's why Gryffindor we all sing. Weasley is our king. Hermione, said Harry slowly. The song was growing louder, but it was issuing not from a crowd of green and silver clad Slytherins, Slytherins, but from a mass of red and gold moving slowly towards the castle, which was bearing a solitary figure upon its many shoulders. Weasley is our king. Weasley is our king. He didn't let the quaffle in. Weasley is our king. No, said Hermione in a hushed voice. Yes, said Harry loudly. Harry, Hermione, yelled Ron, waving the silver Quidditch cup in the air and looking quite beside himself. We did it! We won! They beamed up at, at him as he passed. There was a scrum at the door of the castle and Ron's head got rather badly bumped on the lintel, but nobody seemed to want to put him down. Still singing, the crowd squeezed itself into the entrance hall and out of sight. Harry and Hermione watched them go, beaming until the last echoing strains of Weasley is our king died away. Then they turned to each other, their smiles fading. We'll save our news till tomorrow, shall we? said Harry. Yes, all right, said Hermione wearily. I'm not in any hurry. They climbed the steps together at the front doors, both instinctively looked back at the forbidden forest. Harry was not sure whether it was his imagination or not. But he rather thought he saw a small cloud of birds erupting into the air over the treetops in the distance, almost as though the tree in which they had been nesting had just been pulled up by the roots. Big chapter, man. So now we know everything's come full circle. Why the centaurs have basically disowned friends. And, uh, and our boy Ronald. I don't know what happened, but he... Uh, I guess, you know, he um, did his little ritual dance today. <laughs> the luck of the Irish. <laughs> but uh, it's good stuff, man. I was happy for our boys. And Gryffindor brought that cup home. Despite, you know, basically playing with Nick Foles at quarterback. <laughs> and that's what happened, man. And then Ron saved the day. Uh, so, yeah, man. And with that, I'll let you kind of wrap us up here, man. Yeah, we still got some other yeah. sections, uh, but yeah, I just wanted to also touch on those real quick too. Like, <clears throat> so we got we also find out mm-hmm. that friends with the centaurs, he got attacked because he went to go work for Dumbledore. So then, like, centaur knowledge is like a sacred thing that isn't to be shared with other beings, according to like I would say the traditionalist centaurs. So it was like right. uh, a sacrilege in a way that friends went and agreed to work for Dumbledore. Then, on top of that, yeah, the big the big news is is Hagrid brought a freaking giant home from the mountains. <laughs> Literally like what like through the nights took him 2 months, so that's why he was so late. He dragged a 16-foot giant that didn't want to come along with him, like got his ass kicked every day and night until like it's like <laughs> that's why he's got so cut up and bruised and bloody and all over and 
and goes, ah, no, he's harmless, but now he leaves it to Harry, Ron, and Hermione to give this thing English lessons if he gets sacked. But yes, on, but in the, to end it on the good note, yes, Ron did uh, very well in his uh, Quidditch Cup uh, debut, I should say. It's not that his Quidditch debut, but it's his first time playing in a game that was before the high stakes like the Quidditch Cup, and he actually performed very well, which we'll find out later on. But obviously we can kind of get an idea of that just by the song that they were singing, talking about him not letting the quaffle in. So good news there. So hey, going on to some... Quick. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, so did Hagrid really bring him back? Because I was thinking more like family first, like, and he wanted him to be safe because he thought the other giants were going to kill him. Or was it just he just wanted to bring him back to bring him back? I think it's a family thing because he says he's my half-brother and he didn't want to see him bullied or like kicked around so yeah i think he brought him back. i think it's like a, a it was kind of like a dual win like now they've got somebody that's pretty formidable to help out the good side but i think the main factor was that it was hagrid's family like it was his half brother uh the only kind of relic he has of a family now his dad died his mom died this is all he's got left right right so I, that's my thought process I guess, though, if you think about it, technically Hagrid did fulfill his promise to Dumbledore. Like, he technically <laughs> succeeded. I mean, not by much, but technically he succeeded, I guess. Yeah. He got, <laughs> got one, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was to convince them, them as a whole, like the whole tribe, to join them. <laughs> yeah, okay. And the thing was, like, he had to, like, drag it, like, kicking and screaming. It's not like he convinced <laughs> Grop. He's like, no, you're coming with me, Groppy boy. <laughs> like, yeah, That'd be dude. like if, uh, literally, if um, Jon Snow, as far as the north, if all he was able to convince was literally probably i would say uh like bran and he dragged bran by the neck and had like a noose on his throat you're coming with me bran i don't know it doesn't <laughs> sound like a good alliteration because bran can't whoop john's ass all the way there yeah you know grob grob's sitting there destroying hagrid's face and everything like <laughs> i guess that'd be tormund in the wildlings right maybe yeah there i guess one of them giant there was giants in there so yeah, there was giants in in game of thrones so maybe one of them giants he tries to dragon back and they whoop his ass but yeah um anyways let's get through the plot holes and discrepancies on here i only got a couple of them mm -hmm. um this one was kind of petty of me like i literally like did some extra looking into <laughs> the dates so hagrid or so, no sorry harry was getting ready for his date with cho on page 555 mm -hmm. well hogsmeade is a weekend activity right you only go to hogsmeade on certain weekends the events of the Order of the Phoenix take place in 1996. I went back in my phone calendar, and February 14th, 1996 was a Wednesday, not a weekend. So I'll tell you what, they lied. <laughs> they lied to us. That was not that was not a Hogsmeade weekend because it was a Wednesday. So that was a little plot hole there. I bet they didn't think I was going to go back and check the dates, but I did. Check the dates on them. <laughs> no, sir. Check the dates, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Also. When, remember how Harry got another week's worth of detention from Umbridge for doing the Quibbler interview? Right. That was never mentioned. Like, no, like after he said, she said, you received another week's worth of detention, the other week's worth of detention never came up in the book. Do we just supposed right. to assume that he did it and it was done and over with? Or like, I don't know, man. That never came yeah. up. Um, also, page 642 about the Pensieve. My issue is, like, I don't understand how Harry could see so much and hear such so many interactions 
when the pensive is supposed to be from the perspective of the person's memory. So like, you just maybe you might be able to see like a small circle around that person and see what they can see. But there's no reason why you should be able to hear what they're saying to each other like from half the courtyard away. Like you're supposed to get like, you know, a little bit of what, whatever that person right. can see and hear, that's what you should be able to see and hear. Like that you just shouldn't be able to be able to go to different people as long as the other person's in sight because that person didn't hear or see those things. That person's doing their own thing. So I think that's a bit of a plot hole in and of itself. And then just the last one I have, and this was not a plot hole. This was a poor editing job from the book, the people who, like Scholastic, I guess I can say, on page 648. It says, Lily blinked. Fine, she said coolly. I won't bother in future. I won't bother in future. Not in the future like it's supposed to be. Or like, like, like it literally just says, I won't bother in future. On page 648, talking when Snape called her a mudblood. What There's uh, a half- paragraph? Sorry, I just want to make sure. Yeah, go. So if you see where it says leave him alone in the, like, kind of at the top of the page, go down where it says Lily blinked. Right underneath where it says I don't need help from filthy little mudbloods like her. If you look right below yeah, that, it I says. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, I won't bother in future. Yeah, yeah. that's a very good point because there's been times in this book too there's been little things like that but I've wondered if like my copy is just like a misprint but then now that we're comparing it to yours yeah I don't know because I don't I don't know I mean I won't know, bother in future what that doesn't make any sense yeah like, I don't think that's correct grammar unless they're yeah. trying to say that's the way she just like talked I guess but that doesn't make any sense I don't think so man I think they've messed it up but that's not so much <laughs> as a plot hole as it is a poor editing job from the company yeah but those are my big plot holes that I had did you have any that you noticed in there um, I really didn't have any major plot holes I mean I agree with what you said about the pin C I guess the only thing is if uh, Snape was like kind of farther back maybe if he was seeing everyone from like the air or something but he still wouldn't see it from the ground but yeah it makes it makes me wonder if in this British edition as far as like the editing is the same but the problem is the pages page numbers yeah, are the page same be different, so like right. it could take a long time to do that but no I, I didn't have any major like plot holes with these like not a, the only thing I could think of is like Hagrid dragging a 16 foot giant like I get it took him a long time but <laughs> yeah I mean I can buy it I mean that's just like wow the but, only way I could see him really pulling it off of is he used a little bit of the magic from his umbrella wand like maybe he tried to like like you know bind him and carry him or something I don't know like <laughs> I just picture I like Santa's like Christmas yeah. sack like he just blew <laughs> let's go groppy <laughs> That's what I see too, man. That's funny. Crazy, man. Interesting facts. Good stuff. Let's knock out. Yeah, let's do this uh, interesting facts here. So mine is on the the little creature. It's actually called a uh, Krupp. And so the Krupp is the small, like it's, it resembles a Jack Russell Terrier, but the difference is it has like a fork in the tail. So this is actually brought up not only did we get it in this part here, but it's also brought up by Newt Scamander in the movie Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. But uh, they are originated in the southeast of England. Uh, it's uh, they think it's almost like a certainly like a, a wizard created dog because it's intensely loyal to wizards and very ferocious towards muggles. It's a great scavenger. It eats anything from gnomes to old tires, and Krupp licenses can be obtained for the Department and Regulation of the Control of Magical Creatures on completion of a test. 
to prove that the applicant wizard is capable of controlling the Krupp in Mogul-inhabited areas. So, the Krupp owners were required by British wizarding law to remove the forked tail of their animal when it was six to eight weeks old using a painful, painless severing charm in case they were noticed by muggles. So, these are some cool things about that. They, a group of Krupps is known as a pack. Krupp puppies are known as Kruppies. And, uh, you know, Krupps can be found in the United States. And uh, Harkway, the president of the Magical Congress of the United States of America in 1760, was a Krupp breeder. So the, the president of the Magical Congress that you were talking about for the United States there, uh, he was a breeder of Krupps until his pack savaged several local uh, <laughs> nomads in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, after leaving them only able to bark for a period of 48 hours. So uh, that's a little bit about what they are as creatures. I thought they were cool. They're small little puppies. They're, they resemble Jack Russell Terriers, which are generally really nice like dogs, but they can be kind of savage if uh, not cared for properly, and they're only loyal to wizards. They are ferocious and aggressive towards muggles. So with that, I'll let you finish up with your interesting fact, and we'll we'll say goodbye. No, man, that's awesome. Um, yeah, if y'all didn't know, look on our Instagram, and Josh has said it before. Like his Patronus is dogs. Which it, what kind of dog is it? That's your mine's patron. a husky. Mine's husky. a husky. Yeah. That's awesome, though. Yeah, we're you know Jay Nelly and I are both dog people. <laughs> that's for sure. for sure. So, yeah, uh, for my interesting fact, so we kind of brushed over it a little bit. Um, of course, this part was mainly bullet points, but when Luna and Rita Skeeter and Hermione are all in that in the three broomsticks. Luna actually has a cocktail onion <laughs> that's in her hand. Uh, so this drink was actually has been drank before by Hagrid and also Minerva McGonagall. So um, here's what's in it, and then I'll tell you how to make your own real quick. So Luna's ingredients, it's called a pungus onion, which is just basically an onion. It's a magical plant compromised of swathe green leaves and an orange elongated bulb at the base so it's basically an onion with green like basically tree leaves on it uh, it's very pungent so disgustingly smells but it's uh, also cursed for curing boils uh, and they were used in potion making by um, Zygmunt Budge who's we spoke before he's made a lot of famous potions and wrote the book of potions but um, the ingredients uh, as far as if you want to make your own for you. So what you would have at home, actually this guy got really into it, but it's four different vinegars you would pour in the bottom to give it a base. Um, you would have apple cider vinegar, um, red and white wine vinegar, and rice vinegar. Um, the red and white wine vinegar, so this chef said uh, they bring balance uh, to make it like a, a more tasteful cocktail. Um, then he added spices, so you can add, um, like he added bay leaf and uh, pepper loins and garlic, so just spices thrown there. Add a large, he added a large pearl onion, but basically take an entire onion, and what you'll do is you'll put it in a pan and cook it and heat it up. Once it's cooked, after you had it over the stove, what you're going to do is you're going to put the entire onion into uh, like a big, um, basically like mixer. In the mixer, you're gonna put two shots of vodka and coconut milk, and then you're gonna put two shots of gin and tonic in there, and then you're gonna pour all that into a martini glass, add a little bit of olive oil, and add a cucumber. <laughs> and that's uh, 
Luna's drinks, which is, I guess, very interesting at that age. They are drinking something so strong, but hey, more power to you. Maybe that's why, you know, she is Looney Luna, according to some people. So and with that, man, I'll let you break us down. One quick thing, though. Uh, this uh, last couple weeks, it was the 25th anniversary of Pokemon. <laughs> yeah. So just wanted to throw that out there. You know, we've talked about Pokemon before on the show with the Malice cards, but, uh, you know, I had to bring that back a little bit to reminisce, and, uh, yeah, man, I'll let you break us down. Dude, you got it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, between Harry Potter and Pokemon, Dragon Ball Z, that t- touches a lot of our age's childhood, so it was, <laughs> it's cool to see, especially, like, with McDonald's with their new releases of the cards. Like, there's, like, a lot of people, I wouldn't say riots, but a lot of crazy stuff going on at McDonald's where, like, kid like people like adults are buying it up so the kids and having those can't get the pokemon cards yeah. now so there's a whole lot of craziness happening man but hey that just kind of speaks to the success that pokemon's had continuously over the past 25 years so amazing stuff there but uh, guys before we break it on down something we always like to say before we get out of here is just thanking you all for the time it took this one is one of the longer episodes that you will ever have on factor fantasy it's just with the longest book with the longest amount of chapters that we'll do, with the amount of detail that was in them, that's what happens. But thank you guys for staying tuned, sticking with us. It really shows the true fans from the people who are casual, which we love. We enjoy both, right? But if you were able to make it all the way to this point, you have my utmost respect for your uh, um, fandom of Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. So thank you guys so much for the time that you take. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Official Ridiculous Patronus. We have a Facebook fan page at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. Uh, hit cast a spell on the subscribe button as Boy Boy Chase once coined the term. I love that. Uh, you know, we, <laughs> we are on Twitter as well. Uh, we are on any sort of port platform. Follow, you want to listen to us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along, leave a review, leave a comment, ask us questions. We love fan interaction. But guess what, guys? Today, this is about time that we let you gone go. So what I will say, as I always say, is this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing off. (laughs) 